Hello, friends, and welcome. This is episode 2.3 of the History of the Atlantic World. I am your caffeinated host, Jesse Wiest. Thank you for listening. Before we dive into the material, I need to ask for just a moment of your time to ask you to help me produce quality episodes faster. And there are basically two really easy ways that you can pitch in. First, if you could please take just a couple moments of your time to write a written review for the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen with. It actually doesn't even matter what you write, but the act... Of, uh, of listeners writing reviews triggers the algorithms that govern which podcasts get promoted to other potential listeners. So the more listeners who take just a little bit of time to do this helps to make sure that as many people as possible get to go along on this journey through time with us. Now, the other way you can help is to donate to the podcast Patreon page. That's patreon.com slash atlanticworld. Now, the episodes of this podcast are always going to be free, but they cost me a decent chunk of change to produce and to do the research for each show. And uh, to be honest, the real cost uh, is the tremendous investment of my time. Uh, So contributions really help cover these costs. And if you can, please chip in to help finance the show. You can do so for as little as a dollar per month on patreon.com slash atlanticworld or by clicking the link on the SoundCloud page where I host the site. What's really great about Patreon is that since you can help out with as little as a dollar per month, that translates into roughly a buck a show, uh, maybe a buck and change. Um, and at any rate... Uh, for the amount of content that each show is turning out to be, that's a really great value. Anyway, thank you for your time, and I really appreciate your support. Uh, oh, one last thing. If you are interested in social media updates, you can find the History of the Atlantic World podcast on Facebook by searching for at Atlantic World History or on Twitter at Atlantic 1492, and I've put up images of a few maps that correspond with different episodes on Instagram. And so you can follow me uh, there by searching for Atlantic World Podcast. Anyway, thanks again for your time. I really appreciate the written reviews since they help spread the podca- the word of the podcast to others and not to mention give me a chance to read feedback. And uh, with that said, on to the show. Now, I'm kicking myself that I didn't better explain the origins of maize in the first episode of this series, or the second episode of this series. But with that said, every problem is an opportunity. And at least we have the opportunity to do so now. I did mention that maize comes from the teosinte plant, which is a much smaller grass, and that human beings in the Americas began experimenting with this grass, and they created a new species. Now, what I didn't do 
is explain just how remarkable of an achievement this was. Not farming, mind you. Uh, That's a remarkable achievement in and of itself, one achieved by various peoples in various places starting around 10,000 years ago. And over the preceding 5,000 years, a global shift occurred from hunting and gathering to cultivation, storage, and agriculture. Now, this shift did not take place in every human culture or society, but it did in an awful lot of them. And this transformation is a fascinating process. It transformed people's lives uh, from hunter-gatherers into farmers. And according to Colin Galloway, who wrote One Vast Winter Count, quote, hunter-gatherers lived in confidence that animals would, eventually, always give themselves up, that nature would provide. Farmers, in contrast, lived with uncertainty. Crops might fail. Cosmic forces might withhold rains, unquote. Now, only in Mesoamerica did this process take place alongside maize. By 7,600 years ago, People in Mesoamerica were experimenting with agriculture, and by working with teosinte and other grasses, they invented something remarkable. A domesticated version of a plant which required human hands to spread. Domesticated corn does not disperse seed and reproduce without human care and cultivation. Jane Mount Pleasant is an Iroquois agronomist who studies native methods of cultivation and crop yields and says, The only reason we have corn today is that for thousands of years, humans have selected seeds and planted them. American farmers took the seeds of the plants that did best in their environments and developed new strains adapted to drier soils, more arid climates, and shorter growing seasons, as well as experimented with different ways of hilling to protect the plants. And by the Middle Ages, varieties of corn were developed that could grow in the northeast woodlands of North America. In doing this, Native American farmers succeeded in growing crops in locations that would appear incapable of cultivation by modern industrial agriculture. And say what you will, about the technological advancement of Native Americans before 1492. But Europeans did not make similar progress in plant breeding until the late 19th century, when agricultural experimental stations were developed. But that's just part of what makes corn really special. You see, maize was developed and domesticated alongside two other crops, the Three Sisters, Technically, the first developed uh, domesticated of the three was squash. You know, squash and gourds don't have as much nutritional value as corn, but they can be dried and stored just like corn can. And further, they can be used as containers and water bottles. The final sister, beans, contains lysine, which is an amino acid missing in corn and squash, and which aids the digestion of the protein within corn. Now, unprocessed corn is also missing the amino acid tryptophan, unless you soak it in lime, in which case the tryptophan is released. And when eaten with beans, the entire 11 essential amino acids found within meat 
can also be found within the three sisters. Now, further, this process adds calcium to the corn, that is, adding lime juice, which is what you do when you make tortillas. The three sisters thus provide a nutritious diet and, when planted together, minimize the depletion of nutrients in the soil. What's more, the three sisters were, also, were often combined with chili peppers in Mesoamerica, which for all intents and purposes might as well be the fourth sister, because chili peppers are high in iron, riboflavin, niacin, and vitamins A and C. Now, things weren't all peaches and cream for people who adopted the three sisters as a staple. And for women, this did not make for less work to do, for example, because in addition to planting, hoeing, harvesting, and grinding corn, women still had to gather wild plants, prepare food, collect fuel and water, care for children, make and wash clothing, weave baskets and mats, and make pottery. Healthy or sick, women were expected to work at the grinding bins for about three hours a day. But as settlement size increased, grinding corn became a group rather than an individual activity. And as such, women worked hard, but they also spent more time in the company of other women. And this shift had important social consequences. It very well may have produced an increase in women's status. At any rate, since corn provides little iron or calcium, for the poor in corn-based societies who could not always afford lime, osteoarosis was common. A sedentary lifestyle meant that people were also more susceptible to bacteria and parasites, uh, more so than hunter-gatherers. In addition, just because you settled down, infant mortality rates didn't get any lower. They remained high. Life expectancy remained low for agricultural peoples. And basically, hunter-gatherer populations were much healthier than people who farmed. So why is maize so special? Well, maize, and frankly many agricultural crops, do provide one big bonus. And that is that they are storable. So when things are good, things are really good. Infant mortality rates were high, but in times of surplus, so too were birth rates. And when times were good with maize, times could be really, really good. In much of the Americas, and practically all of Mesoamerica, maize can actually be grown twice a year. This is in large part what explains the tremendous size of Mesoamerican cities. Why later Europeans, the Spanish, will be so amazed. One Spanish priest, upon visiting Mesoamerica, declared, quote, Here, corn is God. Unquote. Ears of corn were given as gifts and were used as ritual and cultural icons. Native American farmers literally sang to their maize crops. And these songs, along with other images, ideas, and influence, crossed cultural, tribal, and linguistic divides across the Americas until corn became sacred and took on a role in the center of daily prayer, ritual, and worldviews for many people long before Americans, or excuse me, before Europeans arrived in the Americas, 
Maize spread from Mexico until it was growing in 700 separate species across the Americas. Now, with that said, let us return to where we left off in Mesoamerica uh, in episode 2.1, which was sometime around when archaeologists would call the late formative period. Now, during this time, Mesoamerican culture developed in six regions, each with their own regional variation, the Isthmian Block, the Maya Highlands, Oaxaca, the Maya Lowlands, the Central Plateau, and West Mexico. Now, none of these places were ever dominant, but as we discussed in episode 2.1, one culture, the Olmecs, certainly did influence the others to a greater extent. But, and so, but before we dive into discussing the history of these places after the Olmec, I want to quickly state that Mesoamerican history is divided into phases or periods by archaeologists, and to avoid confusion later when I say things like the late formative period or the early classical period, I might as well just throw those out there now. The late formative period basically starts sometime around 300 BC and will continue to about 250 AD. This is followed by the classical period of Mesoamerican civilization, which lasted up until about 900 and everything that follows that until the Spanish arrive is called the cl- post-classical period. Now, with that said, let's pick back up on the Isthmian block, where Olmec culture was gone by the late formative. Excuse me. But that doesn't mean that Olmec influence wasn't still around. Olmec culture was gone, but cities like Cerro de la Mesas and Tres Zapotes both continued on and represent a continuation of Olmec artistic traditions. Cerro de la Mesas dates back to at least 2,700 years ago. Though it is possible that it dates much older, this is uncertain because it was excavated with less than rigorous methods. And at any rate, the culture of the site was related to the Olmec. And so some parts of Olmec culture survived, uh, in in Cerro de la Mesas, uh, where they did not survive in other older Olmec centers. One ceremonial deposit um, that has, was excavated contained 782 pieces of jade and stone, including four much older Olmec pieces, probably heirloom items, buried long after their original manufacture. Most of the, these those 782 items were pieces of jewelry, Another burial contained a carved turtle shell, though, which, and that shows uh, something that archaeologists know as the long-lipped god, a deity found mostly at another site called Izapa, which is on the Pacific coast of Guatemala and has nothing to do with the Olmec. And I just point those two things out just so you know. Now, that's the sort of evidence that shows us that Cerro de la Mesas was related to the Olmec, but it wasn't exactly Olmec. Now, we know for a fact that Tres Zapotes dated back to before Olmec times as well, and so I discussed it quite a bit in episode 2.1, but something I didn't mention was that sometime around 2200 years ago, a complex writing system and a much more complex calendar were in use in this former Olmec city. The writing system consisted of dots and bars. Uh, like numerals that would be found on one stella at the site. Um, 
Another monument has a very long text of about 500 hieroglyphs and two dates, which correspond to the years 143 and 156 in our calendar. There's a human figure on the stela which was found, and a person who wore a headdress in the Izapa style accompanies these numbers. Two excellent linguists were able to decipher these hieroglyphics, and as a result we know that the text tells of a ruler's struggle for power, which involved several battles, one against his brother-in-law and who he ultimately beheaded. So the text is historic, but it's also heavily religious. Another important event in the ruler's saga was his obtaining an animal spirit as his companion, a religious concept that continued on in Mesoamerica long after he was dead. And in addition, a specific shaman is mentioned twice, and it's thought that this was a famous uh, uh, shaman of the time because uh, an uncovered statue that was made of jade was produced uh, and found in the Tuxtla Mountains uh, shows a shaman who wore a duckbill mask, and it is believed that the, the shaman on that statue is the same one mentioned in that text. And Anyway, I just think that's kind of neat. Well, I better talk about Izapa. Um, considering that this was a very influential place after the decline of Olmec culture, and it clearly impacted Cerro de la Mesas and Tres Zapotes, as well as other parts of Mesoamerica, now, Izapa sits across the Isthmus and down the Pacific coast in relation to those other two cities. And the Izapa site uh, is famous because it contained more examples of regional art from the late formative than anywhere else in Mesoamerica. Izapa was a village with regional influence that originally dated from the early formative and had a great period of expansion starting sometime around 2,400 years ago. Eventually, it grew into a large city with eight courtyards full of major architecture. Clay platforms were constructed and arranged um, around each courtyard. Each uh, courtyard had its own set of stone monuments, including stella and altar combinations, a variety of sculptures, and there were three in total thrones in in Izapa. And altogether, no fewer than 253 stone monuments exist at the site, and these were centered around the eight courtyards, which were in turn all centered around solar eclipses, I mean, excuse me, solar solstices, equinoxes, and lunar risings, uh, and uh, a nearby volcano. Now, the lower platforms of the site supported the residences of elites. The, the homes on top of these platforms were built of timber, plaster, and they had thatched roofs. Stone drains would carry off the heavy rainfall of the region. And in fact, water was actually the most prominent theme of the artwork of Izapa. Um, and, and starting around 2,400 years ago, and, and for the next preceding 250 years, Izapa was greatly expanded from village to city to political center. A great deal changed with Izapan culture and religion during this time. But Izapa is different than later Mesoamerican cultures in that they did not glorify their rulers with divine right. And that's something that's going to be very important for later Mesoamerican elites. Instead, Izapan ritual seems much more geared towards celebrating creation, fertility, 
cycles of life and astronomical events. And Izapan art has a narrative-like quality to it. So actually we understand their culture a little more than we might otherwise be able to. Um, and that's because Izapan murals uh, have depictions of things like storm gods gathering water and releasing it. Uh, rituals that involve jaguars as captive participants. Others show gods flying through the sky or riding in canoes over waves, uh, underneath which are realistically depicted fish. Humans are often shown tending incense burners or as warriors, sometimes decapitating their enemies. Now, of course, we don't know much about any metaphorical meanings that uh, having to do with any of these, but one Stella in particular gives us an even better hint as to the deeper beliefs of the Azapans. The Stella depicts several people engaging in some sort of ceremony at a great tree, which has been named the Tree of Life, and probably resents the great Seba tree, which in later Maya mythology was thought to hold up the heavens. It is thought that the Stella is an interpretation of the Izapan creation myth. Now, at any rate, archaeologists believe that Izapa was a residence for a ruling class of priests and their acolytes, and was likely a pilgrimage center for people who lived elsewhere. Now, there's evidence of a lot of incense being burned and ritual deposits of large amounts of valuable materials. But just because Izapa was a religious site didn't mean there weren't also other things going on. Uh, one of the plazas in particular seems quite suitable as a marketplace. And of course, agriculture was of supreme importance. Cacao, in particular, was a very important crop grown in the area. And traders would have come from long distances to acquire it. And so Izapa was probably a center for commerce, as well as a center of pilgrimage. Now, another site on the Pacific coastal plain of Guatemala is Abaj Takalik, a large regional site which around 2,000 years ago was an early Maya site. In fact, one of 10 different principalities or early or small early states, uh, which were all about 10 kilometers apart from one another, and all about 35 miles from the coastline. Now, the altar of Abaj Takalik shows a line of rulers. Other motifs at the site have to do with corn symbolism and references to the four corners of the cosmos. And the, these are the same sorts of art themes that are going to be found at later uh, Maya sites. Um, another site near Abaj Takalik was Kamenaljuyu, which is an enormous site. Unfortunately, it is one that disappeared rapidly under the edges of Guatemala City in the mid-20th century, but archaeologists basically learned a lot about it by looting the ruins before this happened. And in doing so, they obtained a lot of unique sculptures in the forms of little fat men or squashed frogs, though it isn't exactly clear what these represented metaphorically. What is more clear to us is that Kamenaljuyu's beginnings were around 2,900 years ago during the Middle Formative, a time of development of many regional centers in Mesoamerica. 
Um, it was located in the valley of La Emita, where Guatemala City is, is presently at, as I said. And it was occupied uh, – and the, the, the valley was occupied by a series of small villages. And over the course of 300 years, it, the, some of these developed into larger regional centers, and Kamenaljuyu was one of them. And it, the site appears to consist of an arrangement of various clans or lineages – Kamenaljuyu was occupied by a dozen or so different clans, each with their own temples and burial mounds, and around which were the gathered segments of the population. So a number of uh, perhaps petty chiefs or leaders of different kinship groups and their people came together to form Kamenaljuyu, and other nearby cities developed in a similar fashion. Such that by 2,200 years ago, Kamenaljuyu was one of five major regional centers around which lived the clustered hamlets and houses of the clans. Kamenaljuyu and the other four uh, cities appear to have been divided into moieties. It further appears that this loose political organization structure was held together mainly by marriage ties amongst the local important families. Now, we also know that these people engaged in long-distance trade um, from the presence of pottery, which was made in El Salvador. Now, the architecture of Kamenaljuyu was quite impressive. It included an aqueduct system, the base of which was actually still in use in colonial times, about 1,600 years later. And in addition, a giant effigy mound called La Culebra, or the serpent in English, which was about 2.6 miles long and made out of adobe bricks, acted probably as an earthwork boundary and a military fortification, which guarded against invasion from the south. Uh, One elaborate tomb, which was excavated, contained the body of a man surrounded by hundreds of pottery vessels and other objects, as well as four people sacrificed to accompany him in the afterlife. So clearly a pretty complex social order existed, Archaeologists estimate that Kamenaljuyu controlled a population in the tens of thousands. Another early Itzmian site is Chiapa de Corzo, which sat along the lowland, the lowland trench of the Grijalva River. It's one of the most important sites in all of Mesoamerica. And that's because it was occupied continuously from 3,300 years ago all the way to the present. Um, and 3,300 years ago at a minimum, I should say, which is when the oldest evidence of pottery exists in in this region of the Chiapas. Now, around 26 or 2,700 years ago, the city really started to grow. Palaces of cut stone were built, and about 400 years after this, um, these were plastered with heavy coats of polished stucco and with uh, roofed with beams and mortar, and they were much nicer than the thatched-roof, mud-walled houses that sheltered the vast majority of the population. One tomb contained a man buried with a long lance with an obsidian blade, several unusual pottery vessels, and jade jewelry. Jade was specifically a symbol of high status in Mesoamerica. In addition, three human femurs were there, which had been worked into dispensers of sacred liquids, and were elaborately carved to portray mythological subjects. One shows a crocodile swimming through the water. So the art of Chiapa de Corzo was 
probably related to both Izapan and Cerro de la Mesas. Another shows a jaguar-masked person, very similar to the depictions found at Kamenoljuyu. And so, not only do we have a lot of social stratification going on at this time, but it's also there's clearly a lot of long-distance trade happening as well. Now, one of the mounds contained a palace structure, which was purposefully destroyed in a way that indicated it was eventually abandoned by its former rulers and was reoccupied shortly afterwards by new peoples. We know all of this because all of the pottery at the site was smashed and burned, and we don't know exactly what happened. But considering Chiapa de Corzo had contact with places like Camanoljuyu and the Central Valley of Oaxaca, perhaps the political and economic ties which linked these regional centers were not always peaceful. At any rate, let's move into the beautiful central valley of Oaxaca, where the oldest villages of the region are located within the valley bottom, a very desirous location for agricultural production, and starting around 3,400 years ago, a series of independent villages grew up with their own dependent hamlets. By 2,700 years before the present, people there started irrigating fields and digging wells, and this allowed for more intensive agriculture. A hundred years after that, one of the villages called San Magote had a population of around 1,300 people. With a formal leadership structure and public architecture, such as the, temp- such as the village's temple and marketplace, other structures date all the way back to about 3,500 years ago, and in some cases these are thought to be men's houses uh, based on the analysis of the artifacts found in them. Um, they are oriented towards the spring and fall equinoxes, and evidence shows that the rituals performed here may have involved human sacrifice and cannibalism. In total including San Magote, something like 75 or 85 different communities existed in Oaxaca. They didn't always get along. The temple of San Magote was burned around 2,700 years ago, but it was quickly replaced by a new temple. A carved stone monument was set into the threshold of this new building, and all who entered saw the sculpture which depicted a corpse from which the heart had been removed. Another site... Monte Alban, had a similar macabre style, and it's thought that perhaps the original settlers of that site were from San Magote, which was abandoned around 25 or 2600 years ago. Now, it's tough to speculate as to the exact cause of these ancient Mesoamerican wars, but if I could quote the classical Greek general Thucydides, who observed the Peloponnesian War, he stated that, quote, he believed that there were only three causes for war, fear, interest, and honor, unquote. So surely one of those or a mixture of multiple of them. Despite the internecine wars of the region, a major population expansion took place about 2,400 years ago for, and lasted about 200 years. 20 new, excuse me, 29 at the minimum new villages sprang up during this time, including Monte Alban, which would one day grow so large that it became the political capital of the entire valley. 
And it seems that many of these sites were made possible by the expansion of agriculture into less desirable zones, which happened with the aid of increasingly advanced agricultural techniques. Politically, the region was divided into at least seven small states at this time, each of which were governed by political centers that contained massive ceremonial and civic architecture. These growing agricultural communities spread from the valley bottoms into the Piedmont zones and then later into semi-arid areas by around 2200 years ago. And, and by that time, the entire valley of Oaxaca was a region of, of mass population and economic power within greater Mesoamerica. And this was basically the case for the central Mexican valley as well, which is a place with lots of ecological and cultural diversity. Now, much to the consternation of archaeologists everywhere, the people who lived there did not live in villages until about 3,000 years ago. But from that point, population growth accelerated. It has been estimated that perhaps 6,000 people lived in the valley of uh, central Mexico about 3,000 years ago. And just 250 years later, over 20,000 people called the valley home. Now, the southern lake was lined with communities and a number of different native ceramic traditions slowly evolved um, uh, alongside each other, as well as small figurines, the carved figurines that are, are very popular in Mesoamerica. And these two things, pottery and carved figures, give archaeologists a pretty good understanding of part of the culture of these people from the late formative all the way to Aztec and, in fact, early colonial times. The figurine styles blend into one another and succeed one another in the basin of Mexico, and they reflect not only artistic and an aesthetic continuity, but also a philosophical and religious continuity as well. Now, the growth of the basin of Mexico was pretty astonishing. By 3,400 years ago, clay platforms and formal architecture appeared at uh, the site of Tlatelolco. Later, at another site, Quiquilco, round platforms were constructed out of adobe. This didn't happen until about 2,500 years ago. These were soon replaced by larger stone platforms. Quiquilco began as a large began as a large town of people who subsisted on ditch irrigation. 200 years later, 2,300 years ago, Quiquilco was a large city with about 20,000 inhabitants who lived in housing compounds arranged in a grid pattern, and uh, it was the primary city of its time. Around that same time, a nearby city called Tlapacoya built a stone platform for ritual purposes, and really there were plenty of other important communities that grew up in the valley around the same time. Now, just so you know, a great deal of difference existed between the new cultures of these cities and the rural hamlets that surrounded and supported these metropolises. Now, the people in the rural parts of Mesoamerica mostly continued with their older religious practices. Um, and so there was a real cultural divide between the urban elite and the rural poor. Then, suddenly, and without warning, or at least in our narrative, 
Coquilca was destroyed in a volcanic eruption around 2250 years ago. The Teotihuacan Valley is north of the central valley of Mexico, and it was more lightly populated going back into the past. People here did not begin building public architecture until later than most other parts of Mesoamerica. And the central element to the switch in these lifestyles uh, seems to be warfare. Because the people who were living in the dispersed valley bottoms at the Teotihuacan Valley, uh, they began sometime around 2,500 years ago to instead start congregating on more defensible hilltop locations. At these sites, small projectile points are common, and each of which were fortified, by the way, and all contained a small pyramid as well. And at least one of those pyramids appears to have been purposefully destroyed. In total, the area was divided into six different warring states. These states began to expand after the destruction of Coquilco, which was probably another competitor. And after the volcanic eruption, it was also a source of refugee immigrants. Now, the Tlaxcala Puebla Valley is another part of Mesoamerica, which saw increased population growth during the late formative. People here were living in villages all the way back to about 3,700 years ago. They were small, thinly dispersed across the valley. But 500 years later, there were 19 settlements which dotted the valley. 300 years after that, 2,900 years ago, the valley contained 150 villages. Some of these began to grow larger and construct public architecture. Great advancements in Mesoamerican technology were made in irrigation during the following 400 years, including the use of pond reservoirs, dams, canals, and large-scale terracing. The intensification of agricultural production that went along with these new advanced techniques produced a further population boom, and by about 2,300 years ago, there were something like 300 towns, villages, and hamlets arranged in hierarchical political systems, which controlled various hydraulic systems of canals and ponds. In addition, the people of the region began using the Mesoamerican 260-day calendar. They also developed a writing system. From 2,500 years ago until 2,000 years before the present, the population and number of settlements finally seems to have maxed out, by which time some settlements had grown into cities, and perhaps 20 city-states ruled the valley, one of which was Cholula, which built its first pyramid during this time. Irrigation techniques continued to advance, including dikes and rivers and chiampas, or raised fields. Many of the deities, later known in Aztec times, first appeared during this period. By the end of the late formative, around 2,000 years ago, much of the valley began to empty out, though, and became ruralized as a response to the rise of Teotihuacan, a city that drew in great numbers of people from other towns and cities of the region and effectively depopulated its rival urban centers. Now that leaves us with Western Mexico, which Richard Adams, author of Prehistoric Mesoamerica, sums up as a place where, quote, there is no apparent unifying culture or natural pattern to it, unquote. Except perhaps that, quote, it is not like any other region of Mexico, unquote. 
So that really ought to give you a great idea as to the diversity of the place, and it's a little tougher to talk about West Mexico as a result. Now, added to this problem is the fact that there's been far less archaeological work done in West Mexico in comparison to other regions. So with that in mind, West Mexico has a peculiar hydrography, excuse me, and quite a few volcanoes, and this means that large drainage basins cover much of the surface of West Mexico, and and these are surrounded by volcanic features. Um, The landscape is dotted with composite volcanoes, over 800 cinder cones, and scoria mounts. There's a few major rivers that run through the otherwise mountainous landscape, though, uh, around the plateau, and they, they work their way towards the Pacific. These include the Rio Balsas on the south and the Rio San Pedro on the north, in between which are eight more rivers, most notably being the major interior river, the Rio Lerma. Now, culturally, these rivers are important because they have long provided access from the coasts to the interior plateau. The earliest cultures flourishing in the West uh, were along the coast, but in later times there was a shift to eastern dominance of the region. Now, at any rate, sedentary communities flourished along the West Mexican coast earlier than 5,000 years ago. But the earliest interior settlements don't appear until around 3,600 years ago. But to be honest, it doesn't seem clear, due to a lack of data, what sort of relationship between the early sites of West Mexico had with each other. What I can say is that West Mexico appears to have been largely isolated and free of interaction from most of the rest of of Mesoamerica, and especially from the Olmec. Perhaps West Mexico was what archaeologists would call an underdeveloped socio-political zone. Um, It is believed that the Olmec only dealt with and traded with other city-states, while most of West Mexico was comprised of a series of linked or independent villages, but there were no large cities. In fact, only two archaeological sites in West Mexico, Michoacan and Guanajuato, have evidence of contact and trade with the Olmecs, which is a level of trade that pales in comparison to the other regions of Mesoamerica. So needless to say, West Mexico established its very own distinctive cultural tradition, which first became evident to archaeologists around 3,600 years ago with the construction of family crypts. And these included a variety of chamber tomes, which continued to be constructed until about 1,800 years ago, uh, which coincides with an influx of highland Mesoamerican culture into the West. But But before that happened... The peoples of West Mexico had their own pottery styles, their own figurine and art styles, and their own distinctive types of elite burials. By 2,400 years before the present, a distinctive set of burial customs developed around the construction of shaft tomb burials, and these tombs could be anywhere from 3 to 18 meters deep. They contained uh, oval-shaped tombs, Uh, which were either directly off these deep shafts or connected to the shafts through tunnels. And the tombs tombs contained special mirrors, conch shell trumpets, 
and a lot of pottery to accompany most of the deceased. And this was a tradition that lasted for about a thousand years, becoming widespread around 2,600 years ago until about 1,600 years ago, which was about 150 years after direct contact with Teotihuacan, a city which will come to dominate vast regions of Mesoamerica. Now, in part because the shaft tombs of West Mexico contain so many artifacts like pottery and small figurines, West Mexico has been particularly, particularly hard hit by treasure collectors. Now, partially as a result of this fact, much of what we know about the West Mexicans in the late formative period comes from actually just one archaeological find in particular a place on the southern highlands of Nayarit where a remarkable set of ceramic models were found by archaeologists. These models are remarkable because they reflect everyday life in a detailed manner and, and in fact sometimes an amusing manner. Scenes include house models showing domestic life, ball games played in the ball courts, and village scenes of practically an infinite variety. Wars, Tragedies, celebrations, and life crises like funeral processions are shown. But so too were scenes from everyday life. We see villagers dancing and drinking at festivals. Family groups engaged in quiet conversation outside their homes. Women prepare meals for their families or give birth with the assistance of midwives. Groups of warriors defend hilltops and their villages against other groups of warriors. Bloodletting ceremonies involving the piercing of a person's cheek are frequent. Sometimes the bloodletting rod would actually run through several persons' cheek in a line. All of this provides pretty remarkable insights into the lives of these people. But one thing that is notably absent in West Mexico are examples of large civic architecture. Except for some small platform mounds in the centers of villages and some ball courts, um, you know, you don't really see the giant pyramids in West Mexico that you see in the rest of Mesoamerica. Housing, too, showed little difference between social ranks. And these are indications that elites in West Mexico during the late formative probably didn't really have access to the manpower necessary to build these construction projects. So in essence, the people of West Mexico lived in villages, but not large cities. Now, I mention all these different pre-Maya sites to show you that no matter what you may have heard about how Maya civilization simply appeared, like some flash of lightning, or even worse, given to them by aliens, the roots of Mesoamerican civilization are deeper than the classical period, both for the Maya and for their neighbors. Classical Maya culture truly began to develop much earlier than that. Now, okay, with that said, what we would consider classical Maya culture truly began to develop first in the Maya lowlands, a place of incredible ecological diversity, and that is even in comparison to the rest of Mesoamerica, which itself is just a, a place of vast ecological diversity all over the place. And on the north coast of the, of the Yucatan Peninsula, the annual rainfall averages about 50 centimeters. This varies across the region all the way 
to the southwestern lowlands, which gets an unbelievable 635 centimeters of annual average rainfall. So this brings considerable variation in vegetation, as you might imagine, and a considerable amount of the Yucatan is covered in tropical rainforest. In the northern lowlands, where water is more scarce, the Maya congregated near naturally occurring wells called sea notes, and later developed reservoir techniques to stretch their water supplies to the dry season, which is basically from January to May each year, June to December being the rainy season. Now, there are rivers in the southern lowlands which connect the region to the Gulf and the Caribbean coasts. But beyond that, vast stretches of the central Yucatan require walking to get through, parts of which are just filled with swampy terrain and they just aren't exactly easy to pass through. So this is a much more tedious process. So much so that many long-distance merchants in Mesoamerica preferred to go around the Yucatan by canoe. Now later... The Mayo made trade in the northern Yucatan a lot easier by digging canals and literally cutting through the swamps uh, with that said. Now, despite the difficulty of trade, the Yucatan Peninsula was important because it was an important region of salt production. Limestone was another local resource and was used for tools such as food grinders and the variety of forest, animal, Animals and birds and sea life provided a rich diet for early Maya farmers. The only material they needed that they didn't have direct access to was obsidian. But this was rather easily solved by trade. Uh, The peoples of the highlands of Guatemala had plenty, and while obsidian was extremely important for use in cutting tools and weapons, it lasted a pretty long time, and relatively little was actually needed in comparison to most other trade goods. So all in all, you could say that life in the Maya lowlands was pretty sweet during the early years, with the sole exception that, even under good conditions, it would take about two weeks of time to transport any goods from the coast into much of the Yucatan interior. They could have used some Amazon. There are basic conditions. These are the basic conditions upon which the foundations of Maya civilization rested. From about 5,500 years before the present which was when the people of this region began to cultivate maize and manioc, until about 3,200 years before the present, at which time the earliest agricultural villages began to develop. Richard Adams, who is the author of Prehistoric Mesoamerica, is a little dry, but nevertheless, he is also capable of great lines on occasion, and he has this to say about the inauspicious beginnings of the early Maya farmers stating plainly that the Maya were, quote, cultural descendants of previous swamp-oriented people, unquote. I think that's funny. These people lived in small, isolated villages that probably numbered less than 100 people each. The region was a backwater, and the people who lived in the Yucatan had no close links to the early to the great early events of Mesoamerican history, like the Olmec religious movement and their trading sphere. But from about 3,100 years ago to about 2,600 years ago, a slow, uneven population growth started to occur in the region. And this resulted in a proliferation of more of these small farming communities all over the peninsula. 
Now, about 2,600 years ago, this slow, erratic growth suddenly became an explosion. Now, archaeologists aren't even exactly sure why this happened. One hypothesis, though, is that the people began to realize that larger families were economically advantageous in farming. But no matter the cause, the Yucatan was quickly filling up with more and more villages. Presumably, these were colonies from older communities, since very similar potteries were made and used all over the lowlands during this occupation. These people also made small figurines. These mostly represented human females and were presumably represented, uh, representing religious ideals about fertility. And it's also apparent that magic mushrooms were a very important part of Maya life. Mushroom-shaped pots are pretty common, and hallucinogenic mushrooms are common in the region as well and are still used by shamans today as aids to communicate with supernatural entities, as aids with divination, and as part of curing ceremonies. Now, these people lived in houses that were made of poles and with thatched material, And when the population started to rise, ceremonial buildings also began to develop. These were elevated structures with more sophisticated features and served as centers of worship, as well as likely trade centers. The people here farmed with slash-and-burn agriculture and had a pretty uniform culture from village to village. Now, later, Maya culture splits into regional differences. But early on, it's just very similar all across the Yucatan. No. Maya culture was subsequently transformed over a period of about 500 years from a more or less egalitarian village-centered society into one oriented around the building of these formal urban centers, which contained elite residents who presided over a society of ranked classes. These changes occurred in a number of different ways, the most important of which was the way in which the Maya dramatically modified their landscape and environment. And by the time of Jesus of Nazareth, the forests of the Yucatan were largely cleared. The waterways transformed and the land leveled. Villages were virtually everywhere. These changes took place over time, so they weren't particularly noticeable to the Maya. But just so you know, It took about 50 small trees to construct a standard Maya home. And so a village of, say, 5,000 people, which would require about 1,000 homes, required about 50,000 small trees. Now, simultaneously, the population was becoming more dense in response to new agricultural techniques like swamp drainage and other reclamation techniques, as well as hillside terracing. Kolha, a site in northern Belize, became a production center that produced thousands of high-quality, standardized stone tools, which were used in wetlands cultivation for the region. And as a result of this population growth, many of the larger villages started erecting more and more elaborate architecture, like pyramids of cut stone masonry. The largest early center in northwestern Yucatan was Comchen, It had a population of about 3,000 people who lived around a center formed by five large platforms with buildings constructed on top of the platforms, and these, these were done in concentric zones and all were connected by a causeway. 
It appears that these people also controlled the nearby salt flats, which enabled them to connect into the canoe-based trade which was going around the Yucatan Peninsula. Another site, Edzna, is perhaps even more impressive. Edzna had a canal system that is 12, about 12 kilometers or seven and a half miles long. Irrigated fields were created alongside the canal. Extensions were eventually made to the north to bring more land into cultivation. The canal system was purposefully designed, actually, in a way that it created part of a fortress. And the canal, in connection with public architecture and raised causeway, made for an impressive, uh, immense defense system. Now, the population necessary for such social organization to build, maintain, and operate such a system must have been tremendous and included more people than lived in, inside the city. Now, along the Gulf Coast is the site of Champoton, which was on the Champoton River and near the coast. It is also a very favorable site for trade, and as such, the village was transformed into a city and a port around 2,500 years ago. And with that said, a drought occurred there about 150 years later, and as a result, Champoton was basically put out of business, so things didn't always work out for these new cities, just so you know. Now, the earliest, um, or excuse me, the largest early Maya site was in the interior, though. It's named El Mirador. It was a city of thousands of people, controlled by an elite class, which controlled a large and complex site full of terraces and temples, and surrounded by an embankment nearly a mile long, 20 meters high, excuse me, 20 meters wide, and 6 meters high. The embankment was capped off by much taller sculptures that depict beings decorated in jaguar masks and disguises. El, El Mirador was a massive city. And it was connected to other centers by a radiating, radiating set of causeways that reached out as far as 14 miles. Another site in the central Yucatan was Bacan, which contained 14 large platforms, uh, excuse me, a large platform 14 meters high, I cannot read my own notes, and a number of smaller buildings with masonry and stucco platforms, and walls with thatched roofs were on top of this platform mound. Now, afterwards, a fortification was built around this and some other buildings. The defensive works consisted of a dry moat with earth ramparts on the inside. Now, further south of Dix was Wahaktun, where a pyramid decorated with the heads of serpents and jaguars was. Twelve miles south of Wahaktun was Tikal, where important people were buried in the formal masonry chambers within platforms. One deceased was buried with a jade mask with inlaid shell teeth amongst plenty of pottery and other items. An early temple from Tikal was painted with a number of human figures dressed in feathers and costumes, and we don't know much about how these people lived, but there are more than enough fragments of carved stone to indicate that at least some, if not many, of the inhabitants were spending time experimenting with culture. I mean, excuse me, with sculpture. Tikal was fortified on both the north and south, with about 25 miles of dry moats and ramparts. Now, 90 miles south of Tikal on the Paisión River was another city, today known as the Altar de Sacrificios, where three temples and numerous residential structures were grouped around a plaza and a tomb. The site was very large for its time and was close to another site called Ceros, an early Maya port. 
uh, which was, Seros was complete with a canoe basin and a jetty, as well as raised fields and a number of pyramidal structures that were decorated with images of the sun god. It is believed here that Maya rulers were identifying themselves with the jaguar and the sun, which was thought to transform into a jaguar at night when it descended into the Maya underworld. Now, the direct evidence of elaborate buildings and some surviving ritual paraphernalia let us know that a formalized religion existed in the Yucatan during this uh, period of Maya civilization. But to be honest, we don't know a whole lot about these religious practices beyond their existence. I mean, for example, one of the big mysteries is why did they exist? Well, we don't know exactly. But presumably, they were to deal with the universal human problems like life crises, death, political community matters, the worries of nervous farmers, and a desire to foresee the future. And really, all of those factors mixed together in some formula to create early Maya religion. Now, with that said, Maya civilization began before the early classical period, which our calendar translates to about 150 to 250 A.D., um, and but that was its truly great initial fluorescence. That is the classical period. During this time, Maya writing and mathematical systems were developed and were applied to problems of time and astronomy, and that pro- and to produce a formal set of calendars. By 1950 years ago. Both ceremonial centers with small populations and true cities existed on the Yucatan, and these were controlled by elite families. Maya culture also began to divide into at least five regional uh, cultural variants. The northern and central Yucateca were the two zones least affected by outside influence. Uh, the central Petén is the third. Uh, the centers near the Paisan River in the fourth is the fourth, and northern Bel- Belize, which is perhaps the most cosmopolitan uh, area of Maya centers, um, and linked with the north by canoe trade, filled out the five regions of Maya culture. Now, the collapse of Maya civilization has filled books and documentaries and ancient aliens episodes to no end. But it's actually much easier to understand the fall of Maya civilization than the rise of Maya civilization, or really any civilization for that matter. You see, as Richard Adams writes, we have seen and have recorded the catastrophes and disasters that can overtake human communities. But no records or eyewitness accounts are available on the circumstances leading to the rise of any of the world's great pre-industrial centers. Now, It has been hypothesized that trade was a stimulus to the rise of Maya elites and that the need for salt, obsidian, basalt, and other materials led the Maya to elaborate social organization. But it's likely that no single factor alone is responsible for the birth of the Maya, if for no other reason than it took quite some time for these structures to develop. You see, the transformation from village to state occurred in several stages. Besides trade, population growth uh, alone, uh, uh, through more advanced agricultural techniques, 
probably also contributed to a, a great deal to the, uh, to the growing hierarchical social structure. And as Maya elite developed, it, they did so alongside a new religious system, which emphasized ancestor worship and over time, the divine nature of their leaders and their genealogies. Maya nobility reinforced their status with rare and valuable items from throughout Mesoamerica, including jade, obsidian, and cacao. The nobility controlled the Maya population to the extent that temples were built through the efforts of the community. So too were swamps drained, jetties built at ports, and fortifications constructed for protection. And these fortifications were necessary because early Maya elites competed and went to war with each other regularly. Six major fortresses at least existed in the Maya lowlands. One, one at Tikal, another at Bacan, and, and the fortresses varied in size. Some were small and designed to just protect a garrison of fighting men, but others could be gigantic and protected entire cities. So warfare was pretty common. Now, before we move on from the late formative and go into detail on the history of the Maya, I can sum up by saying that in nearly all regions of Mesoamerica before about 1850 years ago, economic centers, elite classes, administrative centers, true cities, and city-states existed. Now, some places were certainly more rural than urban, West Mexico in particular, And despite the earlier disappearance of Olmec culture, social complexity was still on the rise in Mesoamerica, even in places once considered backwater regions. And one of these backwater regions, the Maya lowlands, was just about to explode into one of the most incredible flourishes of civilization the world has ever seen. Maya civilization developed slowly over time. It was mostly an elite class phenomenon. The vast majority of Maya people did not change their beliefs very much from 1900 years ago to about 1150 years ago, which is what archaeologists deem the the classical period. Within Maya civilization, there were a number of variations, so we're going to go into that, as well as the number of serious crises that took place in Maya history that led to dramatic and drastic changes within Maya society. But first things first. Throughout the history of the Maya, there are some common themes. And the most important one of these is how these people fed themselves. So before we get into regional specifics or general history, let's talk just a bit about how the Maya farmed. Now, for thousands of years, the Maya practiced a shifting, uh, or what's called swidden cultivation. But population growth eventually required more intensive forms of agriculture. Now, swidden cultivation involves farming a patch of jungle by clearing and burning off the forest before the crops are planted in the ashes. And this happens at the beginning of the rainy season. Um, Fields need to regenerate after planting, Uh, And that process requires about 10 years. So a lot of land would be locked up in fallow ground. In fact, something like four to eight times the amount of land in actual cultivation was locked up in fallow land. But even doing this, the farmers of the Yucatan were able to support something like 
maybe 150 to 200 people per square mile with this system of agriculture. Sloping plots of land with topsoil and forest were preferred for a number of reasons, not the least of which was drainage. Land was cleared during the dry season from January to May, and that was an arduous process of chopping down trees and bushes, dealing with snakes, thorns, poisonous plants, and whatever other hazards might be in store. Now, sometimes a man's friends and family might help him do this task, but mostly it was a solitary endeavor, and let me tell you, I can relate. I've done some controlled burns when I worked as a park ranger, and I can assure you, Nobody is very much interested in helping you do that sort of work if for no other reason than smoke keeps getting in their eyes. It is best to wait for a windless day to avoid an out-of-control forest fire. And after burning and smoldering for several days, the farmer is left with a reduced biomass, quite useful as nutrients for his domesticated plant seeds. Of course, when to plant is perhaps the most important decision of them all. If you're a farmer, anyway, because if the farmer plants his plants too soon uh, and before the rains come, birds are just going to eat his seeds. But if he waits too late, the seed might get too much water and rot or just be washed out of the ground. The Maya farmer made his hole in the ashes of the burned field with a sharpened stick. He dropped a few kernels in and swiped his foot across the hole to cover it back up. Once his crops germinate, he didn't actually need to do a whole lot of additional work, except for occasionally weed it. But that was just the beginning of the farmer's anxiety. The Maya farmer, like all pre-modern agriculturalists, worried that hail might lurk in the clouds, ready to destroy his crops. Powerful winds might even be enough to destroy or decimate a crop of young corn plants, let alone an actual hurricane. Late rains, insects, birds, and other wild animals were an ever-present menace. The small Yucatec deer multiply in response to cornfields being cleared from the jungle, and if you are not aware, deer are very fond of corn. Now, deer do provide opportunity as well as obstacle, however. You see, the increased numbers of the mammals meant that hunters were able to provide more protein for their farmers. And in fact, in some places, deer may have even been partially domesticated in the Yucatan. The later Spanish accounts mention tame deer found in Maya villages of the 16th century. Now, in addition to corn, Maya farmers planted beans, squash, and pumpkins in large quantities, as well as smaller gardens of tomatoes, chili peppers, and other vegetables like whisquil, which I am actually not familiar with personally, but it looks like a spiny squash. In addition, a number of trees like avocados, cacao, and vanilla were planted, and so too were various roots like manioc and yucca. Yucca. <laughs> Along the coast, marine resources were also quite important. Large numbers of shell and fish bone middens exist near the shore of the Yucatan Peninsula. Now, in addition to the ancient types of Swidden agriculture, Maya farmers constructed their own raised fields when sloping surfaces weren't enough supply. They also dug drainage canals with sluice gates and other water control devices. The Maya terraced thousands of square miles of land for agriculture in this manner, which indicates a heavy investment in labor, 
planning, and materials, which would all be needed for such a major modification of the landscape. And this was a process that continued throughout the classical period. So, uh, from about 1900 years ago to about 1150 years ago, to repeat myself. Now, the real economic engine for the Maya lowlands, though, was the gigantic number of projects in wetlands development. Something like 250,000 square kilometers of wetlands were drained and developed. In fact, the largest Maya cities were located on the largest swamps of the Yucatan. These drainage projects were done in places like Calakmul and Tikal, and were done alongside the construction of well-designed and constantly improved water reservoirs. For the Maya elite, the construction of these reservoirs had a dual benefit in that once they were established, urban populations became dependent upon them and whoever controlled such places. Now, the majority of Maya families lived on top of house mounds. This was done to escape flooding. These were small platforms of clay, earth, and stone, and which provided the support structure for domestic housing. On top of these platforms were small thatched roof houses made of poles and wattled with clay. Now, the population density of the Yucatan was tremendous. It peaked in the late classic. In the late formative, the Maya people had a population density of roughly 104 people per square mile in the north, and about three times that in the south, about 312 people per square, 312 people per square mile. Um, in the early classic, this population growth continued. Tikal is estimated to have a population of 25,000 in the year 450 of our calendar. The highly populated center of the Yucatan Peninsula, um, the, the center of the Yucatan Peninsula, is believed to hold approximately 450 people per square kilometer, um, which translates into 1,166 per square mile. By the year 750, more than 10,000 square kilometers of hillsides were terraced and walls. And making a a really, really accurate for the Maya population at the late at the late Classic period just isn't possible. But archaeologists have stated that no fewer than nine million, and perhaps as many as fourteen million Maya lived throughout the Yucatan at this time. But regardless of this success, and frankly, one might argue because of this success, the Maya lived a precarious existence. And after all this spectacular growth, a catastrophic demographic collapse followed in the 9th century. Now, that is hardly to say that the Maya disappeared. In fact, about 10 million Maya people live today, making them the largest group of indigenous people in North America. Now, Maya cities varied in size, but all of them had the following architecture, and those were temples, palaces, ball courts, raised road systems, and water reservoirs. Now, many had fortifications, but not all did. Now, these buildings were made of cut limestone, which was then covered with a stucco plaster, which protected them from the rains and smoothed out lines and angles. And uh, So, in their day, Maya buildings had a more flowing and curving look to them than, than the ruins of them appear to us today. Maya temples were built on elevated platforms, which contained tomb burials. 
The temple itself was quite small in compared to the platforms, and these small temples were further filled in with benches and altars, which cramped the space inside. These were deliberately small, though, because only a small number of the Maya nobility were allowed inside of them. Carved stone stelae are often found on this on the temple platforms as well. These were historical monuments that recorded the exploits of Maya rulers, their genealogies, and justification for political power. And I, I should say that the stella, the stelae were, um, should be, I guess I should add that to a, another form of Maya, specifically Maya architecture. Um, but at any rate, that's what they were, was uh, historical monuments. Now, Maya palaces, uh, unlike Maya temples, were not nearly as homogeneous. They were all multiple room and sometimes multi-story buildings, but had a near endless variety of ground plans. Some were luxurious residences complete with separate servant quarters. Others were designed to serve for purposes of government administrations, and perhaps relatedly, uh, some consist of nothing more than what appear to be important warehouses, probably storing weaponry or food or other closely guarded uh, possessions. Some palaces had additional luxurious features like interior drainage systems for showers and steam baths. Now, with that said, about 1% of the Maya population lived in these places. So at Oaxacun, for example, which was a medium-sized city of around uh, eighteen or 19,000 people, oh, maybe 180 or 190 people resided in the palaces. And one of the big takeaways I I, I hope I'm impressing upon you, if you're not already aware, was that trade was wicked important in the pre-Columbian Americas. Most people in Maya societies traded regularly within a regional system. Many smaller Maya communities specialized in manufacturing one or another items, like pottery making, which was integral to trade. Textiles, pottery, chert, and obsidian tools, feathers, food and drink, salt, wooden artifacts, other raw materials, and and countless other items circulated throughout the Maya economy in classic times. But since Maya trade was focused in cities where an aristocratic elite ruled, Maya economies functioned as a mixture of free markets and class-based redistribution, a, a situation quite similar to the feudal economies of Europe. Maya cities contained paved zones associated with large buildings that were probably markets. Likewise, warehouses, some of which were palatial and others were were more common, were identified in many uh, Maya cities as well. Tikal even had a mall. Yes, you heard me right, a shopping mall, complete with permanent stall areas. These were grouped into a a rectangle. Um, Undoubtedly, the reason for this grouping was to better suit your shopping needs. Now, with that said, open spaces weren't only used for markets. Public ceremonies often took place in these sorts of areas as well, though some Maya sites contained separate amphitheaters, um, which each had a capacity, uh, the Mayan amphitheaters did, of about 8,000 people. Um, Further, these open places were also probably used as additional living space in times of need or in times of guests. For example, important visiting dignitaries would be housed in palaces, but their many retainers or other visitors to Maya towns would encamp in open spaces like marketplaces or amphitheaters. And in times of crises, 
Farmers from the surrounding countryside or refugees from elsewhere might be located in these open plazas. Now, another important feature of Maya cities were the elevated roads and causeways which connected important buildings to one another, as well as connected political capitals to their nearby vassal towns and cities. These roads were called saches, and they were elevated up to four and a half meters above the ground and were up to 18 meters wide. They were constructed with a core of dirt and rubble with cut stone on the outside, and that's what gave them a finished appearance. Drainage lines were cut into these roads, roads and they were coated with plaster. Now, Kalakmul was connected by at least seven saches to its various suburbs and subordinate centers, and, and another sache connected Kalakmul all the way to Mirador, which was something like 150 kilometers away. Now, these roads served obvious commercial purposes, but their sheer size, 18 meters wide, indicates that Saches also had a military purpose. Frankly, the only reason you'd need a walkway 60 feet across is so you can march your legions up and down it. Now, further, it can't be discounted that Saches served other political and religious purposes as well, since they gave Maya elites essentially the right of way through otherwise crowded urban landscapes. Further, since they were kept so clear and coated in white plaster, they shone in the moonlight and made travel by night far easier. No end of porters, couriers, military groups, and people traveling for all sorts of purposes would have very much enjoyed using these roadways. Now, in most Maya cities, the ultimate refuge in war was the chief temple of the town because of the height and steepness of the pyramid on which Maya temples uh, sat. The weapon systems of this time, spears, spear throwers, rocks, slings, bows and arrows, etc., made such heights very advantageous for defenders. In addition, Maya buildings were constructed so that they interlocked with one another, so defenders could easily lend each other mutual support from building to building. Now, this is generally true of all Mesoamerican cities, mind you, but the Maya in particular built more fortifications than any other Mesoamerican group. Fortresses and moats, both dry and filled with water, presumably in, in the moats of the water, alligators, maybe even sharks. Well, that's all speculation on my part, of course. The sharks, that is. There are definitely alligators in Guatemala. Oh, who knows? Perhaps in these moats was even where the mines hid their ancient aliens. Needless to say, stone fortresses and citadels dotted the landscape of the Yucatan. Now, another piece of formal architecture important to Maya cities were ball courts. Maya athletes played a ball game in these courts with a solid rubber with a solid rubber ball, and the courts appear frequently at both large and small sites. Now, the game itself varied in style and rules from place to place and through time. And in fact, a bewildering variety of different kinds of ball courts were constructed in different places and in different times all over Mesoamerica. But generally speaking, players attempted to score by getting the ball to pass through a small hoop without using their hands or feet. So it's sort of like a mixture of soccer and basketball, only, say, much harder than, you know, say, the Olympic sport of handball, which is also sort of like a mixture of soccer and basketball. Kind of fun to watch. 
In conquest period Mexico, the ball game was played both recreationally and for purposes of divination. Now, we don't really know for sure if that translates throughout time, but uh, you know, Maya ball courts from the classical period are, are distinct and different enough from later constructed ball courts that the game might have been radically different. Um, to give an example, the ball games played in, 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 or in the eastern woodlands of North America, lacrosse and tole, tole is basically a version of lacrosse with two sticks instead of one, were not used for divination. They weren't even used really recreationally. Instead, they were called the little brother of war. And intense contests between opposing teams played a game that could end up with upwards of dozens of crippled combatants, maybe even a few dead players. But this was how you could award a war in some cases, avoid a war. So maybe the Maya played the ball game in, in that sort of a fashion. Some archaeologists actually specifically argue that this was the case for the Maya. Really, the only thing that we can say for sure is that the game was played by Maya elites, and it was very popular. Informal ball carts are even built to this day, and with a few stones and lines drawn in the dirt by descendants of the Maya who live on the west coast of Mexico and, and, and play the ball game. One last piece of Maya urban architecture, though, I want to cover are the reservoirs, the water reservoirs they built. Now, much of the Yucatan Peninsula is a massive, porous piece of limestone with relatively little topsoil over it. So despite the fact that many Maya sites were located in a tropical forest, water could be tough to come by. There is very little permanent groundwater in the form of lakes, ponds, or streams because most water simply goes right through the topsoil and then right through the porous limestone into the water table below. In the north, this was solved by the construction of underground storage containers called choltoons. These were bell-shaped, plastered, and dug into the bedrock and were capable of holding as much as 5,000 gallons of water. Tikal contained enough reservoirs to hold about 50 million gallons of water, a necessity considering the population of Tikal was something like 62,000 people. That's enough water so that even during a long dry season of 120 days, there would be enough water stored for Tikal's population that each person could have 38 liters per day after accounting for a 10% loss in evaporation. Yay, math. Now, we know an awful lot about Maya cities. We know a little less about their political structure. However, that isn't to say we know nothing. One relatively easy way of figuring out the importance of Maya communities between each other is to simply rank the cities by size and by counting the major courtyards of architecture in each one. Tikal has 85 courtyards of architecture. Kalakmul had close to 60. Now, these are the two largest Maya cities known, each estimated at having well over 50,000 people living in them. On the next level of size are sites of about 50 courtyards, such as Naranjo and Rio Azul. And after that, Oaxactun, Palenque, Copan, and Yaxchilan, and a number of others all had between 20 and 30 courtyards. Now, Tikal and Calakmul are about 100 kilometers apart. Each was surrounded by a number of smaller cities, ranging down to sites that had only one courtyard of formal architecture. 
There was also a buffer zone between Tikal and Kalakmul, which was about 20 kilometers in width and about 80 kilometers long, where no urban centers were found. Wahaktun, with 21 courtyards and about 19 kilometers distance apart from Tikal, is thus assumed to be a subordinate city of Tikal, which is four times as large as Wahaktun. Now, a person can reasonably cover perhaps 40 kilometers in a day by foot or canoe. Now, this distance for my American friends is about 25 miles. And that is about to be, is believed to be the, the, the size, or the radius, I, suppose, I should say, of most uh, Maya s- states. The first of which was probably the giant city of El Mirador. Now, it is believed that for most of the classic period, the period, excuse me, the Maya were politically divided into eight different states. Now, with that said, there's a lot more variation in Maya urban centers besides size. Like, I mean, for example, you know, on the one hand, you've got the capital of Koba, which is well as a large city like Tikal or Kalakmul. It was zoned in a concentric manner. Uh, the saches or roads of Koba ran to important parts of the city uh, and, and to other administrative centers. And so Koba, for example, functioned very much like what we've discussed so far. So too did the political capital of Yaxchilan. Um, but Yaxchilan also contains the remnants of a bridge which connected two sides of the city, which crossed a horseshoe bend in the river upon which it rested. And this feature, a Maya city existed on both sides of a river, is unique to Yaxchilan. The site of Rio Azul had unique properties. It contained quite a bit of public architecture and was inhabited by a set of noble families who had military duties. The location of the city on a river allowed for rainy season canoe traffic, which went to the Caribbean. But it seems that the total population of of Rio Azul was tiny in comparison to other Maya sites of an equivalent size. Maybe only five or 6,000 people lived there, far fewer than would have been required for the construction of such a site. The crews who constructed Rio Azul must have been imported from the nearby capital of Tikal. And smaller sites than Rio Azul existed within Tikal's orbit, like administrative centers of local elites who reported to Tikal's rulers. Smaller still is the site of Ulantan, which consisted of a single palace, probably the residence of an exiled royal or other noble family member. Now, Many of the medium-sized administrative centers were surrounded by palatial residences in the surrounding countryside, rural manor homes for the nobility. Some sites appear to have been noble country estates, which actually just started growing in population enough that they, in fact, became small towns on their own. Now, Copan was the capital of an isolated Maya state on the southeastern Yucatan and was relatively small. But it contained an enormous amount of sculptured art. The site dominated its small region and developed its own unique features. Country palaces were linked to the city by saches, and the palaces themselves were embellished with sculptures, proclaiming their various families' histories and dynastic rule, and linking them to the temples and palaces within Copan. Since Maya text has been translated... It is known that the founder of one Copan dynasty came from Tikal in the year 426 AD, 
he displaced the previous line of rulers. This same person, known to us today as Copan Ruler One, to use his archaeological name, conquered the nearby city of Quirigua, a smaller center nearby Copan later that same year. So, uh, you know, there's all sorts of different variations going on. And anyway, moving on, uh, let's discuss the sacred almanac of the Maya. Now, two calendrical cycles dominated the lives of the Maya and, and basically all Mesoamericans. The shorter of the two cycles consisted of six, uh, 260 days and was probably more ancient than the other. This calendar consisted of 20 named days, which were combined with 13 numbers, a process which would repeat after 260 days. The calendar is known as Tzolkin to us today, though that is the Aztec name for it. We actually don't know what the Maya called it. Each day was symbolized as a concept. So like the second day was wind. Now, the sacred almanac had a great significance for all people of Mesoamerican society. Divination was carried out with the help of the calendar. Uh, since each of the 260 days were associated with different omens and gods, the days themselves were thought of as having lives all their own and were themselves divine beings. The Maya metaphorically conceived of time in this way as showing gods carrying their days around as one might carry a heavy load. This was a belief shared by all Mesoamericans, and it led to a fundamentally different understanding of time than most of us have today where we see time as an arrow. It goes in one direction, from long ago, into the present, and from there, into the future. That is not how Mesoamericans saw time. Instead, they envisioned it as a cyclical process, one that included multiple creations and destructions. Different feasts and celebrations were associated with different days in the 260-day sacred calendar. And so these moved throughout the year. They occurred at different times um, uh, than the other calendar, which the Mayans used. So, so Maya holidays actually functioned kind of – a lot of Maya holidays, I should say, functioned like, like, say, the Christian holiday of Easter in that the exact date that they occurred on shifted from year to year. Now – and one last thing I should mention, it's believed uh, the 260, 260 days is about the time it takes uh, for a pregnancy uh, to, to develop uh, into birth. And so it's thought that perhaps those prob things are probably related. Now, at any rate, there was also another calendar, the 365-day calendar, which was also equally widespread in Mesoamerica. This was arranged in the form of 18 named months each with 20 days, which, mind you, is only 360 days. So the calendar also had a short five-day period added to the end of each year. Excuse me. And the Maya called this amount of time a tropical year. So the days of the tropical year were numbered and called by their month's name, similarly to our own calendar. Now these two calendars were combined. So a particular day among the Maya would have both a sacred calendar name and an astronomical, astronomical, or what they would call a tropical name. And since 260 does not divide into 365, the repetition of any single combination of days came about only once every 18,980 days, or once every 52 years. And we're going to keep that number in mind, because it's going to become very important to our story soon enough. 
Once every 52 years, the calendar resets. Got it. Okay. Now, technically, the classical Maya, whom we are supposedly discussing, did not really invent these calendars. They date back to the late formative cultures we were discussing at the beginning of this episode and a bit at the, in episode 2.1 with the Olmec. And, and we're going to come back to this calendar because, like I said, 52 years is a very important period of time in Mesoamerica. But for now, let's stick to the Maya, who had a third calendar. And that was unique to themselves, making them and a few other nearby Mesoamerican cultures who adopted some Maya traits the only people in the world to develop a third calendar which was so mathematically precise that it let them count time accurately over an exceedingly long period of time. Now, we know of this mathematical marvel as the long count, and it enabled the Maya to accurately tell time for basically all of infinity. Now, I'm terrible at math, and as I look at my notes and the text here I'm reviewing, it, it is clear to me that I am practically incapable of explaining the intricacies of exactly how the long count calendar of Maya mathematics works. But the short version is that the Mayas used this calendar to divide long periods of time into eras called baktuns, or periods of time which were about 400 years. The Maya calendar began with the date of, 30 in our calendar, 3113 BC, which in all honesty they probably just determined at some point of their mythology at some point in a similar way to say the early Christian church leaders had a conference and simply made a decision about the date of Jesus' birth. Now at any rate, most Maya historical dates exist from between the 8th to the 10th Bakhtun, so a few... 7th Bakhtun date inscriptions have been found from Olmec sites, as well as at the early Maya sites of Izapa and Kaminaljuyu. Now, what the Long Count calendar did for the Maya, why they used, why they, why did they need to t- count time so well? Well, what that let them do was track planets, comets, eclipses, and all other sorts of astronomical phenomena. So that's why it was important to them. Now, the Maya also developed a complex writing system, and they did so perhaps earlier than anywhere else in Mesoamerica, though I should be clear that earlier writing systems did evolve in the Oaxaca region, and it's possible that we just don't understand how those writing systems function enough to say that they were similarly complex. Now, I give that qualifier specifically because it was once also believed that the Maya language was relatively simple, consisting of hieroglyphics with simple meanings. But thanks to people much smarter than I am, it is clear that today Maya writing was very complicated. It was used to record genealogical information about aristocratic families, including births and deaths of rulers and other dynastic affairs such as marriages and other important historical events. But it's also clear that the Maya placed these events in their own unique worldview as events that occurred in the context of unending cycles of time. Now, the story of how Maya script was deciphered is a well-documented one. And I'm not going to get into all of that right here. But I will say that through the dedicated work of a number of talented individuals, we have a profound understanding of Maya hieroglyphic script. And it was quite advanced. So with that said... 
What I'm about to tell you is, in the words of Richard Adams, the author of Prehistoric Mesoamerica, quote, highly technical, abstruse, and increasingly inaccessible to the non-specialist, unquote. Perfect. Well, I'm going to try my best. Now, we know that Maya script was very complex because it contained logograms. Now, a logogram, uh, an example of a logogram in English is ing, for example, as in talking or recording or listening. Another feature of Maya language was repetition. For example, couplets were very common in Maya text and speech. A Maya might say, quote, there was then no sickness. They had then no aching bones, unquote. Probably not in English. Another frequently used feature of Maya language were puns. Metaphor in general was important to Maya writers. For example, the use of the fish head hieroglyphic means the word zak, a mythical fish or a shark of some sort. But zak also means to count in the Maya language. Now, anyway, speaking of counting, another accomplishment of the Maya was the independent invention of zero. Maya mathematics was very practical. Numbers were written in rows to distinguish the place. There's ones, tens, hundreds, etc., just like our number system. Um, at any rate, though, the main difference, other than the symbols themselves, was that the Maya wrote their numbers in vertical rows rather than horizontal rows, left to right, like we use. Maya numbers were read top to bottom. Now, that doesn't mean we should view the Maya as some sort of pre-modern, uber-scientific community. Without a doubt, the Maya were also a deeply religious people, and it is impossible to separate their scientific knowledge from their religious knowledge. These were one and the same. Science as we think of it did not exist in Maya society. Now, for example, the Maya learned so much about astronomy that they were able to predict eclipses. Simultaneously, they used this information to create their own form of astrology, the literal art of predicting the future from the stars. The sky itself was part of the Maya spiritual world. To the Maya, the Milky Way was a road of dead souls which led to the underworld. So, from all of this information, we get at least a passing glance at Maya society. Now, And there have been many hypotheses put forward over the years on how it operated. The most traditional being that Maya philosopher kings altruistically and humanely led the grateful Maya masses. Of course, this doesn't sound very realistic to us, does it? Likewise, the idea has been posited that Maya kings were believed by Maya people to have contained the power to balance the divine forces which worked upon the world. And under this hypothesis, it was stated that Maya cities weren't cities at all, but instead were ceremonial stages constructed for the enactment of divine dramas. Now, there is clear evidence of blood sacrifice and human sacrifice, but to say that Maya cities weren't cities, but were instead were just giant temples, purely religious in function, it seems like a pretty wild theory. And frankly, that idea was put forward. Both of those ideas were put forward, in fact, before we understood as much about the Maya as we do today. In fact, once Maya language was deciphered, historians and archaeologists started to read the historical texts left by the Maya. And Maya texts paint a far more understandable and realistic picture of Maya society and its leadership. And of course, by more realistic and more understandable, I mean 
a less benign leadership, which conducted regular warfare against their enemies and who lived in a far more secular fashion than previously believed. Now, Maya kinship structure was patrilineal. Most of the population lived in clusters of houses, which were probably the residences of married sons and their families living near their elderly parents. In addition, these housing groups might contain unrelated people, and in the case of a noble household, this could be quite a lot of unrelated people. A local noble controlled the land these people used, and so perhaps it might be better to think of these groups of houses like a clan or a lineage, uh, or uh, more like a clan than a lineage, excuse me. At Tikal, even people on the lower levels of society built small shrines and mausoleums to the dead members of their lineages, and so it's pretty apparent that ancestor reverence, if not outright ancestor worship, was an important feature for all members of Maya society from top to bottom. Art depicting historical events is pretty common in the form of murals on tall buildings, and this, these served as propaganda, which, in addition to looking pretty, legitimized Maya rulers, glorified the state, and emphasized the importance of local temples, essentially functioning as medieval billboards. Maya society in general became increasingly aristocratic over time, and it functioned kind of like a pyramid, with a hereditary aristocracy on top. Within that aristocracy, there was a careful gradation of rank, and when Maya culture formed, uh, on the other hand, though, councils of lineage heads were the principal governing bodies. Over time, the heads of these lineages, or some of them anyway, were able to parlay their advantages into a hereditary superior status, which over time probably led to this ancestor worship and ultimately to the claim of divine descent by the Maya elite. Now, these elites spent a good amount of time going to war, as I mentioned, like elites are prone to do. But in all likelihood, the majority of their time and energy must have been taken up by the constant construction, demolition, and refurbishment of residences, funerary monuments, saches, stelae, and other urban structures. Even if the Maya elites did not participate directly in the actual construction themselves, just the planning and management of these projects alone must have taken up quite a bit of time and energy for the upper class. Now, Below the class of aristocratic professional rulers, there were several layers of classes defined by occupation. One or two levels of bureaucrats existed. The administration and bureaucratic work done at the lower levels was done by commoners, and there may have also existed a separate class of scribes, only the most senior of which would have been nobles. Their underlings would have had the mind-numbing tasks of counting things like black beans, squash, maize, chilies, and other mundane items. Next in line were craft specialists, like the makers of sculpture and fine pottery. So, too, were a class of uh, manufacturers of elite costumes. Costumes were a big business in Mesoamerica, and a wide range of exotic materials and manufactured items were required for this. So costume makers occupied an important place in Maya society. More generally, weavers were present, and cloth was a very important item for trade. Now, musicians and other entertainers are depicted in art. In one mural at the, at the city of Bonampak, a full-fledged orchestra is depicted. 
Servants are also depicted in paintings, dressing important persons in costumes or taking care of elite children, and they must have performed all manner of domestic chores. Construction specialists must have been present as well. We don't really have any direct evidence of them, but the amount of construction going on and the complexity of skills involved means that specialists in stucco modeling and stone cutting surely must have existed, although it is possible that these were part-time skills, um, with the directing and supervising done by the upper class as opposed to having a a separate class of foremen and and master masons. Now, none... Now, all of these people, excuse me, all of these people would have interacted with elites, if not been elites themselves. But another class existed, and this class was most people, and that was the mass of farmers who supported all of this. And these people probably rarely interacted with Maya elites, perhaps rarely even saw them. Another class were people of people were dispossessed refugees from war or natural disasters, and obviously uh, refugees weren't very high up on the social ladder either. Now, by the classical period, control of land was almost completely in the hands of the Maya nobility. Um, and judging by the common presence of manor homes, palaces across the countryside, so Maya society in some ways was like feudal Europe or Japan. My society was fragmented, but the dynastic continuities that existed at places like Tikal and Copan were as stable as any other ruling house in Europe. So with that in mind, basically, the long-term history of the Maya goes as follows. In the late formative, a number of Maya villages coalesced into larger uh, polities, what we would call chiefdoms. It's fair to point out, though, we don't know the exact leadership structures of these early chiefdoms. They might not have exactly had chiefs per se, and we don't know really how many of them were. there were. They were mostly built on trade. These chiefdoms were focused on good trading sites like ports, which linked different regions, or near important resources like salt fields. Mirador was the most important of these early capitals. And as population growth continued into the early classical period, many cities developed in the Yucatan. Social structure uh, changes took place along with population growth in the form of a change from rule by councils comprised of heads of lineages to, eventually, a hereditary aristocracy that took control of land and water as well as the labor necessary to work the land. In essence, the formation of a feudal system. And during this period, the gigantic city of Mirador failed. Perhaps a failure in soil or water drove people away from the lakeside city. But it is also possible that the fortified Mirador was attacked and overcome by a rival. Tikal and Kalakmul are the two most likely invaders if this is true. Tikal was a nearby rival of Mirador. Kalakmul was a large city under Mirador's orbit, which became the new regional capital after Mirador's collapse. During this period, Tikal, Kalakmul, and a number of other cities managed to consolidate smaller cities and communities under their leadership, and between them, buffer zones were defined, such as the very uh, well-known buffer zone that we talked about between Tikal and Kalakmul and their respective satellites. Essentially, we're talking about the formation of states. 
a situation, this situation in the Yucatan was otherwise relatively stable for a time, until about the year 350 AD, at which time it becomes clear that Teotihuacan, which is a city we haven't talked about much yet, but we will be soon, but for now, it's good enough to know that Teotihuacan was a powerful city, which was the capital of a despotic empire, who for some time had commercial relations with Tikal. Commodities, commodities like cacao, salt, honey, and beeswax are traded, and not to mention various herbs from the tropical forest. These were very valuable resources north of the Yucatan. We don't know the exact circumstances, but around the year 350, things became less than friendly between Tikal and Teotihuacan, and deteriorated to the point that in 378, Teotihuacan atta- attacked some way, um, and managed to displace the ruler of Tikal, a man whose name translates as Great Jaguar Paw, and replaced the Great Jaguar Paw with a new ruler who was friendlier to Teotihuacan. His nickname was Curl Nose, and I just want to say that Mesoamerican names are really awesome. Curl Nose married one of the daughters of Great Jaguar Paw, and while you might think that Tikal's uh, influence over the region would decrease because of this, the ultimate result was this gave Tikal an advantage over other Maya cities. And then Tikal proceeded to expand its rule over a greater part of the Yucatan. And this was in no small part due to the new alliance between Tikal and Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan I mean, excuse me, Tikal went to war with the uh, Rio Azul region in the year 392 AD. The Rio Azul rulers were subsequently executed, uh, which is shown in a scene um, on a set of altars in the city. Afterwards, Rio Azul was redesigned as a frontier fortress for the Empire of Tikal. Curl Nose's son, Stormy Sky, is depicted on a stella in Tikal as a Meyer ruler flanked with Teotihuacano warriors. One of his sons, born in 417, was eventually appointed governor of Rio Azul, and he was provided with Teotihuacan military help as well. Now, during this period, Tikal changed structurally from the traditional Maya feudal political system to one that was more centralized and bureaucratic, a, a state that mirrored Teotihuacan. Now, this was a pretty drastic reorganization, and it probably went alongside the displacement of some powerful families in Tikal. And that displacement created an eventual backlash, because Teotihuacan eventually began to withdraw from its far-flung empire in the late 5th century. Now, we'll talk about all of that soon enough when we start talking about Teotihuacan, Sorry, it is tough to say that over and over. But for now, let's just say that this left the usurping rulers of Tikal without the outside support upon which they counted on. And as a result, it appears that the older ruling families tried making a comeback. Now, this comeback failed, so don't call it a comeback. But it did succeed in causing a series of civil wars and revolts across the southern Yucatan, which were centered in the Tikal region. During one violent episode, Rio Azul was overrun and destroyed. Now, meanwhile, in the northern Yucatan, none of this was really even making an impact. Teotihuacan did not interfere with life in the northern Maya states, and as a result, the regional capital of Coba 
the people there were living much happier lives. But that doesn't mean that life wasn't upset for Maya people living outside of Tikal altogether. Because Teotihuacan's intrusion and later withdrawal of Tikal was followed by civil wars that impacted other important Maya capitals like the Altar de Sacrificios and Cibal. And those places became very weak during this period. In fact, a long period of recovery was necessary for much of the Yucatan after these wars. And it wasn't until about the year 650 AD that Maya civilization began to properly function again as it had uh, before Teotihuacan's interference. Though, in some ways, it was different than it had been before the invasion. Now, in addition, the climate was also changing to become wetter. And because of this, a rapid development of regional states occurred. Coba obtained a population of 40,000 in the northeast. Zibil Chatun, a capital in the northwest Yucatan, had a population of 25,000. The Rio Beck zone flourished to the extent that even in rural areas, Maya people lived in population densities of as many as 450 people per square kilometer. These were all supported by thousands of square kilometers of terraced hillsides and drained swamp fields. Kalakmul's population rose to over 50,000 with the help of extensive hydraulic works and wetland cultivation, and the city exalted its leadership as a result with more Karstela than any other Maya site. Soon enough, Tikal and Kalakmul were engaging one another in a variety of political maneuvers and military moves in their long struggle for supremacy of the lowlands. At one point, Kalakmul even managed to subvert the alliance between Tikal and the city of Naranjo, which was one of Tikal's largest satellite cities. Now, in the southern Yucatan, Palenque and Copan were two of the most important places uh, and capitals. These cities grew quite powerful as well. Now, pa- Palenque, by the way, was ruled by the famous Maya king Pakal, whose extraordinary tome and accomplishments, along with the accomplishments of his descendants, make him famous to us today. Pakal was a great builder and organizer, designing a, the large and complex palace and tower in which he and his descendants lived. And I would be remiss not to add that in addition, many ancient alien theorists believe that Pakal had a rocket ship which allowed him to travel the cosmos. And that has got to be the dumbest fucking thing I've ever heard. Now, the city of Quiriga was also in the southern Yucateca, and it was established by a dynasty linked to the ruling families of Tikal. It was a city of great wealth, based on large-scale production and export of cacao. The economy basically functioned via an aristocratic elite, which extracted tribute from the regional population and then used this wealth to build a great acropolis of palaces, temples, and finely carved monuments to its rulers. Near the end of the classic period, Quirigua succeeded in capturing the king of nearby Copan in a war and decapitated him. And as you might imagine, this caused quite a bit of consternation in Copan. Excuse me. In the year 682, a great rebuilding program began at Tikal, which included the construction of giant temples all under the direction of a ruler who claimed to be a descendant of Curlnose. So that is how we know that, that the Teotihuacan-linked usurpers won the civil wars, just so you know. 
Now, this new king in charge of the rebuilding project was eventually buried with a tremendous amount of jade, including a luxurious pair of monogrammed hair tweezers of all things. Yes, that's monogrammed hair tweezers made of jade stone. Jesus fucking Christ. Rich people, am I right? The capital of Altar de Sacrificios grew as well. It became linked by marriage and blood with Tikal, which itself had grown to a size of about 62,000 people by the start of this 8th century. But all this expansion came with a price. The huge palaces and other buildings came alongside greatly increased labor demands um, placed upon the commoners. And who were also tasked with increasing wetland cultivation to its maximum, mind you. Other forms of intensive agriculture were expanded, requiring more deforestation, which became a problem. Firewood for cooking and heating became more scarce, even as Maya rulers continued to use huge amounts of lumber for things like lime burns. Lime is an important for the construction of both mortar and plaster and is obtained basically by burning shells at a very high temperature. You need a lot of wood to do a lime burn. And so, on the one hand, it's easy to say that the problems for the Maya were environmental. But it would be more accurate to say that the problems the Maya faced were the result of the fact that Maya rulers paid no more heed to the building crises that was developing than many present-day politicians and other elites in the United States take climate change seriously today. At any rate, all this expansion and environmental degradation stretched Maya society thin. In the words of Gandalf, like too little butter over too much bread. Actually, I take that back. After hearing that out loud, I'm quite certain that Frodo Baggins said that, not Gandalf. And actually, I'm not even sure that metaphor is all that valid, but you're getting the idea. Anyway, this expansion made Maya society vulnerable to other stresses. And this toxic mix of factors led to a sudden and final catastrophe in the ninth century. But before we get into that, we need to switch our perspective just a little bit and examine a very different region of Mesoamerica. And take a look at the very big, very powerful, and very different city of Teotihuacan, which was a city of such tremendous splendor that centuries later, excuse me, that centuries later, Aztec rulers visited the site, making made pilgrimage to this city of splendors, which by then was so old that the Aztecs didn't even know who built it. In Mesoamerican belief, though, in the 16th century, Teotihuacan was believed to have been built by the direction of the gods themselves in order to bring light into the world from primordial darkness. Two gods sacrificed themselves in a fire, became the sun and the moon, and afterwards, human beings gathered at that place and built the great city, including the two great twin pyramids to the sun and the moon. Now, Teotihuacan was an imperial capital of an empire which lasted from about 2,300 years before the present to about 1,550 years before the present. At that point, Teotihuacan lost its dominant status, and most of its public buildings and palaces were pillaged and destroyed. Now, the city lingered on for maybe another 100 years after that, 
but this was merely a postponement of its total abandonment. Teotihuacan came from more humble beginnings. Around 2,300 years ago, before the present, it was a small town. But over the preceding 300 years, it began to grow. The giant Pyramid of the Sun was built at this time. And by 2,000 years ago, the population of Teotihuacan had risen from a small town of 2,000 to a large and still-growing city with an astonishing population of more than 60,000. Now, this was not achieved so much by population explosion as it was the result of Teotihuacan achieving greater and greater political and social control of the valley it resided in and the nearby valleys. And as a result, the surrounding conquered populations were brought into Teotihuacan. This trend continued until about 600 AD, at which point the population of Teotihuacan was an astonishing 150,000 people. Now, 2,000 apartment compounds were constructed in the 4th century to help with the overpopulation problems, and these formed the bulk of residences in the city. And Teotihuacan thus became a city of it was 20 square kilometers, just a mass of sprawling urban jungle. It was laid out on a north-south axis, oriented 15 and a quarter degrees east of north, an orientation shared with other contemporary urban centers on the central plateau under Teotihuacan's domination. The major north-south avenue is today known as the Street of the Dead, but the entire city was laid out in a grid-like pattern of streets and avenues filled with markets, plazas, temples, palaces apartment compounds, slums, waterways, reservoirs, and drainage systems. Decadent palaces for the elites sat along the major thoroughfare of the city, along with a number of large and small temple platforms as well, and and, and as well as the two great pyramids to the sun and moon. A grid-like pattern radiated out from the main streets. These side streets were filled mainly with one-story apartment homes where most of the population lived. Now, only the edges of the city was there a less planned cluster of rooms built of poor materials, um, and these were Teotihuacan slums. Now, the southwest section of the city had a number of ground springs, the water of which was led away to fields and chiampas by canals, some of which still exist. The location of the city itself was actually probably determined by the existence of these springs. And in fact, there appear to have been more of them in the ancient past. But the people of Teotihuacan did not satisfy themselves with just the water of the springs. The San Juan River, a separate water source some distance up the valley, was actually channeled, diverted, and fed through the city of Teotihuacan, winding down the eastern edge of the city before turning west to encircle the great fortress and the most important residences of the city like a moat. Reservoirs and side channels were built and dug into the sides of this, and the city that gave the city's inhabitants access to both river and spring water. The city also had an impressive array of defenses in addition to this moat. A number of walls set off large parts of the city, and so too did another type of wall, one built purposefully of cacti, which would have slowed attackers. And in all, the city was very well planned, with the exception of the slums. Now, with that said, we don't know if there was a single master plan, uh, but either way, the city itself is really an obvious testament to the sophistication of the urban planning that went into its construction.
Now, most of Teotihuacan was built with a mixture of volcanic stone, uh, a mixture of volcanic stone, clay, gravel, and mortar, all coated in heavy coats of plaster, which made it um, made the uh, buildings have a flat and impermeable surfaces. And then they were finished with a polish that gave the buildings of Teotihuacan a glossy shine. Now, huge amounts of wood, though, were also used in the construction in roof beams, in vertical supports within walls, and as the centers of masonry pillars and in doors. Many of the platforms upon which buildings sat were also made in part by utilizing huge tree trunks to help create stable foundations. So, at a glance... Teotihuacan seems to have been practically fireproof. But the fact is that within the plaster and mortar of the city, there were a lot of flammable materials. And add to that the textiles, wood, feathers, and mats within buildings. And with all that said, it wasn't hard for invaders to incinerate much of the city, and that is exactly what happened in 650 AD. The enormous fire which they left created a blanket of ash and debris which still covered the site when archaeologists examined it, and that is how we know that the year 650 is when this happened, by the way. The pyramids of the sun and the moon are the largest buildings in the city, both of which supported temples. A tunnel led from the pyramid of the sun to a now dry cavern which once contained a water channel, and so it is believed that the temple on top of the pyramid was dedicated to the storm deity, the principal god of the city. Teotihuacanos may have believed this cavern was the birthplace of the sun and moon. At any rate, a number of other impressive architecture surrounds the Street of the Dead, um, besides the, the pyramids. Another main avenue also intersects the Street of the Dead, and this, too, was filled with major temples and pyramids and palaces. Now, besides the two uh, pyramids, the most impressive complex in Teotihuacan is called the Citadel today. This structure consisted of a number of huge platforms surrounding a great square with supporting defensible walls. Inside was one of the major temples of the city, dedicated to Tlaloc, the crocodilian-faced storm god, and to Quetzalcoatl a divine flying creature whose name means feathered serpent. Now, about 200 victims of human sacrifice were discovered in the ruins of this temple, and these were the remains of retainers and bodyguards of the city's various rulers. Most had their hands and arms bound behind them, and many of the younger males had military paraphernalia and weapons with them. The victims were also found in groups. There were groups of young male warriors, groups of women servants, and a few older men with more prestigious items. Now, some of these items, uh, some of these crypts were looted in ancient times, pro- probably when the city was burned. And at any rate, the basic idea here seems to have been to send retainers into the afterlife with their ruler, something that happened actually in many places in the ancient world on a pretty regular basis. And it should be noted that this type of human sacrifice had a very different function than the human sacrifice we're going to be discussing later in the episode. The government of Teotihuacan was despotic and authoritarian, especially during the first two centuries of the empire's existence. During this period, the deaths of Teotihuacan's rulers were accompanied by mass executions of his courtiers, advisors, bodyguards, concubines, and wives. Probably as a way for the new ruler to make room for his loyalists and to get rid of any potential high-ranking threats. 
At any rate, after about two centuries of imperialism, the government structure of Teotihuacan became more group-oriented and less personality-focused, and the mass political executions upon rulers' deaths stopped. But, in fact, the temples in which the bodies are found... um, in fact, the temple where these bodies are found, the temples where the bodies are found, is actually under a newer temple, which was constructed at a later period in the empire's history. Now, across the road from the citadel was something that the archaeologists called the Great Compound, which functioned as the central market for the city. Apartment compounds surrounded the Great Compound, and it is likely that the second layer, layer level of Teotihuacan society lived here whereas the true upper crust lived in the citadel, though not the leadership. They lived in the Quetzal Palace, which was a magnificent palace near the Temple of the Moon. But in all, I know it sounds a little confusing, and that's because there are over 2,600 known buildings in Teotihuacan. Almost 100 of them were temples, though the vast majority, about 2,000 of them, were apartment compounds. Only a few of these have been excavated, though many more were secretly looted. It is believed that the largest compounds contained about 100 people and the smallest about 20. And that is how archaeologists get to the population estimate of 150,000 people living there at 600 AD, just so you know. Each apartment contained a kitchen, an outdoor patio, and usually a drainage system to help with sanitation. Though even with these healthful features, about 6 and 10 infants and children died before adulthood. Now, with that said, extremely high mortality rates were a universal fact of life in the pre-modern world. In addition to the city's numerous temples, each apartment compound had its own temple or shrine. Now, it's fair to say that if if it is fair to say, excuse me, that sculpture was the preferred Maya art form, then the same can be said of mural painting in Teotihuacan. These murals were generally religious in nature and occurred in five main themes that correspond with, I guess, uh, specific religious cults would be a good way to put it. The most common were murals depicting the storm god and his related imagery, lightning and water, and they show a variety of different manifestations of the storm god in his different avatars, as a jaguar, a feathered serpent, a starfish, a flower, or warrior. In one Teotihuacan apartment complex, Three temples within were completely dedicated to the storm god and were covered from floor to ceiling with figures of the life-giving storm god. Water flows from his hands, and within those water streams were pieces of jade, human and animal heads, and grains of corn. Now, another common theme were butterflies, which is an image often found on incense burners. It is believed that the butterfly might have been a symbol for the soul, uh, the third theme includes images like owls, darts, and shields. These were symbols of war. Owl images, in fact, were very prominent in the Quetzal Palace. And in fact, the Maya language, the glyph used to indicate the Teotihuacano, the people from Teotihuacan, was a symbol of a hand with an adult handle or a spear thrower. And so the city clearly had quite a reputation for fearsomeness in war. The fourth theme depicts a ceremony which involved two smoking altars and chanting worshippers who offered pottery, birds, food, and bundles of incense. And we don't know what sort of ceremony this depicts exactly, but 
Archaeologists are pretty sure it symbolizes cremation and some of the uh, asso- uh, asso- objects associated with that. Now, the fifth common theme of Teotihuacan art depicts images of the underworld, like jaguars prowling, blowing shell trumpets that drip water and produce thunder. At any rate, now, it is clear that Teotihuacan also had its own writing system, but a lack of data and an uncertainty about even what language was spoken by the people of the city means we don't know a whole lot about it. Um, and there is one mural in the city which definitely seems to be a list of named military leaders and other images are found on building entrances of palaces and apartments that appear to be names or or, or title glyphs for people or objects but without more evidence it's it's kind of difficult to speculate on on this it's possible even that Teotihuacan didn't have a writing system but only some sort of less advanced hieroglyphic notation system rather than a fully developed script with grammar like the Maya had. We, we just don't know for sure. But Teotihuacan society consisted of at least six different classes of people on the bottom of the pyramid and of vital importance to the city, as you might imagine, were the farmers. The 150,000 people who lived in Teotihuacan in the year 600 AD depended upon a base of farmers who lived mostly outside of the city in surrounding communities nearby some of whom specialized in growing specific crops. Teotihuacan also relied on tribute from farmers of satellite cities. The huge market within Teotihuacan acted as a method of redistributing these agricultural goods to the dwellers of the city, and thus made everything else possible. Speaking of markets, the next level of Teotihuacan society was comprised of craft specialists, Thousands of Teotihuacanos, maybe as many as 10% of the total population, worked in one of the hundreds of workshops in the city, most of which were obsidian workshops. Other specialists made stone masks or pottery specialists. Some were courtiers who made the elaborate feathered costumes necessary for the elites. There were also no shortage of people involved in making the leather and woven grass sandals which the people there preferred to wear. The ruins of the city, in fact, contained so many tools for building formal architecture that full-time masons, plasterers, quarrymen, and other construction trades must have existed as well. The people who painted murals were an additional specialist class. Now, it's, possibly, it's probably true that within the trades class a number of gradations existed. Construction trades and common implements craftsmen were probably less prestigious in Teotihuacan society than the people who made luxury goods or painted sophisticated murals. Teotihuacan also had a class of merchants, a class of individuals which the Aztec called Pochteca. These were higher status individuals than the craftsmen of the city, and they engaged primarily in the long-distance trade of luxury goods. There was also a class of bureaucrats who would have been responsible for overseeing various apartment compounds or satellite communities. Like the Maya, the really important functions would have always been taken care of by the nobility of themselves, but less important government jobs were filled with commoners. Now, another class were the significant numbers of foreigners located within the city. On the western edge of the city, a tome was found in the style of the Oaxacan region. A number of Oaxacan glyphs and funerary urns were found nearby this tomb, and it seems that resident Oaxacans took up an entire barrio within the city. 
And that wasn't all, though, because another barrio has been named the Merchant's Barrio by archaeologists. Evidence indicates that it was populated with a number of different people, probably merchants who hailed from the Maya states and from the Gulf Coast, merchants who imported feathers, cotton, cinnabar, stuff like that. At the top of Tehuacano society was the nobility, and its members worked mainly in religion, politics, and warfare. The nobility developed a complex religion over the centuries that continued on into Aztec times. Teotihuacan craftsmen made a lot of figurines, as, in fact, Mesoamerican craftsmen in general were doing. In Teotihuacan's region, these were mainly animals, until the city began politically dominant. At which point the figurines change, and the most common images include gods like Zipetotec, the flag god, Tlaloc, the rain god, Quetzalcoatl, the feathered servant, and Zuihechtukri, the fire god. All of these continued to be worshipped long after Teotihuacan's fall. Now, along with these new gods came new practices, including the association of religion with warfare and human sacrifice and cannibalism. Some ancient Teotihuacan trash heaps contained large quantities of split and splintered human bone fragments, an indication that humans may have been on the menu on occasion, um, from the years, especially from the years 400 to 600 AD. Murals show Teotihuacan ruler warriors holding human hearts. Others show eagles and jaguars, and which are, are two um, deities in later Aztec and, and Toltec societies, which were patrons of warriors. Further, a very large number of projectile points um, were produced by Teotihuacan, and this also indicates an, an aggressive city, uh, one that was able and willing to move against their, their neighbors uh, with a ferocious military force. And all of this was rationalized by religious ideology that not only allowed for human sacrifice, but in fact demanded it. More on that later, I promise. But while religion served as a justification, a far more important factor regarding Teotihuacan's aggressive warfare were the demands of the large and growing population of the city, since conquered areas could be made to yield tribute in food and luxuries. So, the role of warrior took an increasingly important role through Teotihuacan's history, and some archaeologists believe that the reason for the city's success as an imperial power was that powerful military organizations within the city gave it an edge against its neighbors, especially during the first few centuries. And under this uh, hypothesis, as time went by, this gap narrowed, and eventually the city itself became imperiled by its once-dominated neighbors. Now, Teotihuacan's empire was widespread, but it wasn't continuous. There were parts of Mesoamerica that fell under Teotihuacan's sphere that were at best controlled by alliance, intimidation, or isolation. The empire focused direct control in crucial zones and trade routes. So some nearby regions were nominally free, so long as they paid tribute, while other far-flung places were physically occupied and controlled. For example, it is believed that Teotihuacan conquered the city of Kamenaljuyu in the Maya highlands about 1,800 years before the present, at which point older Maya temple structures were abandoned, structures were abandoned and 
and, and the city switched um, and was rebuilt into a single massive acropolis in the style of Teotihuacan. This military takeover was followed by subsequent exploitation of the population. The residents of the city of Kamenolzhuyu were forced to produce large amounts of Teotihuacan-style pottery, complete with mural-style painting on them, though the paintings themselves are painted in the Maya style. So that's how we know that Maya craftsmen in Kamenolzhuyu were making their own versions of Teotihuacan goods and exporting them back, rather than, say, um, artisans from Teotihuacan having migrated to Kamenolzhuyu. At any rate, not enough archaeological work has been done on Kamenolzhuyu to know the exact size of the city, but the population there was at least 10,000, and uh, with a large surrounding population and at least three subordinate towns which were connected to the city. Um, Kamenolzhuyu was a, a region important for trade since at least Olmec times, and in some ways Teotihuacan's expansion mirrored that of the earlier Olmec expansion. Kamenolzhuyu controlled the coastal plain and the trade route to the Maya lowlands. Thus, important trade goods like chocolate, high-quality cotton, green quetzal feathers, all of these were passed through the region. All of these were important goods, which Teotihuacan greatly coveted. And by conquering Kamenolzhuyu, Teotihuacan became connected with merchants in Tikal and other Maya lowland centers. After the conquest of Kamenolzhuyu, Teotihuacan engaged in a rapid and widespread creation of a trading empire. In the early part of this phase, commercial and military colonies like Kamenolzhuyu were established, Teotihuacan art styles were synthesized with regional art styles, and, and etc. But from 550 AD to about 700 uh, AD, Teotihuacan's outposts became increasingly independent and ultimately abandoned their ties with their former colonial master. Now, we already went over this a bit with the Maya, but Teotihuacan also established commercial ties with parts of the Maya lowland and in 378 engineered a successful coup in Tikal uh, and, give, and gave Curlnose military and political aid from Teotihuacan. Rio Azul and Wahaktun were conquered shortly at, thereafter, followed by the fortress of Bacan. Teotihuacan exercised influence out of proportion to their numbers in the Maya lowlands. And that's because they seem to have carried a more sophisticated military and political ideology, an advanced kind of statecraft, which Maya society, a disunified feudal place, was just completely unprepared for. Over time, though, the Maya transformed themselves to be a little more like Teotihuacan. Now, a second wave of Teotihuacan influence dates to around 700 AD in the Maya lowlands, which was likely a diaspora of craftsmen and other refugees who landed there after the fall of the city. So, with that said, that gives us a pretty good idea about the general history of Teotihuacan, which developed out of a situation of military competition between several small communities until sometime around 2200 years before the present, during which time unity was achieved, perhaps forcibly, and these small towns situated in the hills around the Valley of Mexico were abandoned, and a larger community was established around the springs of the valley, and this became the core zone of Teotihuacan. Thus, Teotihuacan was founded alongside a coercive philosophy. The base of Teotihuacan's power and leadership was the forging of a number of various militarized peoples into one militarized people. 
The militarized Teotihuacan culture became more civilized as a result of an influx of refugees from the city of Quiquilco, a city that I mentioned earlier, which was literally wiped out by a volcanic eruption around 2100 years ago. Many of the people who survived took shelter at Teotihuacan, and they brought with them some very advanced ideas about architecture and civic engineering. In fact, the avenues, grid plans, and large residential buildings of Teotihuacan have a lot in common with the architecture of Quiquilco. The religious ideology of Teotihuacan, expressed in murals, sculpture, and other art, was likewise formed at this time by this combination of people and ideas. And the Teotihuacan worldview included a conviction by the rulers of the city that it was the center of the universe and as such was the location of the creation of the universe. The Pyramid of the Sun was one of the first projects carried out under this new regime. Teotihuacanos believed they had a sacred mission to contact and convert other peoples to their true faith. I mean, what with them living in the center of the universe and all? And the assumption they had of theological superiority was combined with the all-too-human desires like wealth, prestige, and political domination, and that led Teotihuacan to engage in expansion. From their own point of view, conquering other people and places wasn't selfish or greedy. Far from it. In fact, not conquering other people would have been the real selfishness. Now, that isn't to say that all the people of Teotihuacan got along. Even as the empire successfully expanded its influence into farther and farther parts of Mesoamerica, Around 1950, 1950 years ago, a coup or something similar happened, and that resulted in 200 court and military personnel being killed, along with the king, something that would have cleared the decks for the new group of leadership. And this new leadership, if anything, intensified the imperial expansion already occurring. The Maya Lowlands conquest happened under the rule of this new dynasty. Now, other neighbors succeeded in defending themselves. Monte Alban, a site which was southeast of Teotihuacan and between the city and the Maya-controlled Yucatan Peninsula, was the center of an independent kingdom, Excuse me, which had a systematic placement of defenses that guarded against intrusion. But even like places like Monte Alban, which were not conquered, sometimes paid tribute. The empire of Teotihuacan experienced a great period of affluence, after around 2,000 years before the present. Numerous tributaries of Teotihuacan gave the city salt, medicinal herbs, chocolate, exotic bird feathers, incense, jade, and many other products. Now, the empire didn't just extend south into the Yucatan. On the coastal plain of Veracruz sat the site of Tajin, a city under the control of Teotihuacan from about 100 to 550 A.D., and during this period, Tajin was a minor city with, a few, with few small pyramids and elite residents. And I, I just want to point out before I keep on going, I am very sorry that my dates keep changing from our calendar to uh, just years before present and stuff. Actually, I'm not sorry at all. It's just the way it is. When Teotihuacan's influence began to wane, Tajin began to grow. Um, originally, when it was under Teotihuacan's control, it was a minor city with a few small pyramids and elite residences. But from about 550 to 1100 AD, Tajin's culture expanded, possibly as far away as Guatemala. 
So it seems likely that Tejin was one of the more militaristic allies or colonies of Teotihuacan, and which later succeeded in establishing its own tributary colonies after Teotihuacan fell. At any rate, the Veracruz reason in general had a crucial role in the Teotihuacano Empire, either as allies or colonies. It, 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 we're not exactly uh, sure. Now, by about 500 AD, Tenochtitlan, Teotihuacan pulled back from some of its commercial contacts. It appears because of internal problems. Teotihuacan's economy was had become increasingly centralized alongside an increasingly rigid social structure as it grew in wealth and power. And as a result, the commoners in the city suffered from increasingly poor health, decreasing lifespans, and higher infant mortality as time went on, likely as a result of increasingly dry years and resultant smaller crop yields that happened at the same time. This drought also brought military groups in uh, into, in from uh, into the nearby highlands at this time. Now, some of these military groups were probably mercenaries, which were probably under Teotihuacan's control. But over time, these groups were increasingly independent and became competitive with Teotihuacan for resources. Um, Richard Adams, in fact, uh, writes, quote, One can envision the development of a state of vulnerability, in which Teotihuacano rulers found themselves menaced by outside forces and also unrest with, from within the city, unquote. This was a precarious time to live in Teotihuacan, for sure. And we're going to leave the city here for now, in the year 650 AD, to examine more closely the Oaxaca region. And then we'll return to Teotihuacan. Teotihuacan and examine the spectacular fall of this early American empire. Now, the independent state in Oaxaca sat between Teotihuacan and the, and the Maya. Now, the history of Oaxaca has been less understood than some other parts of Mesoamerica, but without a doubt, a fully developed state was present by about 2,500 years ago, centered at the city of Monte Alban, which had begun to outperform its competitors and over a period of 200 years became a fully-fledged state. Monte Alban sat upon a ridge of a hill that overlooked the central valley of Oaxaca, a location chosen in part simply because it was a good place to oversee the valley below. Now, the entire top of the Monte Alban ridge was artificially sculptured into a series of flattened and filled plaza areas around which were arranged the formal architecture of the city, Many of the oldest buildings in the city were later covered over by even greater construction projects, but one of the most interesting features of the site comes from an original piece of architecture from the city's founding. A stone platform on the edge of the main plaza, whose walls are covered in sculptures of danzantes, which dancers in English, human figures, they appear, which were incised on the rock. Now, they are nude, many are lifeless, and often sexually mutilated. So archaeologists believe that they may represent dead and tortured enemies. Uh, there are 300 known danzantes and many of hieroglyphic names. So they were probably important people, perhaps conquered kings and nobles. Now, the ceramics of Monte Alban were very stylish. They weren't colorful, but they often contained images of human beings and animals engraved on them. 
Now, the people here, of course, used the 260-day sacred calendar and the 365-day tropical calendar. And other notations have been found by archaeologists, which are probably the names of people and places, as well as one inscription which reads a date alongside which is probably a name and a verb. But otherwise, little is known about this writing system. Um, But there is a lot of evidence of a high degree of cultural sophistication in Monte Alban. Now, it wasn't always the only state in the Valley of Oaxaca. Another city named Danzu was in a military defensible position uh, against a large butte. Danzu was the capital of a competing state, but was eventually incorporated into a larger entity headed by Monte Alban. And after conquering or absorbing her rivals in the valley, Monte Alban contained half the population of the valley in the city and engaged in an outward military expansion, as evidenced by glyphs that indicate the place names of other conquered regions that were inscribed in the monuments of the city. Elite burial tomes in Monte Alban could be quite elaborate. Stone burial chambers were built under courtyards with staircases that led down into them. These impressive crypts sometimes contained a single burial, or they might also hold the remains of retainers and servants who accompanied their masters into the afterlife, along with incense burners and burial urns. Now, one thing that's really interested a lot of archaeologists over the years about Monte Alban is that it collapsed around 700 AD as a state and capital, but culturally a lot remained the same. Monte Alban was abandoned, but much of the art remained nearly identical afterwards. It takes, honestly, a real expert to tell the difference between pottery from Oaxaca, which dated before 700 AD, and the pottery that dates after the fall of the city, after 700 AD. With that said, at the height of Monte Alban's power, it contained a population of something probably like about 24,000 people within the city, and it control, and the city controlled something like 356 other communities, uh, a population that totaled another 31,000 people. Uh, the southern part of the valley uh, was controlled by the subordinate city of Jaliza, an administrative center which contained a population of about 12,000. And by the time Monte Alban was dominant in Oaxaca, it was a city of gigantic public buildings arranged on a north-south axis like Teotihuacan with two enormous platforms at either end of a very large plaza. But unlike Teotihuacan, the platforms did not support gigantic pyramids to the sun and the moon, but instead complex arrangements that combined pyramid-shaped temples with palaces, patios, and tombs. The east side of the plaza was lined with residential buildings and a ball court. The great staircase in front of the southern platform led to a, southern, to a separate observatory and a monument which detailed the conquests of the various rulers of the city. The western side of the city contained three more buildings, and, an entire, and the entire city was infused with sculptured art. A mass of Danzante sculptures and stelae that com- commemorated newer conquests and other events of dynastic importance to the city. Now, one stella in on the south platform is particularly illuminating, and shows a Monte Alban conqueror driving his lance through the name of another town. Nearby stella show bound captives standing on the names of their home cities. Now, Monte Alban contained an enormous amount of ceramics in comparison even to the rest of Mesoamerica. 
A great deal of specialty pottery, as well as items for household use, were produced here, including a number of a lot of pottery made in Teotihuacan styles. This stopped promptly with Teotihuacan's collapse. So it's clear a trade ex- uh, relationship existed between the two cities that was disrupted uh, in the 7th century. Um, and, but Monte Alban also imported quite a few luxury goods from the Maya highlands as well. You know, well over 100 burials have been uh, found and excavated in, in Monte Alban. And from these, we know that elites were buried under nearby temples, which is an indication of their importance to the religion of the city. And we know an awful lot about their religion uh, because they had highly decorated incense burners um, from which archaeologists have identified no fewer than 39 gods, 11 of which were female. Most had calendar names derived from the sacred almanac, and nearly all of them were similar to the gods worshipped in Teotihuacan. One major theme was rain and lightning, manifestations of the storm god. Another cluster of deities was organized around maize. And nearly all of these deities were still worshipped at the time of Spanish contact. So we know a great deal about some of these deities and their belief structures associated with them. Um, Though, with that said, it does appear that the people of Monte Alban had more elaborate rituals than what existed um, in, than what people were practicing, I should say, in 1521, uh, which is when the Spanish arrived. A lot of archaeologists have thought about the relationship between uh, Monte Alban and Teotihuacan, besides the pottery connection, which is ample. It doesn't seem like the two, though, had a lot of connection. Except for the fact there was most definitely a Oaxacan barrio at Teotihuacan, and the people who lived there were of relatively high status and essentially represented an autonomous cultural and perhaps political zone. Um, it, it's, it's, besides that, it appears that Monte Alban was independent of Teotihuacan, but they weren't on equal footing, exactly. Teotihuacan absolutely prevented Monte Alban from extending its influence beyond the central valley of Oaxaca as much as possible, and a few scenes in Monte Alban's sculptures show contact between the two states. One shows Teotihuacan envoys traveling to meet with the rulers of Monte Alban, and so it seems that an uneasy alliance where situation maybe of detent existed between the two states rather than one of, like, say, outright domination. So Monte Alban shows that while Teotihuacan uh, exerted enormous influence on Mesoamerica, it wasn't an overwhelmingly dominant city everywhere. Other strong regional cultures sometimes successfully resisted its influence. Now, Monte Alban was in a highly defensible position and therefore was safe, other regions weren't as lucky, and perhaps represented um, a more important target of imperialism because of their importance to the trade routes of the time. Teotihuacan took a much more active role in the Maya lowlands, but even there, Teotihuacan did not absolutely control the Yucatec. Um, so as impressive as the Teotihuacan Empire was, it had rivals, which were beyond its power to fully dominate. And as such, for whatever reason or reasons that eventually made Teotihuacan become weak in the middle of the 7th century, it found itself surrounded by threats, which were encroaching onto territory. And this situation set the stage for a domino-like sequence of collapse and transformations across Mesoamerica.
Richard Adams says it best. Mesoamerican civilizations collapsed when they became overdeveloped in unbalanced and inefficient directions. Now to broaden this out a bit, some Mesoamerican cultures produced large, inefficient bureaucracies with increasingly high taxes for peasants and other lower classes, while an increasing amount of said tax revenue was being diverted into the pockets of local officials. So you've got a process going on with these early Mesoamerican states, wherein more and more of the local population, the bottom supporting structure of the social pyramid, figuratively as well as literally, being that they were the people who built the pyramids upon which elites lived, that more and more of these people were being overtaxed by officials who were overtaxing them, not for any sort of public government programs or anything like that, but rather just because these elites wanted to steal state revenues and pocket the money. So the population of Teotihuacan got angrier and angrier, while at the same time the state was starved of revenues. I'll be honest, something about this feels suspiciously familiar to me as a citizen of the United States in the year 2019, but I digress. At any rate... As grand as this Mesoamerican city and culture was, it was increasingly unstable over time as a result. Now, with that said, um, these same sorts of uh, patterns are going on throughout a lot, you know, through the Milo lands and other classic uh, era Mesoamerican civilizations. And that's all sort of happening at the same time. But the fall of these civilizations came from a complex set of factors. At one time or another, archaeologists and historians have argued that a variety of single factors were the cause of collapse. Soil exhaustion, moral collapse, climatic change, military invasion, what have you. But it is increasingly clear that multiple factors were involved. So with that said, let's turn our attention back to the central Mexican plateau and the city of Teotihuacan. Who, which de- derived its power from a highly organized group of about 200,000 people and from the control that the city exerted over various trade routes and economic resources which lay outside the basin of Mexico. Now, we don't know exactly what was going on, but about 550 A.D., Teotihuacan influence began to gradually withdraw and from the outlying parts of its imperial empire and this is, if nothing else, an indication that the city had more pressing problems at home than the maintenance of an imperial system. Now, with that said, when Teotihuacan fell, it fell hard. It was devastated by fire. Hundreds of buildings were burned. And when archaeologists poked around in the burned-down remains of the main palace, the Quetzal Palace by the Temple of the Moon, they found a dismembered skeleton in one room. Likely the remains of the last king of Teotihuacan. Exactly what happened isn't clear, but it seems likely that whatever did happen was an inside job, not the result of conquest by a foreign power. I say that because caches of sacred and valuable items were dug out from hiding places, and the city's tombs were looted in a systematic fashion. These were hidden depositories, and they yielded luxury pottery, textiles, and carved jade jewels, which were the highest forms of wealth in Mesoamerica. Religious symbols and artifacts were deliberately destroyed, but 
that doesn't mean there weren't problems from the outside. Because before the city's destruction occurred, Teotihuacan suffered from a great loss of commercial wealth, and then a loss of prime farming real estate in and around the basin of Mexico. Now, before all of this occurred, the region began suffering from a drought. And perhaps this was the match that lit the fires of human conflict. Now, it has been suggested that perhaps some of the foreigners in the city may have intrigued with the military groups who were roaming about the countryside, they bandits. But these military groups were numbered, I mean, like they, they were, these were groups of people that numbered in the hundreds. So it was clear that internal weaknesses and more significant military power would have been required to systematically loot and burn a metropolis of 200,000 people. So I doubt Teotihuacan's destruction came about from something like a, a small cadre of foreign nobles or something like that who hired a bunch of mercenaries. I think it's clear we're talking about a real civil war or a popular revolt, something more along those lines. At any rate, the population of the region fell dramatically after Teotihuacan's destruction. From about 200,000 people in 650 AD down to about 30,000 people in 900 AD. And where did all these people go? Well, that's a good question. The large city of Atzcapotzalco on the western side of the lake it shared with Teotihuacan showed a growth sport, spurt. Excuse me. So did the long-dominated city of Cholula. As I mentioned earlier, Tajin, the former military ally of Teotihuacan, experienced tremendous growth and started its own imperial system. And shortly after the fall of Teotihuacan, cities, the cities of Xochitalco, Cacaxtlaca, and Texcoco were founded. So, obviously the fall of Teotihuacan came alongside some pretty important after-effects, not the least of which was the release of other regional centers like Tajin, which had been previously suppressed by Teotihuacan. Another important fact, effect was that the diaspora of Teotihuacano craftsmen occurred uh, after the city's fall, fall, and that resulted in Teotihuacano culture influencing the artwork of the surrounding regions in Mesoamerica as far away as the Maya lowlands. In the city of Tikal, a small temple to the Teotihuacan storm god was built near the most important precinct of the city. Now, alongside craftsmen, undoubtedly various other civil servants and nobility found their way into important positions in other places, though judging by the crop of new urban development, some of the wealthiest families just simply probably founded new cities. Now, groups of barbarians, and that's not really my term, but that's quite literally how the sophisticated peoples of Mesoamerica would have judged them, but anyway, groups of northern barbarians found their way into the basin, and these groups filled the void left by Teotihuacan's collapse. Some were groups that were probably the same people who were raiding and marauding the farmlands before the collapse. Now, this series of events caused pressure in the south of the valley in the south, in the valley of Oaxaca. Some of these groups of northern barbarians also began to contact and press against the Maya as well. And in response, the Maya began employing them as military mercenaries. And over time, the use of mercenaries became widespread in Mesoamerica. With Maya groups paying mercenaries to roam about the central Mexican highlands, part, perhaps in a part, simply to keep them busy and away from Maya territories. But at any rate, this certainly didn't help to make the region any less chaotic. 
At any rate, Xochicalco was founded in western Morelos and on some of the worst agricultural land available. Powerful neighbors took up the best lands, though the hilltop on which the city was uh, built supported a substantial population before Xochicalco's construction. But there was no city where it was, western Morelos, until after 650 AD. That's when the fortress city of Xochicalco was built in the hills, and eventually the city encompassed four square kilometers, with a series of five five roads that connected various parts of the city to five extensive terrace systems. The centermost building uh, in the city was called the Temple of the Plumed Serpent, and around the platform of this temple there are the remains of 26 plaques. Each shows a ruler and a place name and then two additional glyphs, the false teeth glyph and the quartered ball. We know the meaning of these two. They indicate tribute or taxation. Thus, it appears that Xochicalco conquered and extracted tribute from 26 different places. Nearby the Temple of the Plumed Serpent was the main palace of the city, inside of which were three stelae, which depict the rulers of Xochicalco, and likewise mention conquest and tributaries. Artwork elsewhere in the ruins of the city also indicates Xochicalco's aggressive militarism and the likely presence of warrior societies similar to those we will be discussing later when we get uh, to the post-classic. The whole city was surrounded by a defensive wall and a moat, so despite the aggressive behavior of Xochicalco, they, steered, they still feared attack by competitors. And at any rate, by 800 AD, the population of the city was somewhere between nine and 15,000 people, by which time the city dominated nearly all of western Morelos with the aid of several smaller administrative centers. Now, who the rulers of Xochicalco were exactly is something of a mystery, though the art style seems to have had some Maya and Gulf Coast features, so that might be a clue. With that said, the mass of the population lived in apartment compounds like those found in Teotihuacan. Now, a large reason for the mystery comes from the fact that by about 900 AD, the city of Xochicalco was burned down, destroyed, and it never recovered. Archaeologists aren't even sure what happened. Some believe that Cacaxla, a contemporary rival city, might have been to blame. But it is also possible that an internal revolt by one of Xochicalco's conquered tributary uh, cities caused the destruction. Several of the apartment compounds in the city were excavated and contained the dismembered skeletons of men, women, and children, piled up after they were cut to pieces before the structures were burned around them. So just how you know, that's how Xochicalco collapsed. Now, as for Cacaxla, which was also established after 650 AD. This was another fortified hilltop city, which was the capital of a regional kingdom and ruled by a people called the Olmeca Zicalanca, uh, in later Spanish, just for reference sake. Now, they are said to have come from the Gulf Coast as military opportunists who came north and seized a strategic place um, and advantage at the moment of disorganization created by the fall of Teotihuacan the Olmeca Zicalanca founded the city of Cacaxla and conquered the city of Cholula, and took control, taking control of this ancient city, which had long been under the thumb of Teotihuacan and now was still not free. Cacaxla was founded on a hilltop that was modified to accommodate the ten massive platforms which made up the palace, temples, and food stores facilities of the city. 
These were adobe buildings with a biconical shape that, farmer of the, that farmers of the region still use today called Quetzalcoatlis. All but one of the platforms of the city are on a north-south axis and were surrounded by a series of dry moats up to 24 meters wide and 9 meters deep, at least one of which was also backed up by a rampart. Terracing was built down the surrounding hillsides that helped feed the city. And the artwork of Kakashla was spectacular. The famous murals of the city still have well-preserved colors to this day. One scene in particular shows a battle between birdmen and jaguarmen, with graphic depictions of violence, like exposed intestines and severed heads, not to mention lots of blood and other injuries. And it is believed that this scene probably records the battle which gave the rulers of Kakashla control over the area. Still, Kakashla did not last long. Even if it conquered Xochicalco, it too fell on dark days, around 900 AD, and was abandoned about 100 years later. It is believed the Olmeca Zicalanca rulers were driven out and forced to Cholula. Now, I say the regional empires of Cacaxla and Xochicalco, but 200 and 300 years ain't nothing to sneeze at. Richard Adams believes that they were the results of groups of mercenaries, something like that of the 14th century Italian condottieri, first employed by, and were first employed by central Mexican states like Teotihuacan, and when that empire became disorganized and started collapse, they became predatory powers on, on the north using the collapse and the collapse of the Maya to their advantage. A number of raids, in fact, took place in the Maya lowlands during the collapse, and some were long-distance predatory strikes, perhaps launched by Xochicalco and Cacaxla, as they turned on their former employers. Now, this was also the case for the Toltec, who we'll be discussing soon enough, and who likewise started off as mercenaries before converting the wealth and prestige gained from this to become a full-blown permanent power. Now, at any rate, after the fall of Teotihuacan, the nobility in Monte Alban began increasingly isolating themselves, and the general population began to leave the city. Many palaces in Monte Alban were abandoned, some were rebuilt to be smaller, and these new, smaller palaces were protected by walls that blocked the view of the people below. In other uh, cities in the Oaxaca Valley, like San Lorenzo, Construction projects were simply abandoned mid-construction, and so the political collapse of Oaxaca might have occurred very quickly. So many people left the Valley of Oaxaca, just as they had left the region surrounding Teotihuacan, though others did stay nearby, and in fact, many of them seemed just returned after the collapse of Monte Alban. Now, to be honest, we know less about Oaxaca than, than other parts of Mesoamerica, as I said earlier, but a, th- a couple of things are clear. The first is that in the aftermath of Teotihuacan's collapse, the network of trade, alliance, and intermarriage which connected Oaxacan elites to elites in other parts of Mesoamerica also began to collapse. And this probably undermined the rulers of Monte Alban, such that by around 800 A.D., the nobility was no longer able to mobilize the support of uh, followers and the political power of the Oaxacan elite disintegrated. Second, in the aftermath of the collapse of Monte Alban, new ceremonies developed in Oaxaca. Archaeologists found buried offerings in the center square of the city that date after the collapse of Monte Alban. And these burials contained items such as incense burners, stone figurines, ceramic vessels, and obsidian blades. 
many of the items seem to have come from within tomes and residences from before the collapse. Some older tomes were emptied and then later refilled and reused. And the new burials included utilitarian items, not luxury goods. Because of this, it is thought that the people responsible uh, for this recolonization were uh, probably the descendants um, of the people who had previously lived there. They were not seemed knowledgeable about the locations of tombs and may have been, um, you know, the descendants of the nobility who had once lived in these palaces. Obsidian blades and rather utilitarian ceramics that are found buried in these new uh, ritual burials indicate that the social structure had become more egalitarian in the post-Monte Alban collapse. And perhaps the greatest symbol of this transition from ranked social structure to something far more egalitarian was found in the in Oaxaca anyway, was found in the city of Rio Viejo. At some point during the collapse of the old political structure, the people of Rio Viejo took down a large sculpture of a noble wearing an elaborate feathered headdress. Now at one point in time this monument was dedicated to a very powerful noble. But after the collapse, when the population pulled down the statue, they started using the carved ruler's image as a matate. These people literally used the stone nose of this ancient ruler to grind corn. And let me tell you, it's hard to understate what a powerful symbolic act that would have been. Now with that said, eventually this trend towards egalitarianism ultimately reversed back. Archaeologists began to see signs of social stratification again in the Oaxaca Valley, and ultimately new city-states emerged in the valley around 1200 AD. The next domino to fall was the Yucatan. The Maya began dealing with the forced dispersal of Teotihuacanos in the late 7th century. And in fact, an image of the Teotihuacan storm god appears at this time in Estella and Copan, and in some ways, this was more than just an artistic representation of a storm. It was in some ways a literal representation of a storm which was on the horizon for the Maya. That certainly isn't to imply that the fall of Maya civilization was the result of Teotihuacan refugees or, or the mercenary raids or any external cause at all, because that doesn't seem to be the case. But it does provide part of the backdrop to help us understand the situation on the ground. The Maya reached their high point by the opening of the 7th century. Now, by that time, the Maya populace had succeeded in terracing the hills, draining and modifying the swamps, and had constructed hundreds of water storage areas. The resulting population explosion resulted in a land scarcity, and rock walls became common, both as necessary boundaries and simply as the result of new fields being cleared. Maya society, meanwhile, had become increasingly aristocratic, such that by 650 AD, various Maya states were all commanded by dynasties and royal lineages, and these families controlled Maya economic life. Most of the architecture within cities was for their specific use, and they were supported by groups of craft specialists and civil servants, while most of the population farmed. Maya society had also become very organized. Military competition became mainly a prestige activity for the nobility and hadn't didn't really greatly disturb the economy. 
And this was how things went until about the 9th century. And during this 300-year period, one could easily say that Maya culture was well-ordered, adjusted, and a definitive success. But it is clear also that by 830 AD, Maya cities were experiencing tremendous stress. And they began to disintegrate. And in less than a century, by 900 AD, all of the southern lowland Maya states had collapsed. Now, so with that said, here are a few facts we know about the Maya collapse. First, it occurred over a relatively short period of time, about 75 or 100 years. Second, the nobility lost power and disappeared during this time. Palaces and temples were abandoned, and trade in luxury goods and stellar construction ceased. Third, a rapid and near-complete depopulation of the countryside and urban centers occurred. And fourth, the geographical focus of the collapse occurred first in the oldest and most developed Maya zones of the southern lowlands, and the northern plains, though, survived quite a bit longer. The Maya collapse was a catastrophe, therefore, in which elite and commoner went down together. And to understand why, we really have to get it out of our heads, first of all, that the Maya were living like, like, in a way that, like the myth of the so-called noble savage. While the Maya certainly lived more in tune with nature than 21st century people in, like ourselves, they probably weren't all that much more in tune with nature than, say, people of the 19th century living in the Americas. And this dissonance, this failure, to live in a sustainable way was at least partially responsible for the Maya civilization's failure. In the central Maya lowland, the population was astonishingly high. From 600 to 900 AD, there were about 435 people per square mile living in the Rio Beck area, a number which increased as one traveled south towards Tikal, this was likewise true in the Belize Valley, where the population density was something like 458 per square mile during that era. These enormous populations caused problems, hence all the massive agricultural construction works in the first place. Throughout the classic period, management of land and other resources was a constant problem for the Maya, one that was the responsibility of the Maya elite the same Maya elite who inherited their titles through birth. And as you're probably aware, if you've looked at European history, hereditary rule isn't necessarily the best way to go about doing things. Sure, there were plenty of capable and brilliant Maya nobles, but there was also no way in which talent from the lower social classes could be put into important leadership positions. Likewise, there was no way that bad or stupid rulers could be replaced. So there was a lot of incompetence in the leadership structure of Maya society and in all of the Maya states. And throughout the period and up to the collapse, the social gulf between elite and commoners widened. The Maya nobility, meanwhile, continued to increase in size and as such made larger and larger demands upon the rest of Maya society. For its support, and, and all of this created a lot of tension in Maya society over time. 
And this could get a lot worse during times of agricultural crisis, as you might imagine. Insects, birds, crop disease, and sometimes unpredictable and violent weather created a lot of further stress on Maya society. Drought, in particular, aided the Maya collapse. Devastating droughts occurred in the years 810, 830, and 880 in the Maya region. And more generally, a Mesoamerican-wide drought began about 850 AD. Combined with the fact that the Yucatan suffers from periodic outbreaks of locusts, it is clear that crop failure was an important factor in the collapse. Water was a precious resource for the Maya, and during the period of extended drought, a domino effect might have started that collapsed some Maya states, where the capital acted like a sponge, continuing to draw in resources like food and water from its subordinate areas until there was no more. Thus, places like Tikal lasted longer than their surrounding areas, but they too eventually collapsed. As resources became more scarce in the region, warfare changed and began to evolve many more people and therefore became much more disruptive to society. One mural from the era shows numerous soldiers standing in standard uniforms, kneeling in ranks before an officer. So that further led to an increasingly destabilized situation. At the same time, new ideologies and religious ideas from the Gulf Coast and from central Mexico were arriving. Elites in the northern Yucatan absorbed a lot of new ideas in particular, and not always because they wanted to. There were quite a few invasions of the Yucatan from the north. Palenque, on the southwestern edge of the Maya lowlands, was one of the first Maya cities to go under. It was abandoned after the drought of 1810. Next were Piedras Negras and Yaxchilan, the major Usamacinta, the major cities of the Usamacinta. They put their last monuments up around 825 AD and were abandoned sometime after that. The Altar de Sacrificio collapse uh, happened following an invasion in the year 910. The Maya cities collapsed progressively from west to east. And it seems likely that pressures from militaristic groups, be they other Maya states or non-Maya groups, um, and it is likely that these were attacks of opportunity that took advantage of already disorganized cities. So warfare didn't start the catastrophe, but numerous warlords took advantage of the immediate aftermath of the collapse. Each Maya city and region therefore shows evidence of its own unique mix of circumstances which led to its end. Piedras Negras was smashed from within. The elites were violently overthrown and their images defaced. Rio Azul, on the other hand, was conquered by other Maya groups from the north, perhaps with Toltec allies. That was the fate for a number of Maya centers along the Belize coast as well. Altar de Sacrificios, as I mentioned, was invaded by an outside group, other Maya cities had a more quiet end. Tikal and some other centers were simply abandoned. The nobility there left to fend for themselves as the supporting populations just moved away. At two such abandoned cities, Kolha and Sebal, the northern Maya elites tried moving in and taking over, but ultimately abandoned those attempts. The demographic problems and disruption in agricultural, sim- agricultural systems was simply too great to deal with. 
So in short, all of these factors, ecological mismanagement, famine, militarism, and mismanagement, all combined to create the Maya collapse. The estimated population of the Maya in 715, uh, 750 AD was probably somewhere around 12 million. 150 years later, in 900 AD, the population was probably 1.8 to 2 million. So we definitely don't want to understate the word collapse here. But on the other hand, it is possible to overstate the Maya class because the Maya were still there. There were just a lot fewer of them. But like I said, they were there and they did recover. Ultimately, though, just not in a way that led them to build new empires. Instead, the Maya slowly reverted back to previous systems to Sweden agriculture rather than maintaining extensive irrigation and terracing techniques, which made urban life possible. In short, the Maya found a new way of life, a more humble way of life. And perhaps after the collapse, they even found it a relief to live without the constant stress of their former state of existence. With that said, like I said, the north in the north of Yucatan, the Maya cities continued as they had before. Decline in the highlands was a slower regression, and that lasted until about 1200 AD. The vast and dense cities of the Puck area survived the droughts of the 9th century. In fact, the capital of this region, Uxmal, seemed to have spent quite a bit of time and energy taking advantage of other states' collapse, capturing and enslaving the people of the southern Yucatan. They did so largely with the aid of mercenaries, known as the Toltec, who arrived in the Yucatan by 900 AD, maybe a little earlier. And at any rate, by the opening of the 10th century, there are clear indications that Uxmal was absorbing some of the ideas which the Toltec brought with them. Specifically, eagle and vulture motifs uh, appear in Uxmal art at this time, and these are Toltec images, which represented military societies. Now, the northern cities lasted at least about a century longer than their southern counterparts, but whether or not they succumbed to the same set of factors isn't exactly clear. Uh, Uxmal, for example, though, was eventually conquered by the very Toltec mercenaries it once employed. The central parts of North Yucateca is known as the Puck region, which is where the city of Chichen was located. Chichen was allied with Uxmal and other Puk cities, and the earlier local architecture of Chichen was rebuilt with Toltec architectural styles around 950 AD. So it's pretty clear that by then the Toltec established themselves as the controlling power in that city. They began calling themselves the Chichen Itza. The Toltec then went to war with their Maya neighbors, which led to a swift collapse of the nearby Maya states after a series of Toltec raids, battles, and sieges. Now, as for the Toltec themselves, unfortunately, much of their history has been lost, something that happened when Itzacoatl, the fourth Aztec emperor, decided to purge the state archives and burn down most of the ancient history books. And with this single act of anti-intellectualism, much of the history of the Toltec vanished. What remains is a mixture of contradictions, conflicting dates, and lists of kings, as well as plainly 
fraudulent rewriting of history by later Aztec historians who wrote new histories in order to claim descent from the Toltec. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have any historical information about them. We have, for example, two separate lists of the kings of the Toltec. Unfortunately, they only overlap with one name, a certain king, Topiltzan. Besides that, though, one of the lists is probably at least partially fraudulent. Uh, I say that because it claims that seven of the kings of the Toltec each had a reign of 52 years apiece. That would be awfully coincidental. Not the least of which being the reason that 52 years, if you'll remember, is exactly the amount of time which corresponds with a complete cycle of the sacred calendar. So, Tobiltzan perhaps reigned for 52 years, though the other list claims he reigned for 24 years. And I'm more likely to believe that as an honest list of the reigns of the Toltec kings, since the dates are varied. At any rate, I bring this up essentially uh, to give you an example of just how jumbled up Toltec history is. Now, on the other hand, we have a pretty good idea of what happened to the Toltec after the fall of Teotihuacan. They moved south into the central Mesa zone after the collapse of that empire under the leadership of Mixcuatl. His name means cloud smoke, cloud snake. They established a capital at Itzapalapa, Though that location wasn't very safe for them, they were pressured by Cholula, and they moved to a new home, the already established city of Tulla, which had once been under the control of Teotihuacan. The Toltec moved under the leadership of King Topiltzin, who is also known as Quetzalcoatl, just so you know. This happened some around the year 960 AD. Now, it was said that Quetzalcoatl was the high priest of a religious cult, who urged that fruits, flowers, and animals be worshipped, be sacrificed to the gods. But he was defeated by the followers of a different cult, who wished to sacrifice humans to the gods. And after that defeat, King Topiltzin slash Quetzalcoatl left with his remaining followers in 987 AD. Now you might be th- think that the after effects of a civil war like this would lead to just probably more bad news for the Toltecs, huh? Well, you'd be wrong. The Toltecs and their capital of Tulla experienced a golden age after this. They created an empire which was greatly admired even centuries later by the Aztecs. The Toltecs ruled a lot of land north and west of the Valley of Mexico, though not the Valley of Mexico itself or the Valley of Puebla, which were ruled with by Olmec cruelty, according to later chronicles. From the new Olmec state, which had managed to survive uh, the Cacaxla's destruction and was now centered at Cholula, uh, which is why we think the, the leadership from Cacaxla um, escaped the destruction and simply moved. At any rate, Tulla dominated a large region, including the states of Tolanzinco and Tenanco until 1156 AD, at which point Toltec leadership of the city was overthrown, though their king, Huemac, the last Toltec king, managed to escape and transferred the capital south to the city of Chapultepec. But when he died in 1162, the Toltec dynasty was no more. And by this point, newer barbarians had started to intrude into the central zone of Mesoamerican, Mesoamerica once again. Now, before moving on, let's talk a little bit about Tulla itself. 
which was a city about 65 kilometers northwest where, of where Teotihuacan was and was situated upon the Tala River. An ancient temple dedicated to Quetzalcoatl existed in the city, which was looted and burned alongside other ceremonial buildings around 850 AD. And 50 years later, the city was reoriented and laid out on a grid very similar to that of Teotihuacan. Most of the population lived in apartments compounds, which was also similar to Teotihuacan. It wasn't as large as Teotihuacan, but Tulla contained plenty of palaces and ball courts and all that jazz and had a population of something like 32 to 37,000 people, at best estimate. Now, the Toltecs had a writing system, which consisted of hieroglyphic writing that included bar and dot notations and appear closely re- related to the writing system found at Xochicalco. But the city itself contained many different peoples and languages. Tulla's industries included obsidian specialists and other craft workers, as well as clear ties to the rest of Mesoamerica through long-distance trade. And this long-distance trade network was how metallurgy was introduced into Mesoamerica from South America. This happened around 800 AD. Metallurgy was originally discovered in South America, though, with that said, around 800 BC. So this was a, a, a late development. It appears that these metalworking uh, traditions transferred from South America to Central America via oceanic trade over the Pacific in canoes, and from there to Mesoamerica. And the Toltec had a great deal to do with the spread of this craft via their long-distance trade networks. Now, long before the Toltecs established themselves in central Mexico, the empire of Teotihuacan had created a line of settlement outposts in the Durango and Zacatecas region of Mexico that were mainly mining camps. Now, colonists from the south dug up hematite, chert, flint, jadeite, and turquoise, and though the Teotihuacanos had withdrawn from the region around 600 AD, the Toltecs returned 300 years later. And that put them in conflict with the more nomadic barbarian groups who likewise had re-expanded into the region after the collapse of Teotihuacan. So in doing this, the Toltecs began, made, began making trade contacts with the cultures of the American Southwest. They started trading metal objects to those people. Pochteca merchants went back and forth from Mexico uh, to north to Arizona and New Mexico to trade copper bells and other items to Hohokam and Anasazi people in exchange for turquoise, uh, slaves, peyote, and salt. Now, the Toltec also intruded into the Yucatan. Uh, Toltec artifacts begin showing up in Maya civilization in the 8th and 9th centuries, mainly with the Maya cities in the Puck region, considering elsewhere Maya was, I mean, especially there, because considering elsewhere Maya civilization was collapsing at a very fast rate. Now, specifically, the Toltec intruded upon the center of Chichen in the Puck region, conquering the city and establishing a Mexican dynasty known as the Chichen Itza. The city of Chichen Itza was a still mostly thriving Maya civilization about 987 AD, which is when the Toltec arrived and took over. And afterwards, a clear cultural transition took place as the Maya and Toltec art styles began to blend 
And this, repre- this is represented by buildings at Chichen Itza, such as the Temple of Kuku Khan, or the Temple of the Warriors. And in fact, a period of extensive construction took place in the city from about 900 to about 1050 AD, and that included the construction of the most impressive buildings of the city. The major structures built by the Itza were done so on a vast platform called the Great Terrace, which was in the, in the middle of this sat the famous Temple of Kuku Khan, which is the Toltec name for Quetzalcoatl. A total of 69 different saches intersected Chichen Itza and connected it to nearby sites. Now, one of these went straight from the Temple of Kuku Khan to a sacred sea note, one of those naturally occurring wells I mentioned earlier. The city also contained the largest ball court in all of Mesoamerica. It was 150 meters long and was surrounded by temples and other impressive sculptures. Now, if there's one thing you could say about Chichen Itza, is that it was superbly constructed, far better than Tala, in fact, which frankly suffered from shoddy workmanship in comparison. So, even though the art and religion of Chichen Itza was being transformed to become more Toltec than straight-up Maya, the construction was undoubtedly performed by the more experienced Maya masons and craftsmen at the behest of their new Toltec rulers. Mesoamerican chronicles say that the Itza ruled Chichen for about 200 years. Some archaeologists believe that during this time, Chichen Itza actually dominated most of the Yucatan during this period. Chichen Itza went to war with the last remaining Maya strongholds in the Puck region and thus completed the final, uh, the, the Mayan collapse was finally completed by the Itza. And that left them free to dominate much of the Yucatan. It is believed that the Toltecs came to Chichen with a superior military organization and that this contributed to the quick collapse of the Puk region. Besides the conquest of the Puk, one one reason why archaeologists believe that Chichen Itza was the seat of an extended Yucatan empire was that the Itza controlled another site called the Port of Cerritos, which was located on the northeast coast of the Yucatan on a small island and contained a large port facility, complete with at least two piers and a number of warehouses. Now, the port was constructed about 150 years before the Itza took over, but they greatly enlarged the site. The Port of Cerritos was probably the principal port for Chichen Itza and was about 90 kilometers away from the city. Most of the tools found on the island were made from obsidian, which came from central Mexican sources, and which were controlled by the city of Tulla. Excuse me. And a chain of Itza period sites existed between Chichen and the port, which was very important in the salt trade. Now, the Maya apparently didn't think much of the Itza, and besides considering them poor architects, considered them promiscuous, incestuous, and just plain straight-up perverse in general. The Maya especially didn't care for the fact that the Itza spoke a broken dialect of Maya, and so they didn't really care for the Itza's language skills. And they also didn't care for the Itza's proclivity for producing giant phallic sculptures. Anyway, as for the end of Itza rule in the Yucatan, we actually have a pretty fun account of what happened. The ruler of Chichen stole the bride of another city called Izamel. Now, to get revenge, the ruler of Izamel 
obtained some help from the ruler of Mayapan to avenge this abduction. The king of Mayapan was named Hunak Kiel, and his army sacked the city of Chichen Itza in 1187 AD, leading the Itza to abandon their capital and journey south to Lake Petén which was where they lived at the time of the arrival of the Spanish. Now, it's probably not a coincidence that Tulla, which fell in 1147, just a generation or two before these events, uh, because without Mexican support, Chichen Itza would have been much more isolated and vulnerable to being surrounded by vengeful-minded enemies. Now, at any rate, Hunak Kiel didn't exactly have Izamel's best interest at heart when he decided to help them defeat Chichen Itza, because once he did conquer Itza, Chichen, he turned on his former allies in Izamel and defeated that silly, that city. Now, relatedly, he turned Mayapan into the seat of a great empire, which lasted as a predatory state until 1446. Now, at any rate, as I just mentioned, Tulla collapsed in 1147 after a series of droughts, which began affecting the region in the 12th century, especially in the northern settlements, which were subsequently abandoned by Toltec colonists who started returning south, in part because without enough water they didn't have, weren't growing enough food, but also in part because of pressure from marauding groups called Chichimecs by the Toltecs. Though it seems that in reality more than one single ethnic group were attacking the Toltec colonies. Some were Mesoamericans from the frontier, other Mesoamericans I should say, who simply stopped farming as the droughts increased and took up banditry. Others were once allied peoples from the deserts and mountains of the north who basically did the same. Still others were true barbarians, hunter-gatherer groups, brought into conflict with urban dwellers as the result of the drought. Despite literal foreign armies, excuse me, literal armies of foreigners invading the northern Toltec lands, when Tulla itself was destroyed, it appears that like Teotihuacan before it, that the destruction was the result of an inside job, not a foreign invasion. That's because whoever did sack sack Tulla dug huge trenches uh, inside of temples, Uh, in part, it seems, to search for tomes and other valuables, but also simply to destroy Toltec symbols in the city. Temples were trenched, columns were knocked over and destroyed, and palaces were burned. Now, despite this, the memory of the Toltec Empire shone brighter and brighter in the minds of later Mesoamericans, and eventually, Great amounts of prestige were associated with anyone who could claim descent from the Toltecs. To these later Mesoamericans, the Toltec represented a a lost golden age of Mesoamerica. But in the meantime, the destruction of Tulla meant that a diaspora of people from the broken Toltec empire scattered throughout Mesoamerica. And this Toltec diaspora was by the means by which people all across Mesoamerica, especially noble families, eventually started claiming descent from the Toltec. So, with that said, let us move forward from the Toltec to discuss the last few hundred years of Mesoamerican history before contact. By the 13th century, the history of Mesoamerican civilization was at least 2,600 years old. 
cities and empires rose and fell over time. This was recognized in Mesoamerican belief, in the myths of cyclical creations, in the endless cycles of time recognized in their calendar, and in the literal belief they shared that history was repeating itself day by day in accordance with that calendar. And if we want to understand the people of Mesoamerica, then that is a very important concept to grasp. And understanding the people of Mesoamerica is important if we're going to talk about human sacrifice, which I promise we will very soon. For now, though, at some point after the Toltec rule of Chichen Itza, other native Maya, excuse me, Ma, native Maya culture reasserted itself in the Yucatan. The conqueror Hunakil had a lot to do with this, obviously, having overthrown Chichen Itza and Izamel. He proceeded to transform Mayapan from insignificant backwater to the capital of a unified Maya state. The Maya told the Spanish later that Mayapan was founded by Quetzalcoatl Kukulkan and the greatest temple of the city was dedicated to Quetzalcoatl. But a more likely explanation is that the ruling family worshipped Quetzalcoatl. And the, because, uh, uh, yeah, the actual historical person was not involved. Now, in the words, for one thing, Quetzalcoatl's name was also the name of a date in the calendar. So you, literally people were born at far long after he was born and then took up the name Quetzalcoatl and, 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 went, and if they were wealthy enough and, and, and everything like that might have actually attempted to do their own, uh, make their own accomplishments and, and that, those became added to the myths. But um, the myths of Quetzalcoatl's doings, with that said, in the words of Richard Adams, quote, are too far flung, demand too much accomplishment, and take up too much time for any single historical figure to have accomplished, unquote. At this rate, or at any rate, the city of Mayapan was largely populated by nobles of various conquered regions of the Yucatan, which were under the control of Mayapan. These nobles were forced to live in Mayapan, along with their servants and stewards, so that Hunak Kiel and his descendants could keep a better eye on them and preserve law and order in the empire. And for a while, things were quite well ordered. Mayapan itself originally dated back to about 1100 AD, but it wasn't a particularly impressive city. It was a local center, but not important. Around 1250 AD, though, the city rose in importance considerably. Most of the important civic buildings of the city date to between 1250 A.D. and 1450 and include temples, colonnaded halls, and these in some ways resemble the later Kalmakak buildings found in Tenochtitlan we'll be talking about. Anyway, the, the city's observatory and main temple shared some characteristics with Chichen Itza, but Mayapan also revived Maya culture in the form of stella construction. At least 25 stella were built in Mayapan, which is an astounding number over just that 200-year period, just so you know, in comparison to other Maya sites. In total, the city contained something like 4,140 buildings, of which about 2,100 were dwellings, and the estimated population was somewhere around 12,000. Homes were situated for cooling by the wind were and were scattered at random, rather than a, like in a grid-like pattern on an axis. Individual neighborhoods or sometimes individual houses were surrounded by stone property walls, and this created a maze of alleyways instead of planned formal streets. 
Each home had its own shrine, and the larger houses contained family tombs, evidence of ancestor worship, which was another continuation from earlier Maya times. And in nearly every way you can think of, Mayapan was a lesser city than those created during earlier classical Maya period or the Toltec era. The masonry work was poor, defects were common, and were coated, and, and buildings were coated with heavy coats of plaster as a result. Buildings in the city were smaller, less planned, and even the sculpture is, is frankly shoddy in comparison to earlier work. Mayapan pottery was generally utilitarian. It lacked the elaborate decorations of earlier periods. The one exception was the incense burners created by these people, which were massive cylinders with attached heads, arms, hands, and legs, sometimes wearing costumes of various deities. These really are some spectacular incense burners. All in all, quite a bit of cultural fraction occurred in the city. Maya rulers were dominant, but no small number of the nobility who were forced to live in the city were not Maya. And this is, appears to be a reason why Mayapan was held together by force. Ideological and religious fragmentation uh, amongst the population, amongst a pop, excuse me, ideological and religious fragmentation amongst a population of provincial lords who are forced to live in a city as virtual captives probably isn't the best formula for a stable society. So when the leadership of Mayapan started encountering a little bit of trouble with the population and as a result started using outside mercenary troops to maintain order by terrorizing the city, things blew up as a result. A successful conspiracy took place in 1446, and this led to the complete destruction of the ceremonial center after which Mayapan was abandoned. The details of that incident began when the rulers of Mayapan started hiring Mexican mercenaries from Tabasco to better tyrannize the region. Ultimately, the subordinate nobility of Mayapan engaged in a conspiracy to kill the Kokam family, which was the family which Hunakil had come from. This conspiracy was almost entirely successful. The Kokam family was systematically killed, their houses were destroyed, and the city of Mayapan was abandoned. But just so you know, one Kokom's son did survive. And we're not going to get into this yet, obviously. It happens in the 16th century. His descendants will later take their revenge. Now, Mayapan dissolved into no fewer than 16 independent Maya kingdoms. Each were dominated by a capital city, and ruled by a king called a Halch eunuch in the local language. Each of these were supported by tribute from a number of smaller towns. These subordinate towns were ruled by a bata, which was an administrator position, part judge and part general, and who was paid for his services with, the farm, with a farm allocated for his use. Records were kept in hieroglyphic books, and from these we know that the chief exports from Yucatan were cotton, cloth, incense, salt, slaves, honey, and beeswax with local variation uh, in trade goods uh, amongst the 16 kingdoms. Three basic social classes existed in the form of common, in the form, excuse me, noble, commoner, and slave. And as you might imagine, the nobles were the ones who owned almost all the land. Now, ironically then, 
After all of this occurred, perhaps the most classically Maya group later encountered by the Spanish weren't really Maya at all. Because the remnants of the Itza were clinging on to their unique culture, a mix of Maya and Toltec beliefs, at the city of Tayasel, which was on Lake Petén. And these were the only people in the Yucatan still creating stella and sculptures in similar styles to earlier Maya people in the 16th century. At any rate, back in the north, in the basin of Mexico, a period of uncertainty existed following the collapse of the Tolatotec. Major, uh, monu- major movements of people came from the north to the south. Some were literally groups of returning Toltec settlers no longer safe in the north. Others were allied peoples living in the regions adjacent to the outskirts of the temple. And a third group were fierce hunter-gatherers from the northern desert steppes. These were thought of as especially barbaric by Mesoamerican peoples. But all three groups were called Chichimec, which is the Nahuatl word for barbarian. A number of states were established after the fall of Teotihuacan, which all came to be dominated by Cholula, until three cities, Culhuacan, Cuatlechan, and Atzcapotzalco, allied with each other. This alliance overtook Cholula, and this alliance came to dominate the valley. Of the three cities, Atzcapotzalco became the dominant partner, especially under the direction of a leader named Tezazomac. But eventually, this alliance was overcome by another new alliance, comprised of the three cities of Tenochtitlan, Texcoco, and Tacuba. Now, Tacuba was a relatively minor state, so Texcoco and Tenochtitlan were the dominant partners, and this occurred in 1428. It is known to us as the Triple Alliance and also as the Aztec Empire, because later, after the death of the great Texcocan ruler named uh, Nezahoyacotl, The Aztecs took the dominant role in this alliance. But that was very, the very opposite of this was true for the Aztec fortunes in the immediate aftermath of the fall of the Toltecs, at which point they were outsiders, barbarians, Chichimec. Their very existence depended upon alliances that they could make with more powerful neighbors. And we're going to be talking, obviously, a lot more about the Aztecs very soon. But for now, I want to talk about their greatest rival in Mexico, the Tarascan Empire, which emerged sometime around 1000 AD in a place we haven't been talking about since the very beginning of this episode, West Mexico. Now, the Tarascans didn't, that empire didn't spring up out of nowhere, and pre-Tarascan remains have been found in the area of the Tarascans Empire, dating back another 600 years or so. But the Tarascans aren't as well known as many of the other well, other cultures in Mexico, and, and, and literally from a, a lack of archaeological evidence in, in large part. But they are very fascinating for two reasons. One, their language is unrelated to any other Mesoamerican language. And two, they successfully resisted the aggressive Aztecs. Now, that this was possible might have been due to the fact that metalworking was introduced to Mesoamerica from Central and South America via oceanic trade over the Pacific Ocean, and the numerous needles, awls, tweezers, fishhooks, wire, pins, and various bells which were commonly produced in the region would have represented a significant source of wealth. 
And that might provide, I think, a clue as to how they were able to resist the Aztecs. Likewise, the Tarascans themselves might even have originated in in West Mexico from South or Central America via a canoe migration. Um, And this would explain the different language at any rate. Evidence of this comes from, A, their trapezoidal doorways that they built into their buildings, which is a characteristic shared with uh, Quecha-speaking people in the Inca regions, and also not to mention that similarities exist between Tarascan language and the South American Quecha language. I have no no idea if I'm spelling that right, uh, pronouncing that right. Excuse me. Now, the Tarascan Empire was pretty massive. It stretched across 46,500 square miles and included a variety of ethnic and linguistic groups. So the Tarascans themselves operated their own imperial system. They were ruled by a king whose legitimacy as ruler rested on a, t- on a type of divine right, and Tarascan kings also acted as priests. The king's palace was built upon a large platform that included offices for council meetings, court proceedings, and storehouses where tribute was stored. The empire itself consisted of at least 340 different settlements, though only four of these were large cities. These were located within the basin of Lake Patzcuaro, and the largest was the capital of Tsinsunsan, founded around 1000 AD as a center of worship, and by 1350 or so, was a sprawling city, with a population of somewhere between 25 and 35,000 people. Tsinsunsan presided over a clear hierarchy of settlements. Three were nearby and had populations of about 5,000 people each. One, which was, was a fortified site, wherein the king sometimes kept court. But the vast majority of Tarascans lived a very rural life. Most lived in hamlets, villages, and towns, not big cities. Despite this, though, much of the Tarascan's ability to defend itself and to maintain law and order came from a highly organized administrative structure, and that included a professional army, which made the Tarascans unlike other Mesoamerican societies. Most of the soldiers in the Tarascan army spent their time in a chain of fortified cities on the border with the Aztecs, and eventually a large buffer zone with small statelets developed between the two empires. At any rate, uh, let's return now to the Valley of Oaxaca, where we last left off um, with the dissolution of Monte Alban. Now, perhaps 10 or 12 different little petty states developed after this, which created a period of political balkanization in the region. Um, This was magnified, in fact, because uh, unlike... Certainly unlike the Yucatan, very different than the Yucatan, where mainly Maya people lived. Uh, Oaxaca was comprised of three ethnic groups, Zapotecs, Mixtecs, and Chatinos, uh, who all lived in the valley. And with that said, um, in part because of that, it's kind of tough for archaeologists to make a little bit of heads and tails of the history of Oaxaca, as spectacular as it was. Um... In the words of Richard Adams, quote, the mysteries of quasars and black holes in outer space are easier to explain, unquote. This is in part because archaeologists rely heavily on pottery to document the past. But Mixtec pottery was very popular during the post-classic period. And so the home of a Zapotec person in a Zapotec city might in fact contain plenty of Mixtec pottery. Now, it should be obvious to us 
since we've been talking about trade and luxury goods, that this sort of thing was happening in Mesoamerica all the time. But to make matters murkier, Mixtec, Zapotec, and Chatino elites began intermarrying on a, very re- on a regular basis by 1250 AD. And a long time before that, the cultural folk of the region were engaged in a, in a fusion of their three cultures. Now, one of the major centers in the valley at this time was Mitla, which is a Zapotec religious center and held religious primary, uh, religious primacy, I should say, over other Zapotec communities. Mitla wasn't a large city with a king. It was a center ruled by a priest um, with fasting, penance, Feasting, intoxication, cannibalism, and ritual sacrifice of dogs, birds, and human beings were all the sorts of events that took place there. And while a bit of archaeological confusion exists about the Oaxacan Valley in general, we do know a little bit about the history of the mixed step um, um, because of from a group of preserved codices, which are pre-Columbian manuscripts that, that document a bit of their history. Now, the codices themselves were painted in bright colors on deer or other animal skins and then folded into screen folds and read in a zigzag fashion. That is left to right, then right to left, then left to right again, etc. The codices claim that the commoners of the Valley of Oaxaca came from the center of the earth, but the elites came from the west, having originally been born from the apeola trees. People in the Oaxaca were named after their sacred almanac calendar birthdays, although they also got a nickname on their eighth birthday, which distinguished them from other people born on the same day. So, for example, in Oaxacan history, there are three important figures all named Eight Deer after their birthday. Eight Deer Tiger Claw was a conqueror. Eight Deer Quetzal Cobweb and Eight Deer Fire Serpent were both later kings. Now, Each small city-state in the region kept its own such records in an important temple or palace, though only a few have survived to this day. Fortunately, for the purposes of my storytelling, these surviving codices reveal to us the fascinating story of Eight-Deer Tiger Claw. He was born in 1011 AD, the son of the ruler of the city of Tilantogo, whose name was Five-Alligator Rainsun. Chilantogo dominated an area in the northern Mixteca Alta, and it is believed that five alligator rain sun was involved in military incursions against collapsing Maya states in the 10th century, and, or at least there are a number of pottery objects found in uh, the altar of Sacrificios region, which mentions someone named Five Alligator. It's, of course, possible that this was someone else altogether, though, but either way, Five Alligator was a successful conqueror until he died in 1030 AD, and that left his son Eight Deer Tiger Claw at the throne on the age of 19. Now, it's likely that a region acted for Eight Deer for the first few years of his reign, but before long, Eight Deer Tiger Claw had shown off an impressive ability and began putting together a system of alliances and tribute, which quickly turned Tilantogo into a very powerful state. It appears that he was greatly helped by the fact that he'd inherited his father's throne, which included the conquered coastal town of Tutupec. Now, with that said, I want to point out that the codices make Eight Deer look like he's some sort of self-made man, as if he simply arrived with Tilantogo with nothing more than the clothes on his back and a small sack. And frankly, the only way that was true 
is if inside the small sack he carried, uh, you know, that small sack was just filled with the Mesoamerican equivalent of millions of dollars. So be that as it may. Eight Deer Tiger Claw went on to conquer a number of, mo- of places. He married his way into the leadership structures of conquered cities. He took multiple wives. He made allies with necessary to maintain his rule. One codex specifically mentions he was married to five different women. And he was rewarded for it by his great conquests by having his nose perforated and a jade nose plug inserted, signifying his elevation and rank. But like many who live by the sword, he died by the sword. Eight Deer Tiger Claw went to war one too many times and attacked the town of some of his in-laws who were able to take him prisoner in battle. They promptly sacrificed Eight Deer Tiger Claw to the gods, and like any great man of Mesoamerica, he was given a proper burial, which is sewn in the codex as him seated in a mummified bundle within a stone chamber, incense pots smoking around the once great conqueror. Now, an interesting bit of information, the last few pages of the Oaxacan historical codices were of, excuse me, the, 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 not just the, the Oaxacan, the, the Tilantogo codices, excuse me, uh, in Oaxaca, uh, were made, but they weren't filled in. And the record keeping was cut short because this region was conquered by the Aztecs in 1397, whereupon the codex was taken back to Tenochtitlan as part of the war loot. Now, at the time of, the con- of contact, um, when the Spanish arrived, most of Oaxaca was a very diverse place, ethnically, linguistically, and culturally. And it appears that the situation like, was, had been like that for quite some time. As a result, a variety of myths and traditions dotted the region. A similar situation existed, actually, likewise on the coastal plain of Veracruz, where Totonacs, Huastecs, Nahuas, and the historic Olmecs all shared space. Technically, we don't know if the historic Olmecs were the same people as the pre-classical Olmec civilization, uh, or whether it would somebody, some people who had later said, you know, my, like the Aztec decided that they were um, uh, descended from the, the Toltecs. But at any rate, we do know that shortly after uh, the conquest, the historic Olmec population totaled something like 150 or 200,000 people, and they were one of the many subject peoples of the Aztec Empire though this control fell upon local leaders, tax collectors, and garrisons. The historic Olmec were a province of the Aztec Empire, though it was a semi-independent province which paid tribute to Tenochtitlan in the form of rubber, cacao, cotton, and medicinal herbs. The Totonacs inhabited region of Veracruz, once inhabited by the Toltecs. Their capital was called, (laughs) this is going to kill me, Quatochco. That's a hard one for me. There's a lot of use in that, just so you know. Quatochco, which was conquered by the Aztecs in 1450, and then again in 1472 after a result. Another important Totocapan city was Sempoala. Both it and Quatochco were located along major rivers, which, they were, which were used as irrigation s- sources. And this led to an astonishing urban population. The Totonics were an urban people. We don't really have a good idea of how many people lived in Quatochco, the, but the subordinate city of Sempola and its surrounding countryside had a population of around 250,000 people. 
and upwards of 120,000 of those people lived in the city itself. Another Totonac city, Jalapa, was also estimated to have a population of about 120,000 people. So Kwatochko probably had a larger population than either of those, just to throw that out there. At any rate, Sempoala itself was the first major Mesoamerican city to be seen by Spaniards and will be the scene of several important historical events in our next series. Now, at any rate, moving beyond the northern Veracruz, one gets into a vast region of the Huasteca. This was a place of extreme ecological divert complexity and only loosely united by certain cultural traits and language, which, if you're curious, was a form of Maya that is believed to have split off from the rest of Maya languages around 1500 BC. At any rate, the region is poorly understood by archaeologists, archaeologists, though many of the people who lived there did so in villages, not in large cities. And many people here depended not on agriculture, but on hunting, gathering, and fishing. They were sometimes allied with more urban, southern populations, and sometimes were in conflict with them. And as we've been talking about all episode, they have a lot to do with the history of Mesoamerica, since occasionally large movements of people left the Huasteca and went south across Mesoamerica, and this sometimes, often I should say, created domino effects further south. Now, likewise, at times, the wild Huastec region contracted when empires like the Aztecs, the Toltecs, and Teotihuacan established colonies up north. Now, another region I want to mention is the Valley of Toluca, which was between the Tarascans to the west and the Aztecs to the east. Not exactly an enviable location. The people who lived here were the Mat- Matlazinka. Their principal city was Tecacic. They were conquered by the Toltec and later had great difficulties again with their more powerful neighbors uh, in the 15th century. Eventually, they were conquered by the Aztecs after a series of wars uh, from 1473 to 76. In 1510, the city rebelled, and as a result, the Aztecs um, uh, attacked the city again. And as a result, and at the end of that battle, the Aztecs won, they destroyed the town, they abolished it. I should point out, this did not stop the Aztecs from continuing to collect the Matzalinka's tribute, which they simply started collecting from the nearby city of Claxtalhuaca. At any rate, one last geographical mention, place I'm going to mention, before getting onto the Aztecs, I should say, is the Tehuacan Valley. It had a total population of maybe 120,000 people at the eve of the conquest. The region was important for salt production. And that was the reason for the existence of Coxcatlan, the principal city of the region. Coxcatlan itself was a tributary of the Mixtec city, um, Teotitlan del Camino. It's not an important city. And really, the whole reason I even bring it up is that it is the location of one of the greatest archaeological mysteries of all time. Now, the city contained a number of craftsmen involved in spinning, weaving, and pottery making. And in one of these commoners' homes was a kiln. And that's important just because it's one of the few examples of prehistoric Mesoamerican kilns which has survived. And so archaeologists know what they look like. For a stranger, though, within the home of this poor potter's house was a carved Olmec figurine made out of greenstone, an antique which was 
2,400 years old, and the presence of which in this humble potter's house just simply cannot be easily explained. At any rate, that finally brings us to the Aztecs, which is a culture I can explain a little more about. That is despite the fact that the capital city of the Aztec Empire is gone. Tenochtitlan was systematically taken apart and destroyed during the um, Spanish conquest. So too were many of the records of the city destroyed, and in short order, most of the inhabitants were killed. For this reason, we have a very incomplete understanding of the people known to history most prominently as the Aztecs. So now that we are finally talking about them properly, I suppose I should tell you, in case you don't already know, that the term for these people is actually, the proper term, I should say, is actually the Mexica. Tenochtitlan sat in the basin of Mexico, in the location of present-day Mexico City, on the western side of a chain of interconnected lakes, Zaltocan, Texcoco, and Chalco, from north to south, respectively. Tenochtitlan was on an island in Lake Texcoco, though a number of other cities exist as well, some quite large, such as it is believed that probably more than 2.5 million people lived in the basin of Mexico, and perhaps uh, it seems like at least half a million people lived in Tenochtitlan. Now, before we get into anything else, then, we better answer the question of how these, all these people were fed. Now, in part, the answer was that not all of them always were all of the time. In this packed urban environment, food was sometimes hard to come by. And in years of drought, it wasn't uncommon for the poorer residents of Tenochtitlan to be forced to sell their children into slavery. With that said, the Basin of Mexico was one of the most intensively exploited agricultural zones in all of Mesoamerica. Practically every part of available land where people weren't living was farmed. In the highland slopes of surrounding mountains, a slash-and-burn agriculture was used. Large irrigation systems were built to both utilize both floodwater zones and to build canals, and where this wasn't done, dry farming was widely practiced. But the most famous farming technique used in the basin of Mexico was the chinampa, the so-called floating garden. These were made by growing floating mats of water plants in rectangular shapes and then floating these to suitable parts of the marsh where they would be staked down by small cypress trees which would take root and start to grow. Then successive layers of vegetation would be dragged into place in this way until the chinampa was raised above the water. So, chinampas actually didn't really float. They were more like small floating islands built out of plants. With that said, the the Mexica did build smaller seed beds out of reeds, cattails, and other water plants upon which germinated seedlings were grown, and these were towed towards the appropriate chinampas for transplanting. Um, Thus, only hardy plants, which were already in the process of succeeding, were used for the um, chinampas. Now, these were usually placed in canals, which were specially dug out for the purpose. Uh, the chinampa would be laid out in a grid-like pattern, which the, or the chiampas, excuse me, 
plural, would be laid out in the grid pattern, in a grid pattern. And that allowed for continual water flow through them. Mud from the, from the canal bottom would be piled up on top. And uh, this process was renewed periodically via special canoe latrines, which collected human waste in Tenochtitlan for the purpose of making soil for the Chinampas. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a horrible job. Anyway, corn, beans, squash, tomatoes, and a variety of other garden crops were grown in the various Chinampas. Each family of farmers was in charge of a number of them, and from these plants, uh, plots of land, a single farmer might expect as many as seven crops in a single year. Immediately, since, especially since immediately after harvest, another set of germinated plants would replace them in the fertilized soil. And this system allowed for amazing year-round productivity with a wide variety of roots, vegetables, cereals, and fruits um, that could support a lot of people. Um, individual chinampas would be dedicated at various times of the year to garden crops or more important staples such as corn. Though in addition, some were dedicated to the production of flowers. Nice-smelling flowers, as you point out, were very important to the Aztecs. Seriously, perhaps more so than any other culture in the world. At any rate, in addition to growing crops in the marshes, uh, waterfowl and aquatic animals were hunted, protein from migratory birds, fish, turtles, and a large salamander called the axolotl made up a significant part of the Aztec diet. Now, the Chinampa system was actually developed long before the arrival of the Mexica. People in the basin of Mexico were building Chinampas in BC times, but lake levels rose from about 1 AD to about 1200 AD, so a lot fewer of them were constructed during this period, because uh, simply because much of the marshy areas uh, of the lakes had developed into deeper waterways and they just weren't possible. But uh, the water levels of the lakes dropped back down around 1200 AD, and by 1400 AD, population pressures alone might have helped spread the Chinampa system into new marshes, and the Mexica did this on a massive scale, which indicated central planning in the project since the grids of Chinampas, feeder canals, and main canals, they were simply far too well integrated to have been the responsibility of individual farmers or even individual communities. Small islands were likewise built in the marshes to support the increased population. These were large enough for homes, and some were even large enough for entire communities. This was done by building a foundation out of posts and wickerwork into the marsh bottom and filling the space between with uh, filling the space between these posts with mud and vegetation. Now, if that isn't impressive enough. Uh, then you should know that this is the, clearly the exact same process by which the, Ten, the Aztecs built the island upon which sat the cities of Tenochtitlan and Tlatelolco. Now, the area where Tenochtitlan sits is a place where Chinampa-style far, farming is ideal. It is shallow, mostly freshwater, and marshy. But the area was not able to be extensively farmed until after the arrival of the Mexica because the other side of the lake was salty, and occasional floods drove salt water from the eastern side of the lake to the western side of the lake. And if this happened, Chinampas would be ruined for substantial periods of time until salt could be flushed out with, with fresh water. Now, after the Aztecs rose to power, 
they employed civil engineers from the nearby city of Texcoco and over a 13-year period built a long dike to control the flooding problem and then followed this up with the construction of an aqueduct leading from some freshwater springs and excuse me, leading, the aqueduct led from some freshwater springs um, to build, to bring freshwater to the Chinampas as well as for household use. And this massive undertaking was completed in 1466. Now, the Chinampa system within and around Tenochtitlan was complicated, sophisticated, and but with that said, it only supplied something like 15% of the food required by Tenochtitlan. Thus, the Chinampas functioned as an integral part of an even more complex system. The surrounding valleys of Morelos, Puebla, and Mezquital, and Toluca, to the south, east, north, and west, respectively, and along with the Basin of Mexico, all formed an interconnected region of trade. Each of these places basically grew most of the same crops, but each also had its own specialty crops and varieties. So the markets of Tenochtitlan were filled with tropical fruits, cotton and cacao from the Morelos and Guerrero regions, beans and chan from the Valley of Pueblo, maize and beans from Toluca, and in general, maize surpluses were more common in the far eastern reaches of the empire near the Gulf of Veracruz, and in times of need, this region was heavily exploited by Tenochtitlan. Now, besides building uh, farms out in the swamps and marshes, the Aztecs also built terrace farms in the hills. On steeply sloped hillsides, the Aztecs built stone walls to create more farmland. On more gently sloped hillsides, roads of mahogany plants were all that was required to keep erosion in check. Maugwe plants, excuse me, I don't, I don't know how I'm pronouncing that, if that's right or not. Honestly, I, they had the additional benefits that was used to, because magwe was used to produce pulque, which is a Mesoamerican alcoholic drink, and also uh, clothing were made from the fibers. In valleys, uh, irrigation canals and aqueducts were, were built. Now, the incredible scope of these agricultural products, projects, projects enabled the Mexica to reach an extraordinary population level. Over a million Aztecs lived in the Central Valley of Mexico by, by about 1500, and another 2 million Aztecs lived in the surrounding valleys. And I want to be clear, I'm talking about Mexicans, not other Mesoamericans, together with their subject peoples. The entire empire had a population of something somewhere between 6 and 9 million people. Now, to be further clear, there were, besides these tremendous amounts of people, millions of other people in Mesoamerica, for example, the people in the Tarascan Empire, who did not live in the Aztec Empire. Lots of these people, maybe even most of these people in the Aztec Empire, that is, lived in dispersed rural settlements. Most people were farmers, at least part-time, but villages, towns, and cities were also common. And while different numbers of population density existed, the one way we can generalize um, that, you know, in the, in the 15th century, uh, for sure, there was no place in Mesoamerica where you would say, well, there's no people living here. Now, not all of these people were farmers, of course. Many people living in the Aztec Empire were artisans, full or part-time, and these people worked in a variety of different trades. 
One of the largest group of these were stone knappers, many of whom specialized in the creation of obsidian tools. Obsidian, uh, if I didn't mention this earlier, is in a naturally occurring volcanic glass. It's brittle. It breaks easily. And, but it also has the tendency to break into very sharp pieces. If you know what you're doing, you can nap a piece of obsidian into an extremely sharp tool. The edge of an obsidian blade, in fact, can be made sharper than a surgeon's scalpel made out of metal. And even today, obsidian is used for this, for this reason in some uh, medical tools. The Aztecs used obsidian to make knives, sickles, razors, drills, scrapers, arrow points, and a variety of other cutting tools. The most famous uh, use of Aztec obsidian, though, was the Macuahuitl, which is the Nahuatl name for the infamous swords created by the Aztecs. Now, these were made first by making a wooden shaft and then adding opposing rows of obsidian blades. So a Macuahuitl basically doesn't look all that different from, say, like a, a chainsaw, only with much sharper teeth. But that said, more common uses for obsidian blades were actually in other industries, carpentry and woodworking, farming, and textile production especially. Obsidian itself was mined from a few different places in Mesoamerica and then worked by specialists into tools. And since obsidian can be broken pretty easily, and cutting tools are so important, the demand for obsidian tools in Mesoamerica was enormous. So the specialists who worked with obsidian were generally full-time specialists in urban areas, though with that said, there weren't enormous numbers of obsidian workers because a single blade maker could produce something like 200 blades from a single obsidian core in a relatively short period of time. So ancient Mesoamericans used an awful lot of obsidian, and you might even think, that obsidian was the most important tool in the Mesoamerican world. And for purposes of military might and political power, sure, that might be true. But Aztecs required another trade good on an even vaster scale, and that was pottery. Now, you may have heard me say this before, but I get really bored talking about pottery. It's, it's not that I don't like pottery. It's just that archaeologists spend a lot of time talking about and writing about pottery. And, and so while I realize how important it is to helping us understand the past, it's really just not my thing. Now, with that said, though, the Aztecs used pottery for all sorts of different purposes. Each family owned two or three water jugs, several flat tortilla griddles, a variety of cook pots for beans, sauces, and other foods, another pot to soak maize in, a tripod grinding dish for chilies and tomatoes, a salt jar, numerous other plates, bowls, and cups for meals. In addition, pottery was made to use made was used to make religious items, incense burners, burners, excuse me, or the small figurines we've been discussing. Tools like spindle whirls and accompanying bowls for spinning cotton were common household items, as were numerous other items like stamps, discs, bells, balls, whistles, tubes, and miniature cookpots. In fact, not all of the pottery objects found in Mesoamerica can even be easily identified for their use. But all combined, they form by far the single most abundant type of artifact in Aztec archaeology sites. Partly, this is because pottery was so widespread, as we just discussed. It was used in so many different things. Although, partly, this is also because pottery is easily broken into many pieces. 
Many pottery makers were probably general clay workers and made a variety of different vessels, but we also knew that specialists existed. Uh, In particular, there were griddle makers who exclusively made and sold clay griddles for tortillas. Now, with that said, while kilns and pottery manufacturing sites have been discovered in Mesoamerica, none have been discovered in any Aztec sites. So we don't really have a great idea of how the pottery-making industry worked within the Aztec Empire, only that it seemed to work very well. Now, another important industry was cotton textile production. Cotton cloth was made into clothing for men and women, and also into bedding, bags, awnings, and other decorative hangings. It was made into battle armor, as adornments for statues of gods, and for funeral shrouds. Further, cotton textiles were made into long strips of narrow folded cloth, called quachtli, and that served as a form of currency in the markets. In fact, it became an important part of tribute payment. Commoners used common cloth, cotton cloth to pay nobles, and cities paid tribute to Tenochtitlan likewise in cotton. Over time, as the Aztec Empire became increasingly stratified, cotton clo- clothing became illegal for commoners to wear, which made cotton an important symbol of nobility in Mexica society. But with that said, women of all types engaged in spinning and weaving cotton cloth. From the lowliest slave to the highest noblewoman in Aztec society, cotton production was an important part of female gender identity. Newborn girls were gifted miniature spinning and weaving tools to symbolize then, and once they started growing up, girls learned how from their mothers how to engage in this activity. And in case you're wondering what young boys were doing while this was going on, they were learning how to fish, which I'm so sure surprises none of you. Cotton itself doesn't grow in the Central Valley of Mexico. The altitude is too high, and that helps explain why it became such an important trade good. Now, since the commoners didn't wear cotton clothing, uh, the answer to what did they wear is mogwi, which I still don't know if I'm pronouncing right. A plant which grew in plentiful numbers in the central valley of Mexico. As I said, it was made to use pulque, the alcoholic beverage still brewed in Mexico today. But it was also made to make clothing, albeit not nearly as comfortable as cotton clothing. Mogwe fibers are coarse and long, so in addition to clothing, it was also used to make rope and twine, and that ought to give you an idea of just how much itchier common commoners were in the Aztec world than their noble counterparts. Now, all of these industries were ancient professions in Mesoamerica, but not so of our next subject. Copper and bronze tools were introduced into Mesoamerica originally from South America, and sophisticated methods for working gold, silver, and copper were developed in the Andes. Around 700 AD, though, seaborne traders introduced copper-working techniques into West Mexico, and by 500 years later, around 1200 AD, new techniques were introduced to Mesoamerica that allowed for the Aztec and other Mesoamerican peoples to start turning copper into bronze. Briefly, bronze is an alloy, a combination of metals primarily made of copper. Aztec metalsmiths added small amounts of tin or small amounts of arsenic to copper and thus created different varieties of bronze. 
and then could use a variety of techniques to shape this, be it cold hammering, hot hammering, open mold casting, and or lost wax casting. And these were all used to make products such as bells, rings, tweezers, ornaments, sewing needles, chisels, axes, awls, and fish hooks, amongst other things. Now, basically, if you add a tiny amount of tin or arsenic to copper, then you've got a much harder or stronger metal without being brittle. If you add a little more, say 10 or 20% instead of 5%, then the metal becomes more brittle, but it also shines like gold or silver, a technique used for more artistic items like jewelry, as you might imagine. Aztec craftsmen also produced a wide variety of other luxury goods, especially working in it with feathers. Now, you might wonder how important feather working could possibly be, but let me tell you, the Aztecs were a very artistic culture, and perhaps their most unique art form involved a lot of ceremonial feather work. Fans, shields, warriors' costumes, capes, headdresses, and decorative hangings were all made by tying and gluing colorful feathers onto other products, And these items were some of the most important and valuable items within Aztec society. Very, very few of these objects remain. Eight, to be specific. So we don't have a lot to look at nowadays, but it is clear from the historical record that the long tail feathers of the Quetzal bird were particularly sought after for their iridescent green coloring. The importance of the Quetzal feathers in Mesoamerican culture in general can be seen in the name of the feathered serpent god Quetzalcoatl. Feather workers lived in their own special neighborhoods, or capulis, capulis, excuse me, in, in major cities like Tenochtitlan, Tlatelolco, and Texcoco. They had their own temples and schools, and they formed a very exclusive occupation. Uh, They were similarly organized to medieval European guilds where tradesmen instructed their sons in a trade and jealously guarded the secrets of how to make these special objects. Now, as far as featherworking in the Aztec world went, you basically start with a panel of cotton and mogwe and then add glue and feathers to this. Now, it should be noted that despite their privileged position, feather workers were not nobility and were strictly forbidden from wearing their own creations. And if they became wealthy enough, um, they were forbidden from showing off their wealth. Now, with that said, it was possible for other commoners to buy feathers in theory. It wasn't illegal, like wearing cotton, but most Aztecs could not afford feather goods. And so most of the feather mosaics were purchased by nobles, priests, and, uh, and a few wealthy merchants. Another privileged class of artisans were goldsmiths who made jewelry, you know, by first making molds of wax, which would burn, melt away in the smelting process, but by which Aztecs were uh, able to make all sorts of necklaces, pendants, and other jewelry. I should point out that the Aztecs weren't exactly metalworking specialists. Goldsmithing was very rare within the Aztec population, and most of the best goldsmiths came from the Mixtec populations in the Valley of Oaxaca. Uh, similarly, most of the best bronze workers came from West Mexico, and in fact, the ter- and were Tarascans. And so, most of the Aztec metal goods were actually trade goods from elsewhere in Mesoamerica. But small local industries for these products did exist within the empire as well. Like featherworking, goldsmithing was a hereditary occupation. The secrets of this craft were closely guarded and required a long, lengthy apprenticeship to a master. 
Now, not all jewelry was made of gold in the Aztec world, of course. Lip pendants, plugs, earrings, and all sorts of necklaces and bracelets were made of precious stones as well. Obsidian ear spools were favored by Aztec nobles and were so well crafted by specialists that I actually highly recommend you do like a Google image search for Aztec obsidian ear spools, just so you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, in addition, jade, turquoise, amethyst, shirt, chert, and shell were also common materials involved in the lapidary industry. And I don't mean common, as in commoners could purchase them, just to be clear. These were almost exclusively for the nobility as well. In addition to jewelry, mosaics were sometimes made from a type, special type of stone and shell, uh, the most spectacular being human skulls, which Aztecs would cover with stone and shell tiles. In addition, wealthy Aztecs would purchase special knife handles, stone sculptures, and, and a variety of other objects inlaid with precious stones. Now, the makers of these various goods were joined by craftsmen like basket makers and arrow makers to form the bulk of Aztec society. These artisans sold their goods at market, whether or not they were full-time specialists or part-time specialists who also farmed. Now, of course, agricultural goods also formed a very important part of the markets as well. Now, markets were opened four times each month each Mesoamerican month, mind you, so once every five days, though the largest cities, uh, like Tenochtitlan, had markets open daily. The largest market in Mesoamerica was Tlatelolco, Tenochtitlan's twin, although I should point out that by the late 1400s, these two cities, which had started off as at, on opposite ends of an island, had grown so large that they grew into each other and had become one giant city. Excuse me, and that's essentially why the Tenochtitlan's population was something like five or 600,000 people. Every day, tens of thousands of buyers and sellers crowded into this market to sell hundreds of different types of goods in Tlatelolco. And in fact, many of the principal inhabitants of the Aztec's second city were powerful Pochteca merchants. With that said, any community of any size held markets. Now, some were specialized, um, and, 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 and specialized in specific types of goods, but all generally had an enormous variety of selection. Communities, smaller communities, I should say, might specialize in producing pottery or salt, adobe products or cloth in addition to agricultural goods. The cities of Atzcapotzalco in Itzocan were known for having large slave markets. Akelman was known for selling dogs little chihuahuas, which were bred to be eaten originally, not as pets. They were fattened up a bit more than most mo healthy chihuahuas nowadays, I'd say. Texcoco, in a, which was a city across the lake from Tenochtitlan, was noted for its cloth, fine gourds, and exquisitely worked ceramics. Cholula, east of the valley, was known for jewelry, precious stones, and fine featherwork. In addition, paper, tobacco, Various ointments, animal skins, cooked foods, and honey were all items which would be found in, in markets. Now, generally speaking, the market system of the Aztecs was protected by the state. No one could transact business outside of official markets, which was where, because of special officials were there to keep order and maintain quality control. Three judges, in fact, attended each market to decide disputes, 
Commodities might be exchanged via barter, but far more frequently, transactions were completed using the monetary system of the Aztecs, which consisted of cotton cloaks, cacao beans, and gold dust. Now, we know a lot more about the highest level of merchant in the Aztec world, the famous Pochteca. Pochteca, as I said earlier, were full-time professional traders. They were responsible for for a vast amount of trade in luxury goods that occurred across Mesoamerica. A big reason we know so much about them is because um, early Spanish accounts talk a lot about them, and in contrast speak very little about these small-time grocers and craftsmen that made up the majority of the economy. But with that said, Pochteca were very important in Mesoamerican society. In addition to making large expeditions that uh, could last many months, Uh, To conduct trade in distant areas, they served as important sources of information, occasionally serving as spies. Like the luxury goods, um, like the luxury trades in Mesoamerica, the Pochteca organized themselves into guilds, and in within which were closely controlled hereditary membership. There were in all total 12 guilds of Pochteca merchants uh, in the Aztec Empire, each based in one of the one of the important cities of the empire. And the Pochteca were probably the highest class one could belong to and not the nobility. Now, besides the markets, the other way in which goods were moved from place to place was uh, by the system of tribute. Uh, The Aztecs taxed a vast number of people, groups, and cities. And each of them were responsible for very specific amounts of tribute in the form of maize, chilies, beans, cotton, water, fuel, and domestic service. The amount of tribute which the Aztecs asked for could be oppressive. The amount of foodstuffs, manufactured items, slaves for sacrifice or for sale, and raw materials was staggering. One year of tribute that Tenochtitlan received, for which we have records, records the city as having received 6,000 tons of corn, 4,000 tons of beans, 400 tons of cheyenne and amaranth, and a total of 18, what, what that totals up to 18,000, excuse me, good grief, 18,000 metric tons, which, for my American friends, is 19,841 standard tons. In addition, 10,000 quetzal feathers were collected that year, and vast uh, quantities of clothing, warrior costumes, honey, jadeite, and wood products were demanded. And added all together, it was truly a stunning amount of tribute. So anyway, before moving on from the Aztec economy, I I think I'm going to better flesh out their monetary system. I, I mentioned cotton textiles being important, but so too was gold dust. Obviously, gold is just very rare. But it's more surprising, I think, to hear that the Aztecs used cacao beans as currency. And that's because cacao only grew in the southern tropics of Mesoamerica. And so it was rare enough in the Central Valley that it was also used as currency. Uh, Only the southernmost province of the Aztec Empire grew cacao beans. Now, the Aztecs used cacao to make hot chocolate, but only wealthy nobles could afford to drink their money. An obsidian knife, for example, cost five cacao beans. One good turkey hen, capable of providing hens, would cost a hundred, whereas just one turkey egg cost three. Red meat was rare in Mesoamerica, what with all the people, and so a rabbit might cost anywhere from 30 to 100 beans, depending on its size. 
whereas a tomato would only cost a single bean. And a fresh avocado cost three beans, although three beans would also get you a fish wrapped in maize husks. So spend wisely. Cacao was used as currency enough that counterfeiting was a problem. Unscrupulous vendors would remove the outermost layer of skin from a bean and fill it with dirt or sawdust and would toss fake beans in with a batch of real ones to be passed off to unsuspecting customers. Perhaps as a result of this issue, most larger purchases, though, were made with cotton. The different sizes and grades of cotton strips of money were worth 65, 80, and 100 cacao beans, respectively, though particularly well-made artistic cotton strips could be worth as much as 300 beans. Now, with that said, your average commoner made an equivalent of perhaps 20 cotton strips a year. In contrast, wealthy Aztec nobles would regularly go to market and spend 25 cotton strips on a gold earplug. And for if you wanted a necklace made of jade beads, you were talking 600 cotton cloth strips. So you can get a sense of the, of the vast difference between rich and poor. Now, altogether, this means the, Aztec had a, the Aztecs had a highly complex economy. This constant exchange of money and goods bound the various regions of Mesoamerica together just as much as any other factor, like shared religious beliefs. This dynamic economy connected the Aztecs to the rest of Mesoamerica and beyond that connected trade. Uh, and beyond that, the trade connected Mesoamerica to the Caribbean and North and South America. And altogether, the Americas were a highly commercialized place, despite what you might believe. But it certainly wasn't capitalist. There was no wage labor. Nobody was getting paid in cacao beans. People weren't paid for their time at all, in fact. And land wasn't a commodity to be bought or sold. Markets and trade provided the most important way, perhaps, for Aztec commoners to advance themselves. Um, But this was limited. They were not ever going to become nobles, no matter how wealthy they might become. An inseparable chasm existed between commoners and nobility, and it simply could not be crossed. Though it is fair to say that the Pochteca and some of the wealthier artisans did form something akin to an Aztec uh, middle class. And I say that could not be crossed. We'll talk about how it could be crossed in war, uh, just not generationally. Anyway, as for the capital of Tenochtitlan, it was built upon an artificially constructed island that it shared with the city of Tlatelolco. The island began with the build-up of Chinampa construction and the use of small islets and landfill operations around them, and over time this became a larger and larger island until not one, but two cities were built upon it. In total, the island measured 14 square kilometers, making it the largest of 19 artificial islands built by the Mexica on the western side of Lake Texcoco. The other 18 island communities were smaller. Most were towns, which specialized in fishing, agriculture, or various craft making. And most of the high-density urban buildup on the lake was confined to the main island. Poorer residents of Tenochtitlan, like the farmers who worked in the Chinampa districts within the city, had very small homes, uh, much smaller than the even poorer farmers who lived outside of the city. Now, as the Aztecs built their city with the help of their own system of measurements, I should say, which consisted um, mainly of the omittal and the matal. And omittal translates into English as bone, 
and is a measurement that is equivalent to a little less than two feet. And a matel translates its hand, which is the equivalent of three omitals. Anyway, at the center of Tenochtitlan were 25 pyramid temples, nine attached priest quarters, several skull racks, two ball courts, weapons arsenals, shops, and a number of palaces and other administrative structures. The central square of the city was a sacred place. The entire city was planned from the beginning in accordance with the sacred calendar and certain features of the landscape, as were numerous cities in Mesoamerica. All of these buildings were decorated with various sculptures commemorating the mythical event, uh, the mythical events of the arrival of the Mexica and the founding of Tenochtitlan, as in fact were other parts of the city. Uh, in the exact center of the city was the temple of Huitzilopochtli, and from that point, the major avenues of the city radiated outwards, north and south, east and west. And these major thoroughfares divided the city into four quarters. Each quarter contained four pyramidal temples, and all of these were aligned towards the great temple of Huitzilopochtli, at the center of the city, which itself was aligned so that the sun crossed over the top of the great temple each morning. The temple of Huitzilopochtli sat upon the place where, according to Aztec myth, a priest leading the people to a new place uh, saw an eagle devouring a snake while perched upon a nopal cactus, something the priest was apparently looking for specifically. The great temple was rebuilt and enlarged seven different times during the lifetime of the city. The earliest version dates to about 1428. The archaeological record, therefore, speaks basically to a near-continuous uh, 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 nearly continuous construction projects which enlarged and refurbished the building uh, throughout the history of the city. Now, around the city's central zones were concentrations of smaller houses without chinampas, and beyond them, houses that were even smaller that belonged to chinampa farmers and their extended families. These houses were generally one-story residences surrounded by a wall that contained a house and a large open space that kind of functioned as like a front yard, Several generations um, and, in, and related families would live in each one of these buildings. So we're talking about probably anywhere from 10 to 30 people uh, of both sexes and, and all ages might be found in a single home. Six major canals ran through the city from north to south, and many small feeder canals uh, uh, went, you know, traveled into these. And in addition, two more can major canals ran east to west, and this further dissected the urban space. So the best way to get around Tenochtitlan was by canoe. And on any given day, tens or even hundreds of thousands of small boats would travel the lakes and canals, carrying people and supplies to and fro. In addition to the convenience of not having to walk, a man propelling weight by canoe could carry 40 times the weight which he might carry on his back. But with that said, huge causeways were constructed as well, which connected the island to other islands and to the mainland. So plenty of people traveled around on foot as well. Now with all the waterways, Tenochtitlan was divided into a total of 60 or 70 wards. Each of these had their own temple, school, and administrative building. And judging from this, the number of buildings in Tenochtitlan, which were not homes, was well into the hundreds. And the city was dotted with smaller plazas around various Kalpuli buildings were grouped. With all that said, 
Tenochtitlan was the south end of the island. The city of Tatalalco on the north end was nearly as impressive. Well, like I mentioned, these two cities eventually grow into each other. That, that's, that happens in the late 15th century. Now, further across the lake was the city of Texcoco, another major city. So we are talking about an envir- urban environment for which all intents and purposes was just as busy and jostling with commerce and noise and people as all but the very largest of modern megacities. Now, Tenochtitlan was a city with a hierarchical social structure. Specific lineages were very important. The Yopico family in particular furnished many of the top leadership positions of the Mexica. The Aztec ruler, his family, and the descendants of previous rulers and families made up the highest class of Mesoamerican society called the Pipiltin. Now, this class grew over time, in no small part because men who were Pipiltin had concubines often as well as their wives, and the children of their concubines were also considered Pipiltin. So, Pipiltin boys made up the vast majority of students, at Aztec schools, which were called Kalmakak, though the Kalmakak schools also uh, did allow in a certain number of commoner students as well. Students of Kalmakaks prepared for careers in the priesthood, in politics, or in the army, though the students at the Kalmakaks also received what might be termed a liberal arts education. They received training in sciences, literature, and other intellectual pursuits, which undoubtedly helped them stand apart from their peers at parties. Under the Pipiltine was a class of lower nobles, and most of the remaining prestigious duties not assigned to the Pipiltine fell upon the young men and women who came from six favored wards. So these were probably the locations of the most powerful noble families besides the Yopico, and and, and were trained at the Kalmakaks. Now, in some ways, um, you could say that Aztec society was kind of based on the desires and whims of the Pipilton. But on the other hand, the most important social group in Aztec society was the, uh, the Kalpuli, which I, I've mentioned, but I haven't really described. And now, Kalpuli were communal social groups responsible for working specific pieces of land. Kalpuli membership basically happened at birth. And essentially, these were comprised of people who lived in the various rural communities or the wards of various cities. Mexica families traced descent through the male line, and groups of these lineages were formed Calpulis. So essentially, the Calpuli is the Aztec version of a clan. One of the lineages within a Calpuli traditionally furnished the, the ruler of the Calpuli, uh, though power would often be split between this ruler and the council of head of households, and they decided which individual families required which plots of land. Families basically had their lands increased or decreased depending on the number of children they had. Calpuli leadership also made sure that in case of illness or death in a family, that that family would be taken care of. And besides agriculture, the Calpulis worked on large-scale construction projects when required such as the maintenance of irrigation works or the construction of temples. Calpulis were responsible for paying a tax. This included both manufactured goods and food and group labor. In times of war, the Calpuli units went to battle as units. Generally, about two, anywhere from two to 400 men would be in, in each one. Now, most Calpulis seem to have been groups of commoners attached to specific noble houses. 
powerful noble houses might divide land between various Calpulis in return for tribute. With that said, some Calpulis seem to have been tied directly to the rulers of entire city-states, though in this case the Calpuli was still required to render tribute and a rotational labor service. Don't, don't get it twisted. Now, Calpulis also operated schools, Young men who were commoners were mainly educated in this places, not at the Kalmakaks, and Kalpuli schools were called Telpochkali. The instruction here emphasized military training, which made them not all that different from the Kalmakaks. Um, at any rate, the average size of these schools ranged from about 400 or four to 600 students or so uh, at any given time. Each Kalpuli also had its own temple and patron deity, so the Kalpuli was basically the fundamental unit of Aztec society. Basically, all religious, political, economic, and military organization within Aztec society were comprised of Kalpulis, built by Kalpulis, and supported by Kalpulis. This can be seen in the architecture of the small community centers, which were at the heart of each Kalpuli. These were basically smaller versions of the larger city squares, containing one large house for the Kalpuli ruler, which doubled as an, as an administrative building, and this was where the Kalpuli land maps were located. The main square also contained the young men's school and a nearby residence, which was where young men lived until they were married. The temple and pyramid would also be there, and the square itself acted as a local marketplace for the residents of the Kalpuli. Now, Kalpulis were almost entirely comprised of Aztec citizens whose social mobility could change temporarily. Landed estates were passed down generation to generation, uh, and these were reserved for the Aztec nobility. But for the commoners, or what the Aztec called the Mesualten, service to the state in war, religion, or trade might enable substantial upward mobility, such that they could obtain the position of Eagle Knight, or Quapipilton in Nahua. Eagle Knights were entitled to estates complete with their own serfs as a labor force, just like the nobility had, except that this was only a lifetime appointment. And when the Mesualtin, who had achieved the rank of Eagle, Knight, Eagle Noble, died, his descendants did not inherit the estate. Now, with that said, there were significant numbers of people who were landless serfs. Now, whether they worked for a, a Pipilton or the Qua Pipilton, uh, it didn't really matter. There, there were no shortage of peasants who resided in the Aztec Empire who had very little land rights at all, if any. As you might imagine, a far greater number of Mesoamericans resided in this way than, say, as Eagle Knights or as wealthy Pochteca merchants. Um, and these Mesualtans were generally born outside of the Calpuli system, is how you, how you got there generally, and thus outside uh, of the Aztec system of landed rights. Now, you might think then that being a Mesualtan without Calpuli rights would be right at the bottom of Aztec society. Well, if you think that, then you've forgotten about or never knew about all the slaves. Slaves, or Tlacotin, were not only landless, but had no individual rights. When famines occurred, it was common for starving, starving families to sell their children in hopes they would survive as servants in the homes of wealthy families. Gambling was another source of slavery. 
Apparently, some Aztec gamblers were so addicted to making wagers that some people actually bet their freedom on the outcome of various games. Though neither of these were the most common source of slaves, a far more likely reason for enslavement was to be taken captive in war. Now, slaves might be taken for a variety of reasons during a war, for sacrifice, of course, more on that very soon, but the vast majority of slaves taken in Aztec wars ended up being sold to nobles or post-Teca merchants. Female slaves were often put to work weaving cotton, literally making money for their owners, but slaves might be asked to do any variety of tasks. Usually this meant becoming a servant to some noble family. Slavery was very widespread in the Aztec world, but slaves were not used to perform agricultural or construction projects, at least not on a, on a mass scale, which made it a little different than uh, uh, the slavery that existed in the old world. Slavers could buy their freedom if they got a chance, and their children were born free, but they could also be bought and sold. A slave uh, wearing a wooden collar signified such a slave was on sale. And in fact, some post-Teca merchants specialized in the slave trade. So with that said, most land was held by individual capulis or by noble families. But with that said, a not insignificant amount of land was attached to public offices. Salaries for high office came in the form of land and the wealth that such real estate could generate. Temples and schools all also had small pot lots of land worked by temple acolytes or by students. Some land, too, was set aside for defense. In conquered regions, regions especially, uh, where um, communities would, would have a, a plot of land set aside to support the local garrison. Now, over time, Aztec society, as aristocratic as it was, was becoming more increasingly rigid and aristocratic. Emperor Moctezuma II, in fact, made it a crime for commoners to enter the same waiting room as his palace, in his palace that the nobility waited in. And while some Calpulis were well off, many were quite poor, and all had a ranked status within Aztec society. Birth into favored Calpulis was the requirement for membership into the elite warrior societies, the Jaguar, Eagle, and Otomi warrior societies, respectively. And each of these had their own special uniforms and fought as their own units. At the same time, the Pipiltine was constantly expanding thanks to the fact that the children of concubines obtained Pipiltine status. Now, with that said, within the various Calpulis, people were voted into various offices. So on some level, like uh, on some level, um, you had a problem, I guess I should say, in Aztec society where uh, – because hereditary rule, like I said, is not the best way to get people in charge. But this was mitigated somewhat by the fact that there wasn't just one person to pick whenever a job opened, be it the head of a Calpuli or the next emperor. Moctezuma II was the nephew of the preceding ruler, not his son. But if the high nobility who chose the very religious Moctezuma II – um, to lead the Aztec Empire had known in advance, for some reason, that an invasion of marauding Spanish conquistadors was about to show up, they probably would have instead selected Moctezuma II's successor, a, the much more warlike Cuauhtémoc, who might very well have better resisted the Spaniards, um, considering 
that at a number of points they were pretty weakened before the eventual contest. I digress. At any rate, uh, we still haven't fully explored Aztec society because within the urban areas, smaller classes of urban dwellers existed, gamblers, thieves, prostitutes, and beggars. These were all social groups large enough in Aztec society that they were mentioned on occasion. The game of patuli involved numerology, the sacred calendar, and had a board... uh, like a, a board game, like 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 uh, Parcheesi, essentially. And I don't really know anything about it, how to play or anything like that, but Aztec gamblers were obsessed. They loved placing bets on the outcomes of ball games as well. Um, thieves were a problem in cities. Especially powerful criminal bands might strip entire households of their goods on occasion. And prostitutes were common enough that young soldiers returning home from successful campaigns never seemed to have any trouble finding them. Um, in addition, porters, innkeepers, and barbers all existed in, in cities, uh, fully showing off the, the, the fully urban status of places like Tenochtitlan. At any rate, the political organization of the Aztec Empire was likewise complex. The ruler of Tenochtitlan, and for that matter, of all the 59 different city-states which existed in the Basin of Mexico around the year 1519, were each ruled by a king called the Tlatoni. The Tlatoni was a member of the Pipiltine, as you might imagine. He lived in a palace with his harem, bodyguards, and various other members of the court. The Tlatoni also had his own land and serfs. Uh, like all members of the Papeltine did. In addition, he received tribute in the form of labor and services. Since the Tlatoni had the power to reward supporters with estates of deceased eagle knights, who, if you'll recall, were temporary nobles, he had enormous power to bind allegiance to his talented supporters. Now, with that said, Tlatoni's power was limited by religion. Rulers ruled by divine right. They claimed descent from the divine Quetzalcoatl by means of the Toltecs, and for this reason, the highest levels of Pipeltine were just as obsessed with heritage as any of the rulers of Europe. Besides, uh, and, and other than when dynasties basically traded wives to each other, very little new blood would get into these royal blinds otherwise. And, and this tended to lock different city-states into alliances or feuds that could turn into much larger wars, much in the same way that on the eve of World War I, the rulers of England, Germany, and Russia were all cousins. Anyway, now the political structure that I've just described predates the arrival of the Mexica. When the Aztecs first came to the central plateau of Mexico, the situation was as described— Dozens of city-states existed within the Basin of Mexico as mostly independent kingdoms, and it was upon this structure that the Aztec built their empire, dominating these already existing patterns in a not-too-dissimilar fashion as the Toltecs once had, and before that, the empire of Teotihuacan. The Aztecs built upon the legacy of organization that already existed in Mesoamerica. They added their own cultural features of governance, and in doing so, created an empire of astonishing size. Eventually, the Aztecs controlled over 200,000 square kilometers of territory, and ruled at least 5 or 6 million other people who were not Aztecs. They did this by doing the same things that earlier Toltec and Tehecanos had done by building and establishing garrisons alongside important trade routes in far-flung regions to the north and south, in both lowlands and highlands, 
and by establishing dom- dominant positions at the at these points. By doing this, they could avoid having to physically control all of the intervening land between the basin of Mexico and these far-flung colonies. The Aztecs weren't necessarily interested in destroying the pre-existing leadership structures that, exi- structures that existed at the city-state level. Far from it. The empire upon which the Aztecs built was done so by using these pre-existing leadership structures as a foundation. At the top of the Mexica state was a dual leadership. Two moieties ruled the Mexica, one religious, one militaristic. Though in practice, since the state was nearly continuously at war, this meant that the military segment was more dominant, generally speaking. The supreme leader was chosen from a lineage, from a special lineage, by a group of important men. Now, all members of the Pippleton, um, and these were all members of the Pippleton, but not all members of the Pippleton got to vote on the leader. Only the most important officials were allowed to vote. Aztec records say that all civil officials, officials all the Pippleton were attended the election proceedings. But it is evident from reading the records that only the most important had a chance to speak at these meetings. Generally speaking, rule, uh, the Aztecs preferred to pass rule from brother to brother, although this wasn't always the case. Now, the Aztec emperor was assisted by advisors and administrative heads of the various segments of the state departments. These were the departments of spirituality, military, justice, treasure, and treasury and commerce. Together, the emperor and these advisors constituted the executive branch of Aztec government. Each advisor had a number of hierarchically ranked officials serving under him, a system which produced so much record-keeping that the Aztecs even had an official who was specifically in charge of sweeping the city's streets. Doesn't sound like a fun bit of paperwork to be in charge of. At any rate, the Aztecs ruled an empire that consisted of 38 different provinces. Some were scattered uh, by independent kingdoms that existed within pockets of the empire. The Aztecs did not control these locations with overwhelming physical force, but rather by simple intimidation and the threat of force. Some provinces had governors with garrisons and civil servants, but others only had a few tax collectors since the native ruler who often maintained, uh, was often maintained in power so long as he collaborated with the Aztec rule and paid the Aztec tribute. Some of the independent kingdoms were independent only because they existed in places that weren't alongside important trade routes. But others, especially on the frontiers, were truly independent. They existed as buffer states, like Zicalanco on the Gulf Coast, between Maya country and the Nahua speakers of the north. A few other independent kingdoms were well-placed along important trade routes, but were able to menace Aztec trade and communication and resist Aztec conquest. But over time, all but one of these became neutralized militarily, the city of Tlaxcala, a place and people which will have a very prominent role in Mesoamerican history after, after the Spanish arrive. Now, at any rate, at the time of the arrival of the Spanish... The Aztec were in a state of expansion, generally speaking, except for in the West, where the formidable Tarascan army defeated the Aztecs soundly on their several attempts in that direction. 
tribute was collected regularly, as you might imagine, in a place with very detailed calendars, either quarterly, semi-annually, or annually, depending on how far the individual province was from Tenochtitlan, essentially. But an exception to this rule existed for the specific tribute items required by the Mexica for specific religious festival festivals. Excuse me. These were expected on time, no matter what. The Aztec leadership structure was supported by warfare and subsequent domination. Experienced warfare warriors led Aztec forces into battle. They marched to the sound of drums, trumpets, and whistles. And I mean terrifying death whistles. Seriously. You can look up the sound you, uh, look up the sound you make. I'm not going to torture you by trying to replicate it. But if you have ever seen the movie Dumb and Dumber, they sound like a terrifying version of the most annoying sound in the world. At any rate, the primary offensive weaponry that the Aztecs used were swords and thrusting spears, but clubs, darts, bow and arrows, axes, and various other weapons were also used. Um, Soldiers also normally carried shields made of wood and feathers and thick body armor made of quilted cotton cloth that was capable of stopping arrows and other projectiles in in, in many cases. War leaders differentiated themselves from the soldiers they led with feather tunics, headdresses, armbands, and other decorative clothing. Now, the Aztecs also had a judicial branch to their government, and which included both commoners and nobles, both being chosen mainly by their by being accomplished. The Aztec judiciary had two levels. Common folk used the lower courts to lodge complaints to judges, who were in turn responsible for arresting offenders and deciding matters of lesser importance, generally speaking, though they were often also in charge of doing preliminary investigative work for the important cases of the higher court as well. Court records were meticulously kept by secretaries, and by which means the higher courts received reports, um, about court proceedings and requests for and um, and took up requests for appeal. Now the higher court consisted of twelve judges and the ruler of a city state, and the higher court met once every twelve days. The higher court of each city was responsible for reviewing decided cases and making decisions on complex cases. It had the power to call witnesses, and it was expected to be able to detect miscarriages of justice. All princes and lords were tried by the higher court, as you might imagine. But I want to point out that the Tlatelani of a city had the final decision of appeal, so we're not exactly talking about two equal branches of government here. Um, Crimes included the things you would expect, like theft, murder, rape, and etc., but religious offenses were were also uh, uh, possible. Especially heinous crimes were theft from temples, and people expected from uh, convicted of this could be expected to be dragged from the courthouse with a rope around their neck until uh, they got to the lake, in which case they would throw you in, presumably your corpse. The lower judges, in contrast, basically worked all day hearing cases, which was a necessity since each province only had two judges. So on the one hand, this was a prestigious position, which included having your meals being brought to you, but on the other hand, lower judges sure did seem to have a lot more work than most Aztec officials. City wards, or capulis, were responsible for appointing police. The Aztec police were responsible for confining accused persons in wooden cages and generally were not in the habit of providing their prisoners with a whole lot of food and water. 
The rulers of city-states appointed executioners, though lesser sentences included jailing, mutilation, and slavery. Now, perhaps only the emperor himself was exempt from justice. The sister of Moctezuma II was tried for adultery by her husband, and both she and her lovers were executed. But with that shit, we should remember that male Pipeltine could turn their concubines' children into nobility, and they had far more li- li- leeway than Pipeltine women did in the Aztec world. At any rate, let's move on to talk about religion of the Aztecs in central Mexico. Now, generally speaking, um, it was believed that there had been several worlds or suns that existed before our own. Four, to be precise. The Aztecs lived in the present world, the fifth sun. They also believed that, like the previous four suns, the fifth sun would be destroyed one day and that this would be done by a series of devastating earthquakes. Now, they didn't know exactly when this would happen, but it was known that this event would take place at the end of the calendrical cycle, which is to say the end of a 52-year cycle. The Earth was visualized by the Aztecs as a giant crocodile. It floated on a primeval sea. The edges of the crocodile's back were turned upwards to support the sky, The sky itself was comprised of 13 layers of heavens, each of which was placed on top of the other in a pyramidal form. The the underworld was likewise made of seven layers. Excuse me, seven layers. Too much Dante. Um, Nine. Nine were the amount of, of layers in the Aztec underworld. At any rate, in the Aztecs kind of saw the spiritual world as one that kind of mimicked their own world with a pyramidal structure. They worshipped plenty of deities. Some were invisible, others took human form. Some lived in the heavens, others in the underworld. The rain gods resided in mountains. They spent their time generating rain clouds. Many of these gods came in pairs of both sexes, especially gods of creation. Further, each god generally had five aspects of their being, one for the center of the world and one for each of the four directions. The patron god of the Mexica was named Huitzilopochtli, and as the the Mexica rose in power, so did he in the pantheon, absorbing the attributes that formerly belonged to other gods, especially the powers of the sun. The Nahuatl word for god or deity is Teotl. But to be honest, a better definition of Teotl is probably something like sacred power. Um, In truth, the Aztec gods encompassed more complex concepts than we tend to think of when we think of, say, like the Greek pantheon, where, you know, Hera and and Zeus and Athena and Poseidon and Hades and all these others have a human form and have their own unique personalities and powers and domains. The Aztec deities were more like invisible forces than, than, than Greek gods, for example. They combined and blended to cre- together to create a natural world. And with that said, the word god or deity is a much easier way to talking about this than, 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 than to just call them sacred powers. So do forgive me. So with that out of the way, the various teotals of Aztec religion basically fell into one of three major cults. The first was the most abstract, It had to do with ideas of celestial creativity and creation, of divine paternalism. And generally speaking, this was most often expressed in the Aztec worlds by poets and philosophers. 
While this theme is thus perhaps the most difficult to describe, it was one that was of powerful importance to Aztec society. One of the gods of this cult, Tezcatlipoca, was the god of night and magic. He was a supernatural magician. His name is Smoking Mirror, and it has been argued that Tezcatlipoca's personality basically encapsulated the essential ethos of the entire culture. Which is to say, Smoking Mirrors was a god of fatalistic pessimism. And that was an idea that was very important to Aztec culture. Now, the second major theme in Aztec religious beliefs was the cult of deities associated with rain, moisture, and agricultural fertility. These were the group of gods who we've been discussing since the beginning of the episode. Uh, They were long ago worshipped by Mayan peoples. Tlaloc and all his helpers were especially important. So were female goddesses, which were the personifications of corn, the famous corn mother. Another fun deity in this cult was one whose name translates as 400 rabbits, which was supposedly how an Aztec might feel after having had sufficient pulque to drink that they were drunk. With that said... Not everything involved involving this aspect of Aztec religion was fun and games, getting not just drunk, but 400 rabbit drunk. An important god uh, in this domain was Zipetotec, and worship of Zipetotec was done by priests who were known for flaying the skin of sacrificial victims and wearing that skin as cloaks. Now, Zipetotec seems horrifying to us today, but as one example... Um, of, of why this was done, kind of. Mesoamerican farmers believed the seeds they planted in the earth were dead and required help from the underworld to return to life. So for Mesoamericans, the worship of Zipetotec helped them better understand the concepts of death and rebirth, rest, and the growing season. These were ideas and themes that went back far beyond even the classical period. They represented the religious themes that people in Mesoamerica believed in for thousands of years. Now, in contrast, the third cult theme of Aztec religion was the state-sponsored cult of war, sacrifice, and blood. Now, this was far more important to the nobility than to, say, Aztec farmers and other commoners. Blood and human sacrifice was required in Aztec belief systems, though, because life itself was necessary to nourish the sun and earth. The Aztecs' justification, therefore, for regularly engaging in human sacrifice was nothing less than the preservation of the very existence of the universe. If the Aztecs did not show Huitzilopochtli and other Aztec gods that they were sufficiently grateful for their existence— for the fifth sun, then the end of the world would come about. So in order to show that they were sufficiently grateful, they sacrificed human beings. Constant war was necessary to gain a constant supply of victims. Now, if you're wondering if Zipe Totec might also be involved with the idea of human sacrifice, you wouldn't be wrong. In fact, not all gods were confined to one single aspect. Quetzalcoatl, the great patron of the Toltecs, was worshipped by priests of all cults. He was a creator deity. He was also associated with war and blood, and was also a great cultural hero. 
Further, he provided humanity with maize and other gifts, and like I mentioned when talking about Toltecs, Quetzalcoatl was almost certainly a historic person who, over time, picked up more and more qualities of deities. Instances of human sacrifices generally occurred in ceremonies, along with various other offerings, such as, and other rituals, like, you know, processions, dancing, singing, mock combats, and of course, feasting. Ceremonies were held in the temple precincts and were patronized by both the state and the elite membership, leadership, excuse me. The Aztecs, like all pre-modern people, were very religious and thus had a fundamental belief in the power of supernatural forces which surrounded them and acted upon them in their world. To the Aztec mind, capricious gods lived here and on the earth, and humans were at their whim. Powerful magic might allow one to divine the future if someone first knew enough about the calendar to detect the cycles of time. And Aztecs believed thus that life could be controlled, or at least foreseen, if one had enough knowledge. The town of Malinalco was noted for having sorcerers who stared into tubs of water to divine the future. The calendars themselves were bound up in life um, in Mesoamerica to the extent that a person's entire life was bound up with the aspects of one's birthday. The Aztec countryside was dotted with religious shrines, especially in the mountains where shrines to the rain gods proliferated. The Pochteca always stopped on long-distance trading uh, journeys to stop at shrines of Yacatuectli, the god of travelers, so they could ask him for protection. Farmers often felt the wrath or beneficence of the gods. Quetzalcoatl's influence was seen whenever a cool breeze preceded a rain squall. That was the rain god, sweeping the path clear for Tlaloc, the rain god. Each year was filled with ceremonies and festivals, often accompanied by sacrifices. In addition, the Aztec ball game was a sacred event. The large, eye-shaped courts contained carved stone rings, and players could only score by hip-checking or kneeing a large rubber ball through the rings. Now, as you might imagine, not using their hands and feet made goals pretty tough to come by, but neighboring cities often played against each other, as did uh, various nobles, and many people gambled extensively on it. So the, the ball game wasn't entirely religious in nature, but the Aztecs also viewed the ball game as a holy battle between the sun and the moon, or between other celestial forces. And Aztec priests used the outcomes of the ball game as a form of divination to help guide the action of kings. So opposing teams on the court were actually assigned of possible future events, and the winning team signified which course of action would be taken. Like the Aztecs practiced a wide variety of forms of magic and divination. Different priests acted, acted as fortune tellers, physicians, or magicians, and these specialists might be either men or women. Casting kernels of maize, tying knots, and as I mentioned, looking into tubs of water were all forms of looking into the future. Casting kernels of maize was probably being the most popular. Um, in addition, just like the Maya and other Mesoamerican cultures, the sacred calendar itself was helped to divine was used to help divine the future. Individual days were considered lucky unlucky, or neutral. And this was a system that was very similar to how astrology was practiced in the old world. Now, 
Not all rituals were public. Every Aztec home was also a place of worship. Home rituals were generally carried out by women, who especially used the small clay figurines we've talked about. These were helpful objects in curing ceremonies. They aided in childbirth, weddings, and burials. Incense burners were also common household items, and these were essentially essential, uh, identical to those found in temples. Now, science and art were also highly tied to religion in the Aztec world. Writing, for example, was an act done on a variety of media, including stone sculptures and ceramics, and it often contained religious information. Now, the Aztec writing system borrowed from the Maya, the Zapotecs and Mixtecs of the Oaxacan Valley, and ultimately from the Olmec culture. The Aztecs made books, um, though, too, made of cloth or deerskin. They folded them up like accordions, like a form of paper. Professional scribes made most of these books. And they contained depictions of gods and various rituals, as well as information about days of the sacred calendar. Historical books also existed. These were records of tribute and records of ruling dynasties. Um, Much like some artisans in the Pushteca, the scribes of the Aztec world belonged kind of to their own little their own little world. A scribe was a hereditary position taught from father to son. Like other Mesoamerican people, the Aztecs had an advanced knowledge of astronomy. Temples and observatories were placed specifically in order so that Mesoamericans could observe the heavens, and this was particularly important for a variety of religious purposes. Likewise, the practice of medicine was thought of in religious terms. Many illnesses were thought to have supernatural or magical causes. These were sent down by the gods as punishment for various transgressions, in the case of the supernatural, or in in the case of magic by a type of sorcerer called an owl man. Some diseases were also just considered natural by the Aztecs, but no matter what the cause... The solution was the same. You needed to see a physician who sometimes visited people's homes and who might be a man or a woman and who, in addition to setting broken bones, stitching wounds, and providing healing herbs, these people were necessary for the healing process because only Aztec physicians knew what the correct chants were uh, that needed to be sung to help heal the sick. Aztec art was often religious, of course, as you might imagine. Um, Literature and poetry were actually very important parts of Aztec society, as bloody and ruthless uh, uh, as the Aztec Empire could be. The Aztecs were people who greatly valued oratorical skill. And among uh, priests and the nobility, this was a particularly important trait. Uh, Poets were especially highly thought of, and that's something that is practically baffling to 21st century people, I think, uh, living in the world of degraded humanity as we do. Sacred hymns were chanted uh, at ceremonies to honor the gods, and the Nahuatl phrase for poetry translates directly into English as flower and song. Flowers, as I mentioned, were particularly important to Aztec society. Many poems dealt with giving praise to the gods or praising flowers or sometimes more philosophical subjects, such as one short poem about the impermanence of life written by an ancient king of the city of Alcoa. Quote, 
My flowers shall not cease to live. My song shall never end. I, a singer, intone them. They become scattered. They are spread about. Unquote. Music and dance were also holy arts and were pertained uh, at rituals uh, and, and ceremonies. Drums were common instruments, as were flutes, uh, trumpets, pottery whistles, and various sorts of rattles. These instruments were played to the accompaniment of various dances, and sometimes included both men and women, who danced in circles around the musicians. Some of these, especially the dances performed by young people, were quite scandalous to later Spanish observers. One friar described a dance as, quote, so roguish with all its wriggling and grimacing and immodest mimicry that it is not difficult to see that it was a dance of immoral women and fickle men. It is highly improper, unquote. I apologize for breaking my own rule this series about not using European conquistadors as direct sources. But man, do I get a kick out of reading about horrified old people who witness young people dance. At any rate, the Aztec world was highly ordered. Mysterious and awful, yes, but orderly. The regularity of the pageantry and drama involved in Aztec religion was designed to allay the anxieties and fears that these people had about living in a hostile and essentially unpredictable world. And that would basically be the insider's view of Aztec religion. But of course, there is another, which is to say that Aztec religion also served to bind commoners into allegiance to the state. It is undeniable that people in ages past were a great deal more religious than we are today. Much has been spoken and written about uh, the Aztecs going to war for sacred purposes, that they waged nearly endless war to save the world and the sun, and they believed that if they did not do this, the world would end. In addition, the Aztec nobility, through their associated warrior societies, learned a specialized form of martial arts, which in English translates as the Flowery War. And this was designed to help a soldier better catch slaves. A skilled combatant would attack opponents in non-lethal means as often as possible, preventing death, which would have ruined the whole point of going to war, and instead preferring to capture enemies. For example, you might slice your opponent's hamstring. Not usually deadly, but boy, it sure did make it difficult to escape if, uh, if using this type of combat, if that happened to you. Now, these elements existed within Aztec society. That is, these are truths about their culture, but it's the same thing as saying, I mean, there were Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors who literally believed that killing, raping, and murdering Africans was justified because they were helping to save souls. This is the same case for the Aztecs. It is undeniable, too, that they used similar religious justifications in order to go to war for economic purposes, the aim of which was raiding conquered cities for loot and slaves and then extracting further tribute from the newly conquered region. On a practical level, this meant that once a battle began, many Aztec soldiers didn't really fight as units but as individuals. Aztec soldiers sometimes went out of their way to separate from their units, to fight one-on-one -on -one battles in the hopes of a, 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 
subduing, fighting and subduing an opponent for capture um, as often as they might be trying to accomplish uh, killing enemy soldiers. The empire was loosely controlled in a physical sense, but the threat of overwhelming force basically made everything work. It didn't. The Aztec emperor in that way, empire, excuse me, worked in that way in a in a similar fashion as the rule of the British in Eastia, in in India did. Excuse me. Now, as I said earlier, the Tarascans were really the only empire in Mesoamerica to employ a standing professional army, and this is true. It's also, in some ways, a matter of definition. The Aztecs didn't have a professional army in the same way that ancient Spartans didn't have a professional army. Now, the ancient Spartans didn't need a professional army because every single Spartan male was militarily trained. This was exactly the case as for the Aztec Empire. Both uh, commoners' schools, the Telpochkali, and the noble schools, the Kalmykak, focused heavily on military training. And further training took place often uh, from tutelage from older and more experienced warriors that a, from a young man's family in Kalpuli. Wealthy nobles even went so far as to hire particularly skilled combatants to teach their sons war. And because of being exceptional in war was a great way to distinguish oneself and advance in, within Aztec society, uh, both for nobility and commoners alike. Now, the Aztec military societies were graded. The most exclusive were entirely made up of nobles. And the least exclusive were comprised of commoners, though mixed-class military schools also existed. Rank was not necessarily determined by nobility. Personality and military achievement had as much to do with military command as kinship and social status did. And at any rate, it appears that the Aztec were skilled in the art of military command. Aztec armies fought under a clear set of responsibilities, and despite the um, reality that soldiers would sometimes go off and do their own thing, hoping to get slaves so that they could sell them, um, the goals necessary to complete tasks were highly regulated, and, and armies fought, uh, and the Aztec armies fought um, with, a, with a good deal uh, bit of discipline. Now, the efficiency of the Aztec military might was due to several factors. One was the existence of this body of trained soldiers, provided by men's schools and military orders. But another was due to the intelligence gathered by Pochteca merchants loyal to the Aztec regime, who supplied constant uh, and important messages back to Tenochtitlan uh, via a um, relatively quickly via a system of relay messengers. Um, this was a system that existed throughout the empire and consisted of, of relay stations, each about four kilometers apart, which were used to pass information around the empire rapidly. Now, the final piece of the puzzle of unlocking Aztec military efficiency was connected to the system of communication. And simply put, the Aztecs had excellent logistics. Plans were carefully, carefully calculated for each, for each campaign, and supplies would be uh, prepared in advance and placed in specially prepared supply depots. Um, these would be prepared in advance by loyal tributary to towns along lines of march. And, and this was how um, the Tenochtitlan armies were able to travel so far. Uh, Tenochtitlan also stored vast armories, which provided the weapons for these armies. 
Uh, and the number of soldiers in each army, uh, as well as the proportion of nobles and commoners used, was kind of dependent upon which aren't what who they were facing uh, as their enemy. But generally speaking, uh, the Aztecs regularly sent out armies of about eight thousand soldiers to handle re- town revolts or display shows of force. In defensive situations or other emergencies, uh, though, the entire military organization could be mobilized, and, and this. These, I mean, considering everyone was militarily trained, these were massive armies. But when a battle did occur, victory often came alongside a conquest, sometimes alongside the partial destruction of a city, like burning an enemy temple. After conquest, tribute would be set. And as long as the losing monarch didn't have a problem with paying the tribute, um, the conquered city-state got to keep its leadership structure. The Aztecs really weren't interested in meddling in the internal affairs of their subjected people so much as they were in extracting tribute from them. Once the Aztecs achieved something that we might look back on and call something like a mighty empire, they began looking backwards into their history, and what they found was sorely disappointing to them. Like many other imperial peoples before and after, they went so far as to burn many of the older history books and started rewriting their own history. As a result of this, much of what has come down to us about the Aztecs comes to us in a form of official chronicle of the empire, and that presents the Aztecs as they wished to be seen, not always as they were. Now, with that said... The city-states of Chalco and Texcoco managed to preserve portions of their state archives. And from these, um, historians and archaeologists have different voices, and that helps give us a fairer version of the history. And with that said, the Mexica were one of seven tribes of Chichimec, which left their homeland called Atslan, a semi-mythical place west of Mexico. And from the name Atslan, the name Aztec was derived, though This wasn't a common name used until the 19th century. The name they called themselves was the Mexica after a famous leader they had named Mexi. The Aztec were the last of seven Chichimec tribes to reach the basin of Mexico. And after wandering and adventuring for a while, um, they arrived in the basin of Mexico in 1193 AD. It is unknown exactly what the political status of the Aztec were at this point, There is little doubt, though, they were a politically weak, militarily aggressive group. They paid tribute to another, uh, more powerful city-state called Kulhua, who used them as mercenaries until the Aztecs decided to sacrifice a Kulhua princess, which really pissed off the king of Kulhua. As a result, he attacked the Aztecs, and they went running uh, from where they were living into the swamps, which they slowly began to transform. Now, not a whole lot changed for the Mexica over the next few centuries. Until 1427, they were barely holding on and had settled mainly in three places. One group stayed near the city of Cuhuacan. Another group uh, moved to the rocky islets on the western embayment of Lake Texcoco and founded Tenochtitlan's uh, sister city of Tlatelolco. And the third founded Tenochtitlan, which technically happened before the group founded Tadalalco. Now, Tenochtitlan was built in a marshland that belonged to three powerful city-states, Atkapatzalco, Texcoco, and Culhuacan. 
Tenochtitlan was found specifically at a spot where an eagle had been seen nesting on a cactus, eating a snake. And the Yemexica founded their initial shrine at this exact spot and dedicated it to Hitchilopochtli, their one-time nomadic leader, who by now had ascended to the status of deity. Afterwards, the Aztec began expanding the available landmass on the islet, they, were building, they built foundations in the water by driving stakes, stakes in the ground, filling the spaces between the stakes with dirt and stone, and a city was built in this way. It eventually encompassed four districts, which corresponded with the four quarters of the world. During this time, the Aztecs relied on their neighbors. After building this city, they wanted a king who could claim descent from the Toltec. The first king of Tenochtitlan was named Ekamapichtli, he became king in 1364, and in order to get some Toltec blood into his line, he married a princess from Kuhokan because she could claim ancestry from the Toltec. Now, I don't exactly know how this happened. Um, that is a royal mad marriage between Tenochtitlan and Kuhokan, but it is clear that over the years, the Aztecs had managed to smooth things over after having sacrificed an earlier Kuhokan p- princess. Now, I should point out, I suppose, uh, that according to Aztec lore, this was done by Akamapichtli firing a hollow arrow into Oaxaca, uh, Oaxaca, I have trouble with that one, specifically into the palace where the princess he wished to marry lived. Um, the arrow was hollow and was filled with a bunch of precious jewels, which of course uh, the princess discovered rather than some other lucky resident of the palace. In addition, the Aztecs had another problem. Um, it, it, that was that they were paying tribute to the city-state of Azcapotzalco. Um, now, this tribute was very onerous, but Acamapichli's success, su- successor uh, was able to marry one of the king of Azcapotzalco's daughters. I am sorry, you guys. And she persuaded her father to lower the taxes which the Aztecs had to pay. Now, he agreed to do so. And just like that, the fortunes of the Aztecs began to rise over the course of two generations. Now, the Aztecs still made a lot of effort to live in peace with their powerful neighbors at this time. A great way to do that was that they invited people from other city-states to live in Tenochtitlan, which created ties between them and other communities. Another way they did this was by serving as mercenaries. The Aztecs had established a fierce reputation uh, as skillful warriors. In 1417, their second king died, and a third king took office and continued to, to develop the city peacefully. But about 10 years later, a crisis developed, and this threatened the Aztecs' existence as an independent people. By this time, the city had grown large enough that there simply wasn't enough water for the increasingly large population, not to mention the increasingly large number of Chinampas. The plan the Aztecs had to solve this was to create an aqueduct causeway, and they needed help to do so, and they asked help from Azcapotzalco. Now, it is possible that the Aztecs made their request with insolence, as in something along the lines of, you better give us some help to get this water or else. Or, it is possible that the leadership structure of Azcapotzalco simply saw this as a good opportunity to destroy a growing rival. At any rate, instead of sending help with the water, Azcapotzalco sent assassins. 
They killed the third Aztec king and his son and afterwards instituted an economic blockade of the city. In this time of troubles, the first militaristic king ascended to the throne of Tenochtitlan. He was named Itzacuatl, and with the aid of his ferocious nephew, uh, the general named Tlacalil, the Aztecs conquered Azcapotzalco. And the first time, the Aztecs were truly independent. Itzcoatl was the first of six rulers who presided over a growing Aztec imperial system. Tlacalil, too, would have a long and illustrious career as a conqueror, as a general and advisor to emperors, and in fact, for a large portion of his career, he was emperor in all but name. Tlacalil, though, doesn't have a great reputation. Some people believe it was he who was responsible for transforming the Mesoamerican belief in human sacrifice from something that uh, happened relatively rarely as a show of thanks to the gods for you know in exchange for providing such a nice universe to live in into the Aztec specific emphasis on human sacrifice as an instrument of terror and political control. Now this is by no means agreed on by all researchers. Some believe Tlacalil has a larger reputation than is warranted, but either way it is indisputable that it was he who planned and carried out the first military campaigns that enabled Tenochtitlan to conquer and subject the Basin of Mexico. Now, ruling the Basin of Mexico pretty much solved any problems with food or water which the Aztecs might encounter. In addition to the tribute from these places, it enabled uh, the support for uh, necessary for a rapid growth in Mexica aristocracy and bureaucracy. Now, with that said, I basically just told you the Aztec version of what happened. But thanks to the chronicles of other city-states, we know that the Aztec conquest of Azcapotzalco would have been entirely impossible had not the Aztecs made an alliance with the two other city-states of Texcoco and Tacuba. In fact, during this time, the ruler of Texcoco, Nezahoyacotl, appears to have been extremely important in the conquest of the entire basin. He was an accomplished engineer and a warrior in his own right, and it is absolutely clear that the Aztecs later attempted to expurge this powerful allied king from the history books. Unfortunately, we don't have the records of Texcoco itself to see what they had to say. The state archives there burned down during the Spanish conquest. But, at any rate, it is clear that by the end of the conquest of the Basin of Mexico, the leadership of the Aztec state came to understand that by dramatically increasing the number of sacrificial victims, it would be possible to control vast amounts of power and wealth. The reign of bloody terror instituted after this resulted in over the next hundred years perhaps hundreds of thousands of victims, maybe a million. I don't, I don't know. That might not be inaccurate, though. With that said, though, both Aztec chroniclers and later Spanish counts greatly exaggerated the number of sacrificial victims. For example, at the dedication of the newly enlarged Great Temple to Hitzilopochtli, the Aztecs claimed that Aztec priests sacrificed 80,000 slaves. That just simply isn't possible. It would require the Aztec priest in charge to have sacrificed nearly one person per second. If three Aztec priests had done it, it would have required one person every three seconds. 
even if 10 Aztec priests were up there just cutting people up willy-nilly, the fact that they would have done some, uh, killed somebody every 10 seconds all day long is baffling to me. That, that doesn't seem likely at all. It is quite likely that a whole lot of people were sacrificed at the dedication to the temple of Huitzilopochtli. But I should point out that archaeologists who have studied the Aztecs have never found evidence of mass sacrifices of Mexico of more than, say, maybe a thousand people killed at once, which is still a lot of people and is a far more believable number and would still be an absolutely terrifying spectacle, to be clear one in which the Aztecs routinely invited rulers of hostile states to witness so that, th- so that they could see what the fate had in store for them if they didn't keep paying the Aztec tribute, for example. At any rate, Tlacolil died in 1496. A few years later, in 1503, Moctezuma II came to power. He ascended the religious route rather than the militaristic route to the throne, and immediately began to deify himself. He arranged for the advisors and court officials who'd served as his predecessor to be assassinated. These were the only men in the Aztec Empire who knew enough to have doubted the divinity of Moctezuma. Once they were gone, within, there were very few within the empire who would have doubted his claims to divinity. In fact, years later, uh, when a Spanish priest asked one old Mexica man what Moctezuma had looked like, The man replied he did not know. He had never once dared to look at Moctezuma's face. In the years leading up to the arrival of the Spanish, Moctezuma became somewhat troubled. The king of nearby Texcoco had become something of a subversive enemy, a frenemy, I guess. He started making predictions about how Aztec hegemony would end in the next few years, and much has been written about how these prophecies uh, troubled Moctezuma. And it's clear he was definitely bothered by them. And basically, anytime anything bad or ominous happened uh, it, to Moctezuma in the years leading up to the Spanish conquest, at least in retrospect, has been turned into a part of the story of the conquest itself. That Moctezuma knew, or at least believed, that it was destiny that was destroying the Aztec Empire. In part, this probably is true. This, the Aztecs did believe, like I said earlier, in a fatal pessimism. But it is also possible that some of this pro- the prophetic overtones regarding this came after the fact, when Cortes tried to explain how he'd conquered the empire. Because once Cortes began to understand the myths of Quetzalcoatl, and realized that many Mesoamericans believed that Quetzalcoatl would return, and that in fact Cortes might be Quetzalcoatl, but he sure did uh, add in a grandiose amount of self-aggrandizing, uh, as he does in his account of the conquest. Um, he really played it up. And, and really, I mean, the amount... Oh, we'll get to that next series, but, uh, but Cortes, it, he speaks so well of himself. Let's just say it's possible that perhaps a tiny little bit of him might have started believing that he was Quetzalcoatl. With that said, though, it's important not to forget that fatal, pes- uh, pessimistic fatalism was a big part of Aztec belief structure and that Moctezuma was a pretty religious guy. At any rate, I think it's a, you know, it's a good mystery to consider, I think. Now, with that said, 
I guess that's pretty much all I have to say. Well, except for the last bit about human sacrifice, which, of course, has been practiced by many cultures across the world, Maya and Inca, Hebrew and Greek. The concept of sacrifice is, in fact, an omnipresent belief in all cultures. Before I begin, I want to give this reminder. They don't make religious people like they used to. In the pre-modern world, true believers of all religions were far more common than they are today. In Mesoamerica, the practice of human sacrifice, like so much of Mesoamerican culture, predates the cultures of the classical period, like the Maya, and dates back to at least the time of the Olmec. Though the circumstances by which this happened are lost to us today, but with that said... Other forms of sacrifice were more common. Animal sacrifices of dogs, turkeys, and other birds, and rituals involving bloodletting happened far more frequently than sacrificing human beings for for Mesoamerican cultures, besides the Aztecs, perhaps. Broadly speaking, Mesoamericans believed that Quetzalcoatl was the first being to engage in bloodletting, According to this belief, the god was tasked with a journey to the underworld so that he might retrieve the bones of the people who lived during the age of the fourth sun in order that he might create modern people of the fifth. Once he returned from the underworld, the bones were gathered together in a jade bowl, smashed into a powder, and Quetzalcoatl and the other gods shed their own blood to give life to the dust in the bowl, and so were born people. The gods themselves sacrificed their blood to create people, and thus humankind owed a tremendous debt to the gods, a debt which could only be paid in kind by offerings of human blood. Devices were constructed out of mogwai thorns or special blood letters made of stingray spines were used to pierce earlobes, This was something that all Mesoamericans did to petition the gods with mercy for agricultural pursuits or to help them with fertility and childbirth. Blood was the most valuable substance a person could offer to the gods. But besides the ears, the tongue, thigh, upper arm, chest, and genitals were pierced often. The most devout Priests and their acolytes pierced their flesh and pulled straws or reeds throughout the hole. Priests engaged in this nightly, first bathing and purifying themselves, burning incense, and then going to a secluded spot and cutting themselves. Blood from the penis and the vagina were the most valuable to the gods, as sort of makes sense with rituals having to do with fertility and agriculture, I suppose. The priests of one Maya temple, engaged in a particularly bizarre ritual, wherein 200 priests, men and women, all gathered together in a circle to pierce their genitals, the foreskin for men, the hood of the clitoris for women, and all would run a type of rope through a hole, attaching themselves together for as long as they could stand it, all dripping their blood down into the soil, something which was necessary to ensure the safety of that year's crops. Now, I'd also like to point out that bloodletting rituals went far beyond Mesoamerica. 
In fact, in a number of North American indigenous communities, there was a ceremony called the sun dance that was practiced, which involved dancers who pierced their flesh in the back or shoulders or through the chest and then hooked themselves to leather straps attached to a cedar pole and literally danced around these poles until the leather cord snapped off or the dancer was completely exhausted, something which could take days, all the while bleeding onto the sacred ground below. But with that said, bloodletting or auto-sacrifice was merely a temporary fix in Mesoamerican for something more necessary. That was the sacrifice of human life itself. When the fifth sun first rose in the sky, according to Mesoamerican myth, it did not move. It was stuck, and as a result, everything began to burn. The gods themselves asked the sun, Why do you not move? The sun told them he required their precious substance, their color, their blood. The gods sacrificed themselves to make the sky move across, to make the sun move across the sky. Quetzalcoatl performed the sacrifice. He, opened, he cut open the chests of gods and offered their hearts up to the sun so that it would go along on its path across the sky. And just as gods sacrificed themselves for the sun, so too people had to provide life itself in order to keep the sun going. This was done in a variety of ways in Mesoamerican cultures. In ceremonies honoring the god Zipetotec, the god of fertility and death, Sacrificial victims were killed in a variety of ways. Some were burned. Others had their throats slit. More elaborate rituals required the victim being tied spread eagle upon wooden frames and shot with arrows. Their sacred blood would drip out of the wounds onto the ground below. Others were killed in a form of gladiatorial sacrifice in which the victim was given a sword which had its obsidian blades removed and replaced with feathers. These victims faced a skilled combatant armed with armor and a very real sword. Priests of Zipetotec, after sacrificing someone, would dress and wear the flayed skins of their victims. The victim was thought to have been transformed into a god, and thus by wearing the skin of the victim, the priest was able to impersonate and symbolically become Zipetotec. In some Maya cities... People were sacrificed in special sea notes that weren't meant for drinking. Essentially, victims were thrown into sacred pools of water and drowned. Generally, most sacrifices that did not involve drowning were, farmed, were followed by a ceremonial meal at the home of the family of the captor. The victims of human sacrifice were thought to have been transformed into gods before they were killed. Thus, the sacrifice was a repetition of the initial sacrifice made by the gods to start up the universe. So the flesh of the deceased was consumed, in part in order to gain powers from the gods. The femur of the victim was hung up and publicly displayed, and the family ate a small portion of the victim's body, terrifying to us. To Mesoamericans, this was a religious occasion designed to honor the victim's memory. A small portion of the body was eaten. It wasn't exactly a nutritionally significant meal. 
The gods also claimed blood from the victim. Bowls of the victim's blood were collected and placed upon the lips of the sculptures of the presiding deity. But of course, the most famous examples of human sacrifice took place on the tops of pyramids and involved a ritual cutting out the still-beating heart of the victim. Any number of powerful nobles, priests, kings, all presided over human sacrifice. But by far, the most prominent site was in Tenochtitlan, at the huge temple pyramid known as the Templo Mayor, the temple to which to the Pochli, with its blood-stained twin stairways that dominated the central plaza of the Aztec capital. Now, like I said, many people in Mesoamerica and beyond, for that matter, practiced human sacrifice. But few cultures, if any, have ever made sacrifice as central a part of the religion as the Aztecs did. It is likely that none carried out sacrifice to the same scale. The skull racks were large trophy collections of skulls of sacrificial victims, were testament alone to the amount of human life taken by Aztec priests to honor their beliefs. There have been three main explanations posited as to why Aztecs practiced human sacrifice on such a massive scale. The first is simply the religious beliefs of the Aztecs and Mesoamericans in general. That is to say, simply put, that Aztec priests practiced human sacrifice and other Aztec people put up with the sacrifice because they believed it was necessary for the continued existence of the universe. And to be honest, that is a pretty good explanation as to why the Aztecs sacrificed themselves, but it doesn't really help us understand why the Aztecs sacrificed so many people in comparison to even other Mesoamerican cultures. So that leads us to the second explanation, which became popular starting in the 1970s, which basically follows that overpopulation in Mesoamerica meant that the Aztec diet contained very little meat, and thus sacrifice was stepped up as a result to provide meat in the Aztec diet. Now, if you can remember way back to when we started this episode, talking about corn and the Aztec diet, we know that isn't true. Despite the Aztecs eating relatively little meat, they got plenty of protein from fish and birds, not to mention that the combination of vegetables, which included the three sisters, enabled all but the poorest of Aztecs to get adequate levels of protein. The idea that the Aztecs practiced human sacrifice on a mass scale for dietary purposes simply doesn't hold up, despite the amount of media attention it has gotten over the years. And that brings us to the third explanation of Aztec human sacrifice, which states that Aztec politics and the close relationship of the Aztec state with Aztec religion is the reason. Kings ruled by divine right, and priests were under the protection of the state. Human sacrifices were carried out by the Aztec state as a form of propaganda, demonstrating to other Mesoamerican kingdoms the awesome power of the Aztec state and gods. 
Enemy rulers were forced to attend various ceremonies at Tenochtitlan, such as the coronation of New Mexico kings. They, there, they witnessed the sacrifice of their own captured soldiers, sometimes on a massive scale. Likewise, the subject commoners of the Aztecs witnessed these, witnessed these terrorizing spectacles, and thus saw not just the death of enemy soldiers, but of also local slaves, infants, and the occasional free Aztec commoner. And these were the sorts of sights which made people think twice before engaging in any form of rebellion against their king. Just as commoners paid tribute in gold, in goods and services to nobles, so too did humans pay sacred tribute to the gods. So, as you might imagine, there was quite a bit of terrorization within the carrying out of human sacrifice in the Aztec world. But just because other Mesoamericans didn't carry out human sacrifice for political goals nearly to the extent of the Aztecs did, didn't mean it wasn't still terrifying. For example, the archaeologists who found the bodies of sacrificial victims at the bottom of the sacred cenotes of some Maya cities, which were used for sacrifice, discovered that many of these victims suffered head wounds before being tossed or falling to their death. Cracked skulls and broken noses aren't uncommon to find in these sacred sea notes and the remains of the people who inside. But with that said, not everyone sacrificed was sacrificed unwillingly. This is a bizarre concept for most of us in the 21st century to understand. But I think I can get us close to understanding. The Aztecs used the Mesoamerican calendar, which, as you'll recall, had a cycle of 52 years. The Aztecs believed that the world would be destroyed at the end of one of these 52-year cycles. They were certain this would happen. It was destiny for the fifth sun to be destroyed by a series of earthquakes at the end of a 52-year cycle, and they just didn't know which one. The only way, the only way the Aztecs could appease the gods and prevent the death of the universe for at least another 52 years was by showing their great appreciation for life and the universe. How do you show appreciation to the gods? You show appreciation by giving someone a gift. But what do you give a god for a gift? The gods made everything in this world. Then the gods sacrificed themselves to keep the sun from destroying all life on earth. <laughs> that was quite a gift human beings were given. As a mere mortal, there is nothing you can make that the gods don't already have. And if you believe this, then there is only one thing that you could give gods to show them your appreciation, and that is life itself. 
And you're not going to show the gods appreciation for life by sacrificing the handicapped or the elderly, homeless or criminals, mentally ill or mentally deficient. <laughs> In fact, the god, the Aztecs would not have considered this a sacrifice at all. And they would have been fearful that such a false sacrifice might have angered the gods. No. If you're going to give the gods a gift, you must show the gods how much you really appreciate life and sacrifice important people, the nobility, powerful warriors, beautiful women, children, people who you would truly miss, who your society would truly miss, and whose death might just be enough to show the gods that maybe, just maybe, that the people of the fifth sun deserve another 52-year cycle. So with that in mind, in the Aztec psyche, it would be fair to view the counting down of the 52-year cycle as one might a clock. Tick, tick, tick. Every day, bringing increased anxiety that the world would soon end. I want to tell you what it would be like to be a willing sacrifice in such a system, to give you a first-person view of your last few moments of life, if this were the case. But just because I've shown you why Aztecs believed in sacrifice doesn't mean I've shown you that you believe in human sacrifice. And I can prove that you do. But in order to do that, before we finish this episode, before I take you down the rabbit hole again, I need to take us back to the 21st century. Need you to, I need to introduce you to an American soldier. Private First Class Ross A. McGinnis. Ross McGinnis was born June 14th, 1987. He joined the Army right after graduating high school in Knox, Pennsylvania in 2005. He served as a machine gunner in the 26th Infantry Regiment. He was six foot tall, about 136 pounds. He liked making jokes. He was a bit of a comedian. He often made his fellow soldiers laugh, in fact, with his impressions. He enjoyed working on cars, playing poker, and listening to very loud music. Obnoxiously loud. After 18 months in the Army, he was still the youngest soldier in his company. And thus, was just a goofy, skinny kid in many ways. Frankly, if you had known him, he might have come across to you as just about the most ordinary guy you'd have ever met in your life. Just a regular Joe. But not on December 4th, 2006. On that day, Private First Class Ross McGinnis did something extraordinary. On that day, 
Private First Class McGinnis was manning the M250 caliber machine gun on a Humvee when a battle began in U- with, between U.S. soldiers and Iraqi insurgents. One of those insurgents threw a grenade, which went right down the hatch of the MV, or the Humvee. McGinnis warned his fellow soldiers. He shouted, Grenade! It's in the truck! So they could prepare for the blast. Tick. 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 Perhaps Ross McGinnis should have leapt to relative safety out of the vehicle. But he didn't. He saw where the grenade was pinned. Tick, tick, tick. He had plenty of time to jump out of the truck, but Ross McGinnis didn't do that. He leapt down the hatch. No one else saw where the grenade was. So he pinned the grenade between the truck and his body. In doing this, Private First Class Ross A. McGinnis fulfilled the blood oath. All four soldiers in that truck survived because he gave his life for theirs. He sacrificed himself so that they could live. For saving the lives of his friends and giving up his own in the process, Ross McGinnis posthumously posthumously earned the Silver Star and the Congressional Medal of Honor. And I can't tell you how you should feel about the story of Ross McGinnis. If you're like me, you probably have very complicated feelings about it. On the one hand, I think the Iraq war was a colossal mistake. It was a disgusting war of choice that has resulted in nothing but death and destruction on a massive scale. I often wonder what Ross McGinnis thought about it. Maybe he agreed with me. Perhaps he thought it was a massive mistake. But he felt duty-bound to serve. Perhaps he didn't. Perhaps he believed it was for the best. Perhaps he merely thought that by serving his country, he would have an opportunity to get a good education or a business loan after his term of service was over. I don't know. I obviously cannot ask him. I do know this. Private First Class Ross A. McGinnis is a great dude of history. He saw time was running out. Tick, tick, tick. He made a decision to act. To save the people he cared about by giving up his own life.
in the minds of the Aztecs. The gods themselves were that grenade. And every 52 years, tick, 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 time was running out. So perhaps now you might see how someone, perhaps even someone just like you, might become not a victim of human sacrifice, but a willing participant. What the Aztecs called Ishiptla, a voluntary sacrifice. Many victims of human sacrifice were warriors captured in battle. Others might be slaves. One ritual required the secondary offspring of the nobility. Some required handsome young men and beautiful women with no bodily imperfections. However, you might have become chosen for such an honor. What happened next was the same. As Egypta, you would be transformed from human to divine being. First with ritual cleansing. You would be physically cleaned, carefully bathed by servants, and then ritually cleansed with incense. You would then be dressed in fine cotton clothing, fit for a god. And you, Ishiptla, would henceforth be addressed and worshipped as a god. You would carry out the necessary rituals, singing and dancing, and taking ceremonial parades to the city. You would live in a palace. Priests would attend you. They would give you luxuries, delicacies to eat, women or men for sexual pleasure. This was a great honor. And the respect and admiration which others showed you would have affected you greatly. You would spend an entire year of your life in this fashion, treated as a god and preparing for the big day. Tick, tick, tick. On the day of the ceremony, you would be fed hallucinogenic mushrooms on ayahuasca. And when the time came, you would ascend the blood-stained steps of the pyramid. And for the first time, you would gaze upon the sacred temple on top. There, the tick, tick, tick in your head would become a boom. 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 Boom, play the ceremonial drums. You meet the priest. He greets you. Then his four acolytes lay you on a stone altar, each man grabbing an arm or a leg. The priest holds an obsidian knife in his hand. It gleams in the sunlight. 
It happens fast. The knife he holds is so sharp that when it plunges into you, the razor-sharp stone blade easily pierces your chest. And with two expert cuts, the priest reaches inside of you, and you watch as he pulls your still-beating heart from your chest cavity. You're drugged. You have taken so many hallucinogens, you feel no pain. Your last few moments of life bear witness to the priest having seized your heart. He dedicates it to the sun. And afterwards, as darkness and final rest approach you, you take comfort. Because you know that your sacrifice has saved everyone you love. And with that, your now lifeless body is tossed down the staircase to come tumbling down the pyramid, a new, fresh layer of paint on the steps. At the bottom of the pyramid, priests take your corpse, cut off your head, and in short order add your skull to the skull rack. There is much we can learn from studying Mesoamerica, my friends. When I look at the cyclical rise and fall of classical civilizations like the Maya and Teotihuacan, I unfortunately see many similarities between those civilizations and the United States in the 21st century where I live. And that probably isn't a good thing. I fear that perhaps many of the same things, the same factors that brought down the Maya, are affecting the society in which I live. I fear that our society has become unbalanced. This worries me, but I suppose it should worry people wealthier than I am, a great deal more. If one thing is certain from viewing the collapse of Maya civilization, it is that the nobility collapsed. Many were killed, and those who weren't were simply abandoned. A close examination of the Aztec practice of human sacrifice helps to enlighten me to the idea that Even modern nations are quite capable of using the concept of human sacrifice to further their own political goals, and I believe we should be wary of that. There is a truth about stories, my friends. If it were up to me, I would tell you to learn from the example of the Maya Collapse to see that there is a direct correlation and causation between too much social inequality and environmental collapse. And that if we cannot correct the toxic blend of social inequality and its relationship to climate change, then like the ancient Maya, we might all go down together. So I would tell you, as I did last episode, that you are a magical person. 
that it is in your power to create the world of the sixth sun to be better than the last instead of worse. I would remind you that our modern society still engages in the practice of human sacrifice. That it occurs in all sorts of different forms. Like when nation states send young men off to die in war. Or when a troubled man picks up a gun and kills innocent people. I would warn you that the philosophical underpinnings to these sorts of events are little different than those which the Aztecs subscribe to. And so I would remind you that perhaps we in the 21st century are not so superior to the Aztecs in that regard. And so I would ask you, my friends, to see that it is in your power to take back the power of sacrifice and to use it for good instead of evil. I would argue that instead of sacrificing blood and lives, that now as we enter the sixth sun, we should instead sacrifice time and energy to make the world better, to save it, and the people you love. I believe we must all spend more time and energy in sacrifice, volunteering ourselves to make the world a better place. And that if we do that, if we are willing to engage in activities and spend time doing things that we might not want to do, then we will be both helping the less fortunate and saving our environment. And if we do that, we will be saving the people we love. And if we do not do this, we shall surely collapse just as the Maya did before us. Saving the world is not easy, my friends. It will require sacrifice. And I would beg you to make it. Oh, I would beg you. But there is a truth about stories, my friends. A story might shock and horrify you. It might even move you to action. It might make you cry. You might do what I believe you should do and begin seeing yourself as a magical person who has the ability to save the world by sacrificing your time and energy in an effort to do just that. To volunteer for worthy causes. To make the world a better place. Or, maybe a story might make you angry. You might disagree. You might dismiss it. You might do nothing at all. But there is a truth about stories, my friends. And that is this. In the years to come, when more and more people become bitter and angry in this world and decide to kill others. And more and more people of this earth fall for the words of self-aggrandizing despots who argue for modern forms of human sacrifice. 
You may never say, if only. If only I had known I was a magical person. If only I had known I could be like Quetzalcoatl, come in like the breeze and lead others by example, show them a new way. To show them that the sixth sun does not require a blood oath. It requires a sacrifice of time and energy. Tick, tick, tick. If only I had known this, I could have saved the people I love. My friends, this you may never say, because you have heard this story now. Our next episode will conclude People of the Sun with the history of South America and the Caribbean until 1492. Thank you for my for support with your written reviews, and especially to my Patreons who have donated at patreon.com slash atlanticworld. Until next time, friends, may your days be filled with flower and song. Hey, fellow pirates, come and listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command. So let's stop him on an island and leave him in the sand. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. And I will take it over the ship. It's a mutiny. Hey, mighty captain, haven't you heard what's happening here? You're no longer in control, and we're drinking up your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship, so enjoy your trip. Cause it's a mutiny.